Chapter 24 Aidan awoke to a patch of grey light at the window. Don had never allowed them to sleep this late. He listened for the familiar sounds of kitchen operations drifting down the passage, but all was silent. Careful not to disturb the others, he climbed from bed and dressed. It was early spring, still cold, but he elected to forego the shoes, firstly because he hated shoes, and secondly because he wanted to move in silence. The dorm remained blanketed in deep slumber as he crept out and began padding his way down the corridor. As he entered the kitchen, the light scuff of his feet echoed in a silence usually filled with the clatter of pots and the gossip of cooks. A deep worry began to grow in his empty belly as he retreated through the dining hall. He turned down another passage and began running. Every office was empty, every corridor silent. Even the central display room was vacant and dark, torches having long since expired. He considered running back to the dorms, but the light from the windows beckoned. He needed to get out of this disturbingly lifeless building. He found his way to one of the exits, unbolted the door, and slipped out. The morning was colder than he had expected, and he shivered at the touch of mist. A graveyard silence hung in the air. Something was wrong. Very wrong. Never had he seen this place without some hint of life. He turned back to the open door, but the darkness within the building was even less inviting now. Underfoot, gravel crunched as he traversed the walkway to the lawn, stepping from cold stones onto colder dew. A movement in the fog caught his eye. He glanced up just in time to see a cloaked figure pass behind a statue and into the central hall. It was all the clue he needed. He sped away across the lawns, slipped behind a line of regal plane trees, and approached the low boundary wall with its perimeter display of oversized bronze statues, the founders of the academy. The ground and building beyond this point were strictly off-limits to any student without special permission. Aidan crept up behind the fifteen-foot effigy of Crail O'Mandis and peered around his side. There were two guards on each corner. Here, in the middle of the wall, Aidan decided, the mist was almost thick enough to conceal him. It was worth a chance. He hopped over into the forbidden precinct and marched across the lawn with his head down, a posture that he hoped would look confident and slightly bored. It failed, perhaps because he was about half the size of any of those who had a right to be within the perimeter. Shouting voices called him to stop, and he heard the tramp of heavy boots. He kept his head down and pretended not to notice, heading for a hedge-lined corridor that approached one of the side doors. The shouts were getting louder now. He dared not look around. The high, opposing walls of the hedges concealed him momentarily as he entered the walkway. He broke into a sprint and dived through the first gap he spotted in the leaves. There was actually a surprising amount of space within the leafy wall, which was easily eight feet across. 
He crawled out the other side as the guards began searching for him, and darted under the branches of a stout conifer that stood just outside a window of the central hall. Climbing such a tree was a test of will against sticky gum, prickly leaves, and sharp seeds, so Aidan was far from comfortable when he settled opposite the window in the darkness of his fragrant tent. He listened to the soldiers prod and scratch a while longer before giving up the search and retreating to their posts. Finally, he could turn his attention to the hall. By the rumble of talk, he judged that somewhere in the region of two hundred people were assembled within. Presently, a voice called for silence. After a little more shuffling and coughing, things settled down, and the voice spoke again. Thank you for attending on such short notice. I am sure you will appreciate that the gravity of what you are about to hear justifies the disruption to the morning schedules. The voice sounded like Culver's. It cut with the precision of clear thought and the weight of undisputed authority. There was a brief pause, during which Aidan realized that he was about to overhear something that could possibly get him into more trouble than trespassing on the sacred lawn. But there was nothing he could do about that now. The marshals and rangers that were commissioned last autumn under the Fenlaw Threat Assessment Directive have returned, and I am afraid the news is disturbing. The iron mines that were sighted have grown significantly. Most of the ore is being taken to the smithies in Greel, where the marshals found a marked increase in weapons production. There is little work taking place at the shipyards, but there seem to be more stables than houses. If the Fen are preparing for a land war, then they have only three possible targets. Orunia, Vinterus, and Therna. Fortifications in Arunia and Vinteras have been recently strengthened, as southern Therna is now the least fortified neighbor by some margin, we must consider ourselves the most likely focus of their interest. There was a murmur of discussion that subsided as a question was raised from another point in the hall. What does Therna have that could justify the cost of such a war? Our silver mines are almost depleted. It is a point well made. However, it would be unwise to assume that they could have no motive and be lulled into complacency. The mere possession of land can be sufficient motive for some. A general murmur of agreement followed. The situation is complicated by news that has been reaching us from the other side of the realm. Reports of escalating Lecran forays are proving upon investigation to be accurate— it seems that Therna has relaxed the coastal patrols. Slave traders have grown bolder, making regular pickings along our sea border, sometimes sending parties far inland. With our small hold on the oceans, we can offer no retaliation. It has been suggested that the Lecran parties have been testing us, sampling us. If so, they would have found our bellies soft and our spears blunt. While it is not likely that they would attempt to match Therna's full strength, a fen invasion that turns our attention to the east would present Lekrau with an irresistible opportunity. The slavers may be scavengers by tradition, but let us not imagine that they would turn down the opportunity for a full invasion if we were crippled. Even vultures will kill, given the right circumstances. 
A tense silence was followed by a surge of voices that subsided after a moment, obviously in response to some gesture. Let's begin with questions. A thin voice, Aidan assumed it was made thinner by worry, asked, How long do we have before Fen can reach us? Marshals estimate that their army is still in its early stages of preparation. They will not be able to mount a large-scale assault within the next three years, though powerful skirmishing parties could breach our borders this summer. If they are planning a full conquest of southern Therna, it could be as much as six or seven years from now. The next voice was nasally and vaguely superior, almost cynical in tone. It sounded like Collis. Is there anything more definitive than a growing army and an interest in horses? Perhaps their concerns are self-defense and equestrian sports. Yes, there is more. In fact, it is all but a certainty that the Fen will cross our border soon. This goes back to their motive, doesn't it? The Fen have discovered something in our land, and you intend to keep it from us? In this I have no choice. It is by Prince Burkhardt's explicit orders. There was a burst of stamping and shouted protest. What had been found that was enough to start a war? Aidan thought that even the bronze Kralo Mandis would leap forth from centuries of silence and raise a harsh yell of dismay at being kept out of such a secret. But Culver could be made to say nothing further on the topic. Finally, order was restored, and he continued. The next matter is of a vastly different nature. By sheer coincidence, the returning rangers happened to witness one of the much-rumoured storms over the Denilan range. Three of them journeyed some distance through Denilan to investigate. They did not return. All that was found of them was a single boot and some disturbed ground, and, yes, a tree that looked to have been pushed over. I tell you this not to fuel the outlandish talk of Denilan, but to give you the facts as we have them before worm scales, griffin feathers, and cyclops prints are added to the report. I must implore you to turn your minds to sensible explanations and not retreat into the kinds of ideas that settle and nest in empty heads. Culver's last words caught Aidan imagining some frightening creatures in Denilan, a Denilan that was obviously growing wilder. He did not want to be guilty of the empty-headedness just condemned, so he pushed the thoughts back and tried to listen. While I care nothing for the doomsday notions that natural anomalies always provoke, there was something about this storm that we would be foolish to overlook. The surviving rangers gave a clear and, I must confess, startling description of what they witnessed, and aspects of their description struck a chord with something in the all-but-forgotten Gellerak archives. This history does not propose an explanation, but records a sequence of events that is worrying. It suggests that, should the storms move towards us, we may be faced with a greater threat than warmongering neighbors. For those of you, which I believe to be most of you, who do not speak Gellerak, I shall translate the first. Aidan's concentration had been absolute, and his focus so narrow that he had failed to see the parting of leaves 
or hear the soft crunch of boots. A vice-like hand snapped shut over his foot and dragged him through the gummy branches and out of the tree. The guard gripped him behind the neck, smiled, and nodded to someone waiting at the statues. Aidan could not turn his head to see, but as the guard marched him off, he got a glimpse of a boy taller than him, with dark hair and fair skin. Though the phrase that now felt appropriate was, skin pale as sickness and eyes weak as rainwater. Seems your friends don't like you much, said the guard. After a day and a night in the rat cells, I don't think you like yourself much either. Trespassing in the Founder's Quadrangle carries a standard penalty. After that, they will decide what to do with you. The cells were tiny stone cubicles in the wall of a dark and airless room. Aidan crawled into the cavity ahead of the guard's eager boot. The iron grill that swung shut pushed his feet in until his knees were not far beneath his chin. There was no way to stretch out. Neither was there sufficient space to sit. By the time the guard had left the room, Aidan was already uncomfortable. He lay curled on his side. When his hip and shoulder could take no more, he tried to turn over, bashing head and knees through the wriggling, jerking process. By the time he had managed to wrestle over onto his other side, he was in greater distress than he had been before, due in no small part to the rising claustrophobia. By midday, his limbs were in such agony he was not even conscious of his hunger or thirst. The little snatches of sleep that toyed with him through the night were chased off by the cold and the bite of relentless cramps. But even if he had been draped over cushions, sleep would have eluded him. What had been discovered in the Gellerac archives, whatever those were, what was this possible threat that was more worrying than open war? His frustrated curiosity added as much to his discomfort as the physical aches. Heavy boots tramped along the passage the next morning and stopped outside his cell. Out with you, the guard said as he swung the gate open. Aidan slowly extended his legs against the cramps. It was taking too long. The guard grabbed one of his ankles and dragged him out. On your feet! Time for your hearing! Uncoiling and stretching out was a slow process. The guard was stamping with impatience by the time Aidan was able to stand and shuffle along behind him. They took a few turns and entered a small, bare room, where two men waited. Dunn and Wildemar. The guard left and closed the door. What have you to say for yourself? Don asked, rising to his feet and filling the room with his annoyance. I... Mm, sorry, Aidan stammered. There was nobody in the buildings. I was afraid something terrible had happened. Yes, yes, we know that, Wildemar interrupted. His squirrely eyes snapped at Aidan and then darted around the room while busy fingers worked as they always did when he spoke. He swung back to Aidan and the words began to tumble out like discarded acorn shells. We would have done the same thing in your place. We are more disappointed with the others for sleeping in. The rule is a silly tradition made by tame men in puffy robes who wouldn't be able to find East an hour after sunrise. 
Your punishment is over. The thing that bothers us is how to skip your notice that you are being tailed. You have some remarkable abilities, and it is frankly disappointing to see that you are so easily followed. What can you say to that? Aidan was trying to stir his mind, but it resisted his efforts like porridge gone cold. He had not been able to follow the speed of Wildemar's tirade, but the part about being easily followed had stuck. I was concentrating on hiding from the guards ahead of me, he said. And you didn't look behind you once? No, I suppose I didn't. Wildemar's head twitched with feral vigor, and he muttered something potent under his breath, clearly disgusted. Dunn was grinning. Will you make that mistake again? No, never. Aidan spoke on behalf of every ache that racked his body. Good. Then I think this has been a worthwhile experience. As to the matter of what you overheard, the birds were making such a racket in the trees that you were barely able to determine the language being spoken, let alone the words. If we hear otherwise, you will be moving back into your little cell for a very long time. Understood? Aidan burned to ask about the archives, but the look in Dunn's eyes was not one to be trifled with. Yes, sir, he said dousing his curiosity and almost choking in the steam of internal protest. You had better get to the kitchen and put some food in you. I want you down in the training hall by the time we begin. Run! The session was undiluted suffering. Aidan stumbled through the exercises, accumulating a wide selection of bruises and giving none. He fell off every obstacle and collapsed under every load. The classes were worse. The wooden chairs were feather beds, and the lessons lullabies. His name was spoken in sharp tones by every subject master. Lyra looked worried when she saw him. The story had obviously spread the day before. Mistress Gilda was still in a dangerous mood after her encounter with Peashot Snake, so Liru kept pinching Aiden when she noticed him drifting off. During a lull in the class, she turned to Aiden. You know what's happening, she whispered. All the disturbance? You managed to overhear? I was told that I only heard birds chirping and couldn't understand a thing that was said. She looked at him with a frown that receded as she caught his meaning. It is a great pity, then, that you have not yet been taught to speak bird, she said, and dropped the topic. For the rest of the week, furious whispering ran like an infection through the academy. Everybody knew something. Drought, flood, plague, war, wild beasts, and increased taxes. But it soon became clear that nobody knew anything. At the end of the week... When it seemed they could take no more, the marshal's quadrant was informed. Dunn addressed the first-year boys in the dining hall and explained the situation of the border threats. Diplomacy, it appears, has failed us. Prince Burkhart has been in consultation with generals and senior marshals this past week and issued a series of steps we will be taking to fortify our defences. 
It has been deemed a good exercise that all apprentices should contribute to the proposed designs and strategies. As a result, the next few weeks will see you spending far longer with Master Skeet. Other classes will be reduced. Dunn left the hall, saying nothing about the Rangers, the Storm, or the Gellerak history and what it implied. Aidan clenched his teeth in frustration. Glancing across the room, he noticed Malik and Cade smiling at him, as though he were the punchline of some joke. He had seen it constantly throughout the week. They had been smearing him with every drop of humiliation they could squeeze from his stint in the rat cell. Between them, they had spread the word as far as they could, making him seem ridiculous to anyone who would listen, which was almost everyone Aiden knew. He had tried to ignore it, but the lingering exhaustion was making him snappish. Dropping his spoon, he straightened up and glared. They threw their heads back and laughed, along with several boys at their table. Malik stood, pulled the hair back on the side of his head, and held his ear out as if listening for something. Then he folded the ear down on itself, mimicking Aidan's, and pulled a face of mock misery as if the half-ear had made him deaf. The boys around him shouted with merriment. Aidan's temper flared. He grabbed his bowl and took aim at Malik's head. Just as he was about to release it, he felt a strong hand grip his wrist. He spun around and scowled at Hadley. You don't win like that, Aiden. Remember what Dunn taught us? Fear and rage can both make a man stupid. Malik wants you to... The sound of jeering laughter grew, and it pushed Aiden over the edge. He broke free of Hadley's arm and flung the bowl with all his might. It only brushed Malik's head, but sprayed several boys with porridge, reaping a storm of angry protests and three strokes of the cane, which did a lot better than brush him. That night, after Dunn had called an end to the study session, Aidan was easing himself into bed when Hadley walked over. You are playing his game, Aiden, he said, and you are going to lose. Shut up, Aiden said. He had no desire to be counseled or comforted. He just wanted to be left alone. Where was the value in misery when nobody would respect it? He wanted them to recognize the consuming bitterness of his young life, not festoon him with a string of cheap suggestions for brightening the scene. Don't be a cur. Just hear what I have to say. Hadley was never easily put out. Aidan made no response, so Hadley continued. Malik is going to carry on doing everything he can to make you hate yourself and this place. It's really obvious that he wants you out, and at this rate he is going to succeed. Are you trying to help him? Aidan asked, annoyed. No, I'm trying to help you, and you would see that if you just let me speak. Aidan grunted. My suggestion is that you start thinking. When you lose your temper, which you certainly know how to do, you lose your head as well. You have to find his weaknesses if you want to take him on, instead of just steaming up and exploding. What weaknesses has he got? The way he hates you. 
He would risk a lot to see you leave. Over-eager opponents always overextend. Don't you remember? Long after Hadley had retired, Aidan stared into the darkness, considering his friend's advice. Something did need to change. He was being baited like a dumb carp and beached every time he bit. Yet when he considered putting some vengeful plan into action, he felt no enthusiasm. He wanted to live for bigger things than that. More importantly, he did not want a war here, did not need an enduring enemy among his companions. He had known enough enemies in his life. If he succeeded in humiliating Malik, things would only step up a notch. He'd seen that happen with Emroy. And Malik was too cunning. He was never caught. The taunts were always too small to be considered a problem with any of the masters. But his own reactions were explosions. They would not go unpunished. That was when he began to understand. Malik's cunning was not the problem. It was his own stupidity. He was taking the bait while it was still insignificant. But if he ignored it, the bait would have to be increased in size. Perhaps enough to draw a master's attention. Yes, thought Aidan. That might work. Why get into a tangle with a tomcat, if there is a dog nearby? Chapter 25 When news of the border threat spilled across the other quadrants, the whole academy was set abuzz. Students skipped classes, ignored assignments, and gathered in clusters that hummed with a mixture of fear and excitement. Strict discipline was applied to restore a semblance of order, but the thrill of far-off danger had taken root. The first-year martial apprentices had spent three weeks under a shower of information on defense, and one week attempting to apply it. Building for defense was far more involved than they had expected. The detail was staggering, down to things like unsmoothed outer stone being preferable to smooth, because, for some reason that none of them had understood, it suffered less when being punished by catapults. They had submitted their first proposals for Castith's defense and were awaiting Skeet's feedback. The master marched into the class, slammed his books down on the desk, and snatched up a page of notes. Group one, he barked. You killed our whole city within a week because you walled us in from all water. Group two, most of us die outside the city because your barbican is so intricate and awkward that the crush of people and livestock creates a killing ground for more than half the population as they try to enter their own refuge. Group 3. Your huge, unmanned outer wall provides the enemy with complete protection from the catapults on your inner wall. Group 4. I... Told you that the maximum amount of sandstone that could be mined, shaped, and placed in five years was no more than a million tons. Granite gives you less than a quarter of that because mining and working it is so much slower. Even if I were to replace your granite with grindstone, you have designed a system of defenses that would take two hundred years to construct. Skeet dropped his page on the desk and glared. Think, boys, 
think. You need to consider the whole population and all its demands, its resources and limitations. Then you need to become the enemy and work out any possible way to get past your own walls and redesign accordingly. The greatest minds in Castith are working on this now. Try to consider what they may have overlooked. It would not be the first time a young mind has seen what an older one has not. The boys shuffled into their groups to lick their wounds and mend their plans. I told you the outer wall was going to be a problem with the catapults, if it's that far away, Aidan said to the four from his dorm. Let's start again. Hadley made the first suggestion. I say we dig a well this time. If we don't try to stretch the outer wall down to the river, we can broaden it and give it an allure. I thought walls were meant to repel, said Peashot. It means a walkway on top. How did you manage to doze in that class? Skeet was at his most dangerous. Commitment. If we're going to make the walls broader, said Lorimer, I want to tell us. That's the lower part of the wall that slopes outwards, Peashot. Makes walls harder to dismantle, upsets siege weapons and deflects whatever we drop. Shoots it out into the enemy. The small boy might have reacted to Lorimer's tone, but there was an inwardness about his eyes that suggested he had just learned something. Here's an idea, said Aidan. How about a moat on the inside? It would encourage the Fen soldiers to spend weeks tunnelling, only to get flooded at the end of their efforts. We could also use it to water livestock grazing between the walls. It would be like a long dam. Could put some fish in there, too. Might be useful in a siege. The others nodded. Sorry, Peashard, Lorimer said with a smirk. Livestock are the... I'll go shove a gizzard down your throat. The others grinned. An internal moat sounds good, said Hadley, though I'm not sure if keeping it a secret is practical. Even if they have spies to tell them, it would keep them from tunnelling, said Aidan. Tunnelling all the way through to our side, yes, but sappers only need to get the tunnel under the wall before they fire their supporting timbers and collapse everything, wall included. All right, so it won't stop sappers, but neither will an external moat, at least not for long. They would just fill in the section where they need to work. No. Wait. We can stop sappers. Wherever we see them digging, we could wall off and dry out a section of our internal moat, then dig a few tunnels of our own under the walls. And we could start right at the walls, not way back like they would have to. We could listen for where they are working, dig into their tunnel, release our moat, and flood them before they can set anything alight. Flooded tunnels would be useless if we kept them flooded. Then we push loads of sand and cement into the tunnels to make them solid again. Might be difficult to intercept, Hadley mused. How would you know which way to go when you're digging? I've seen lots of animals pinpoint burrowing prey. Maybe we could train dogs or badgers or something to point our men in the right direction. Interesting idea, said Vale. Everyone nodded. Something else that might help with this, said Vale. 
is some tensile strength to the wall's rubble core. Remember what Skeet taught us about the mortar we use? That it's only strong with compression? That's why the wall collapses when a big cavity is made underneath. It gets pulled apart, not pushed together. But what if we could combine stone and large tree trunks placed inside the wall? Enough wood might be able to hold the stones up over a cavity. Wood rots, said Lorimer. It would be strong well beyond our lifetime. It's the most practical option. Any kind of metal would set the weapon's production back. I think layered tree trunks, perhaps with all their branches, would provide decades of strength. Over time, walls could be rebuilt. Nobody was entirely comfortable with the idea of whole trees decaying inside their precious wall. But they could not fault Vale's reasoning, so it was added. If we have more stone to work with, said Lorimer, I'm for flanking towers with curtain walls. Round towers, Hadley added. They might take longer to build, but if we are going to put the moat on the inside, we'll need to strengthen the wall, and round towers are harder to undermine. How about overhanging turrets, then? Vale said. They use less stone. We could use the extra to thicken the wall or the talus. Hadley scratched out and scribbled as the ideas flowed. One central watchtower, said Lorimer. High, very high, say two hundred or three hundred feet, and small watchtowers with fire beacons on the six visible hills. Instead of wasting all that stone on such a high tower, said Peashot, why don't we just stand you on top of the keep? But what's the point, anyway, of making it so high if we have towers on the hills? Those watchtowers can be ambushed, and if there's low cloud, we might not be able to see them from the city. But then your high tower will also be useless if it's got its head lost in the clouds. Fine, then let's have a few circular platforms lower down on the tower, so it is both a high and a low... What do you call a place where you look for stuff? Vantage point, said Vale. Hadley added the note. How about we move our catapults to the outer wall? Lorimer said, leaning forward and looking like he was really starting to enjoy himself. Can't see why we didn't do that last time. We didn't do it last time, said Vale, because our wall was too thin to be manned. It's also a bad idea to put catapults on a wall that isn't strong and heavily defended, because if the enemy takes the wall, they just turn the catapults around and we get attacked with our own weapons. Oh, didn't think of that. We can do it now, though, said Aiden, seeing as we've used the extra stone to thicken it. Let's also create a slow zone over the approaching ground. The land around the walls is very flat, but it could be spoiled with mounds, ditches, and stakes pointing away from the city. It would be impossible to run across a field like that without stumbling and getting impaled, and it would slow the approach of assault towers. The slower their approach, the more time they give us to bombard them. How far out would the slow zone need to start? asked Hadley. Our sling catapults have a range of about 350 yards, maybe 400 with a good height. No, what is the word, Vale? Elevation. How about embankments? Peashot asked, clearly pleased at remembering something from the classes. We're going to be doing a lot of digging already, said Hadley. 
Let's put that in the post-critical stage. He sketched a rough, overall design, compiling the ideas and labelling the stages one to four. They all looked at the result, feeling rather pleased about it. All except Aiden. Something bothering you? Lorimer asked. I was just wondering about how many catapults we would need to build to cover all approaches. I was wondering if we could design a smaller supporting catapult, something that could be taken apart, carried off and reassembled quickly. That way we could set up hundreds of them where the attack falls. How about, said Peashot, sitting up with a jolt of confidence as he detected a subject he understood well, how about we soak the rocks for the catapults in blue or white stain so they're harder to spot against the sky? They laughed. It was just the sort of trick Peashot would come up with. That could work, said Aiden. Let's ask if we can test it. But have you noticed how rocks often plug and stop when they hit the soil? Here's another idea. Curved taluses and catapults that fire big discs directly down the walls the same way that you roll a wheel down a bank. He waited for them to get the picture. The problem is that a boulder stops, regardless of whether or not it has hit anything of the enemies. If we had massive, heavy discs rolling across the battlefield, they would have many opportunities to hit something. I like the idea of rolling discs, said Vale. But I'm not so sure how good it would be for the mortar in the walls, if we're going to be using them to direct every shot. How about firing them onto the battlefield, the way you roll a wheel from above your shoulder? He cut a disc of paper, perched it on his shoulder, and wrapped his hand over the top, then slowly illustrated the motion of throwing and spinning it so that it bit into the ground and rolled forward. What's happening here? Skeet demanded, marching up. Disintegrating into games, are we? No, sir, said Vale. Aiden had an idea to use discs instead of boulders and the catapults. I was trying to show how a disc could be hurled with spin so that it runs when it lands. Skeet's brow furrowed with contemplation. It's not a bad idea. We have more than enough giant pines to spare, and we could build saws to cut, but a disc is not stable. It will just tip and fall. Yes, said Aiden. But even if it only travels for fifty yards along the ground, that's fifty times better than a rock. We could also give it a broader reach if we put a spiky axle through it. Skeet nodded. The release is going to be the tricky bit, he said, mimicking the throwing action. This will not be so easily achieved with an unthinking machine, but it's a blazing good idea. He drifted into his own thoughts, moving his wrist and studying movements. Finally, he nodded. What else have you designed? Hadley showed him the rough sketch of their plans. Skeet asked one or two questions, but appeared satisfied with the responses. Your stages are faulty, he said, when they were finished. Your plans would leave us exposed for longer than we can afford. But your rolling discs and some of the wrong things you've done 
like trees in the wall and putting a moat on the inside to double as a reservoir. Interesting. Problematic, but interesting. Wait here. He snatched Hadley's rough sheet of paper and strode from the room, stopping in the doorway to address the class. You would do well to listen to this group's ideas, especially Aiden's new concept. This is the sort of thinking we need. Aiden tried to hide his smile. None of the other groups approached his. Each was clearly more intent on their own designs, but some attention was being directed his way. Over the past days, he had pointedly ignored Malik's escalating attempts to provoke another outburst. It looked like the pale antagonist was at it again. Several of the boys were now glancing between Aiden and a sheet of paper that Malik was busy with, their amusement growing. After a few moments, the page was held up for the class to see. It was a crude stick drawing. Aiden and enemy soldiers were written under the respective figures. The meaning did not take long to sink in. The figure of Aiden was removing a cowl from his head, and the enemy soldiers were running in fright. Boys burst out laughing. Cade and Wharton clapped Malik on the back. Aiden kept to his seat, but his breath came fast and his eyes were hot. None of the boys in his group were smiling. Peashot dug through his sleeves in vain. He had not yet replaced his favorite weapon. Hadley stood with an abruptness that caused his chair to skid backwards and fall over. Coming, he asked. Without waiting for an answer, he turned and headed for the back room. Peashot kicked his chair aside and ran to catch up. Lacking a projectile, he launched himself past Hadley and over the table at a very surprised Malik, hitting him square in the chest and knocking him to the ground. Cade aimed a kick at Peashot's side, and while poised on one leg, he made a soft target for Hadley's shoulder and went down easily, crashing into desks and chairs. Lorimer swung at Wharton, missed, and hit Kean instead. While Lorimer was apologizing, Wharton replied with a punch to the stomach that almost broke the tall boy in half. Wharton proceeded to kick Lorimer on the ground, and that was more than Kean could take. He grabbed Wharton's foot, hoisted it in the air and held it until the bigger boy slipped and fell to the ground with a thud. Vale stood at the edge with an air of philosophical abstraction as Malik and Peashot scuffled around on the floor trading blows, and Hadley and Cade wrestled for supremacy, knocking down chairs, tables, and careless boys in their struggle. Order! Skeet shouted bringing his cane down on a desk with a crack that brought all activity to a quivering stop. Explain yourselves! Peashot scrambled to his feet, snatched the drawing from Malik's desk and handed it to Skeet. The war master studied it. Your work, Malik? No, sir. And yet the handwriting is clearly yours. All you brawlers, line up outside. Every one of you. Now. The shrieks of wind and the meaty smacks of the cane made the boys in the class wince. Each combatant received two, 
Malik got another two for lying and two more for attempting to undermine a fellow student. His face wore a mixture of shock and rage as he hobbled back with small steps, his eyes stabbing in all directions. Aidan looked away. Skeet marched back inside. Marshals fighting amongst themselves is something this city cannot afford, he said. Next time it'll be more than a caning. Am I clear? The class mumbled that he was. Good. You're dismissed. Group three, stay behind. Aiden's group remained on their chairs. At least Aiden and Vale did. The others were half on and half off, looking none too comfortable. Skeet's voice was firm. Loyalty, I like. I am glad to find it among you. That is why you were given only two. The stupidity of rage-inspired fighting I do not like. That is why you were given two. Now that's enough of this. I have arranged for you to meet with the Academy's resource group this afternoon during the lunch break. I want you to explain your ideas to them. This is a privilege no junior students have ever been given, so do not embarrass me. During field surgery, the boys were subdued. The girls soon learned about the brawl. Aidan saw Malik busy sketching again, and as the class ended, there were giggles. Malik left a circle of girls crowding over the sheet of paper he had given them. As he walked by, he angled towards Aidan, brushing his shoulder as he passed. Aidan wanted to hit him. He wanted to run and hide from everyone who knew him. He noticed Liru walking up to the group. She took the page from a tall girl called Ilona, whose long hair fell to her shoulders in soft golden curls, and whose eyes caused most boys' voices to falter. Liru glanced at the page, looked at the girls, and tore it up. Savage, Ilona snapped. Yet you are the ones causing injury. Oh, you always have an answer for everything, don't you? Ilona swirled around and strode away, golden curls flowing out behind and fauners swarming around her. Liru grinned as she approached Aiden. Never mind them, she said. There's not a good wife among them. If you heard the way that Ilona talks when there's nobody to impress, you would rub manure in your hair just to make sure she would not take an interest in you. Look at me, Liru. Do you really think I need the manure? Yes. Dejected as he was feeling, Aiden couldn't help but smile at Liru's directness. I was thinking of making a drawing of Malik, she said. He will be standing on a field of battle, taking off his helm and showing his pale skin. The soldiers around will be dropping their weapons and offering him medicine. Aiden laughed. Sit with me she said, leading him to a bench in the sun. There are a lot of rumors surrounding you. Some of the girls enjoy rumors, but I prefer straight questions and answers. So I want to know what led you to Marshall's training. Aidan pulled off his shoes, sat back and closed his eyes, remembering his childhood ambitions and the tragedy that had led him to where he was. He began to tell her of his early interest in ranging through a forest that was meant to be forbidden.
his love of reading, especially stories of war, valor, sacrifice, and heroism, and then of the Lecran raid that had cut through his beloved hometown and taken his closest friend. At first I wanted to be a great soldier and commander, only for the adventure of it all. I thought I would be good with strategy, and that felt like enough of a reason. But when... when they took her, it became different. I want to bring justice to them like they have never known. I'm going to bring the sky down on that filthy island. I hope you make them suffer. I don't really want to bring pain, he said. I want to bring justice and stop the slave trade. I think you will succeed. There is fire in your heart. But maybe you should not try to deny your anger. I would happily bring them as much pain as they brought me. I would cover those islands with lecrin blood. Aidan was struck by Lyra's comfort with such violent sentiments. How different she was to Calorie. How have they hurt you? he asked. They took my sister. Her face betrayed no emotion, but her voice clinked with daggers. Oh, I had no idea. I'm sorry. The Lecran raids are why we left Naralas. My father is wealthy. He knew many important families in Castith, and he was able to purchase citizenship here. So then, you are at the Academy for a similar reason to me? To answer that, I would have to reveal what we are being trained for. Sorry, I didn't mean... I know, she said with a soft smile. Aidan wondered how such a small and delicate creature with such mild eyes could conceal such edged thoughts. A jolt passed through him and he flinched as a look of horror crossed his face. I meant to be at that meeting. I'm dead. Without another word, he bolted from the bench and flew down the corridors towards the central hall. Ah, here he is. About a hundred pairs of eyes were directed at Aidan as he stumbled, panting, through the back doors of the auditorium. His first glimpse of the roomy interior was enough to tell him that this was unlike any of the classrooms or lecture halls. From the carpeted floor, plush yellowwood panelling swept up the high walls and blended into a wide vault ceiling. Around the perimeter of the auditorium, hundreds of brass lamps shone against the portraits of fierce-looking past masters, probably now all dead. On the stage stood Master Skeet, looking very much alive and far fiercer than any of the portraits. Aidan trotted down an aisle between rows of tiered velvet seats to the carpeted stage. He took his place beside the other four boys who were giving him less than friendly looks. We have already covered the general defense structure, Skeet said. You have arrived just in time to explain the idea behind your catapult. Skeet's words were loud enough for everyone to hear. The message in his eyes was for Aidan only. It read, You impudent gnat. When this is over, I'm going to put you in a catapult and fire it down a mine shaft. He smiled as he stepped aside. 
Aiden was still breathing hard, so his explanation was less than persuasive. But after a while, he saw interest sparking in a few eyes. Then the objections began, and they were not voiced gently. It is not a practical idea, rumbled a big man in the front who spilled over his chair like a lounging bullfrog. The labor required to build suitable wheels would be excessive. That is why he used the word disc and not wheel, Skeet replied in a tone that made Aiden wonder if there was bad blood between these two. Sections of giant pines would be simple enough to cut if we rig a water-driven saw. They would cost us little, and we could build up a large supply very quickly. The big man said nothing. Aiden took it as a rude form of assent and looked away. There was something about the man's eyes he did not like. Would this require the building of new catapults? A smaller voice called from the back. Do we have the manpower for that? Skeet replied again. Modifications to existing catapults might allow them to cast either discs or traditional projectiles, but this would need to be tested. A few more questions were put and answered. The chief war councillors gathered at the front to confer, and after much discussion, the large, boorish man spoke up. Generally, we find that catapults are of minimal use against the smaller, mobile targets of the attacking force. But this is an idea that might change things. We would like to see if it works in practice, though I doubt it. So, we will commission a team to consult with you and construct a prototype, a modification of existing weapons, if possible. Some have shown an interest in the unconventional ideas that emerged earlier, and would like these boys to sit in at the next defense council. As we will be in the presence of the prince and other royalty, I recommend some tightening of manners. He swung his bulbous head towards Aiden. And formal attire. All stairs converged on Aidan's bare feet. If toes could blush, his would have lit the hall. We meet tonight at the palace. The royal guard will collect you at the academy entrance in four hours. If you do not know how to behave among royalty, you have four hours to learn. Chapter 26 the palace. Woohoo! My family will never believe this. Lorimer was hopping along the corridor in some wild, gangling parody of a victory dance. The others laughed as they followed. Are you going to get dressed this time, Aiden? They asked. Or are you considering going naked? What is it with you and shoes, anyway? said Hadley. It's like you actually enjoy the feeling of sand and soil between your toes. Don't you? No. It's not civilized. How can you like it? Back in Misty Vales, I had a friend who explained it with a poem. The hug of grass and the kiss of dew are greetings spoiled by the shoe. I changed her girly section about kissing to the squish of worms, which made the rhyme not work, but definitely improved the poem.
Anyway, the point we agreed on was that walking barefoot is like letting the ground hug your feet, and shoes should only be worn when absolutely necessary. Sounds like a nice girl, said Lorimer. Did you ever get kissed by her? Aidan's throat clenched, and he couldn't answer. Behind him, a furious whispering broke out, in which he heard the words, Stupid clod, dead, and forgot. He wondered how long the wound would take to close over. He sank onto his chair as he entered the dorm. A hand placed on his shoulder in passing was almost enough to make him cry. But he breathed, gathered himself, and pulled out his books. It would be best to lose himself while memorizing a few more details on defensive strategies. He could not afford to indulge misery, to live in the past, and stumble through life facing backwards. During the afternoon, they washed thoroughly and dressed in their best, cleanest clothes, then strolled across the lawns and waited at the main gate for the guards that would escort them to the keep. They say the princess is a stunner, said Peashot. They also say she's eighteen and twice as tall as you, Vale replied. I meant the younger one. The younger one is a boy. Oh, well, then I meant the older one. Five years is not so much. And anyway, I'll grow. Yes, I'm sure she thinks daily of a delinquent midget apprentice growing up to claim her hand ahead of all the nobles and princes of the realm. What could any of them possibly give that you don't have? Except titles, land, wealth and all that. You don't have any of those things lying around, do you? You're an idiot, Vale. What does delinquent mean? It means you. If anybody asks you to describe yourself, that's the word you want. Thanks, idiot. My pleasure. Elysian is pretty, though. But I've heard that the prince chops off the heads of men who stare at his sister. Peashot snorted. Here comes the guard, said Hadley. I think you'd better drop the princess talk. The prince's guard was a group of seven tall soldiers wearing full parade armor. Bloomed helms waved and red capes billowed as they marched down the road, each step ringing out with a clash of steel. They drew up at the heavy iron gate outside the academy, where the captain of the guard summoned the five boys by name and scrutinized them. His eyes indicated just the right amount of professional disapproval. You are to be escorted to the keep. Remain between the head and the rear guard. With that, he and two flanking soldiers turned and began to march back towards the keep. The boys scuttled after them, not so much in fear of being left behind as of being stamped on by the rear guard crashing at their heels. The procession drew more than a few curious faces as it marched between groups of gossips and idlers, strolling parties and couples, all enjoying the lingering afternoon rays that streamed down the west-facing roads. The walls of the keep rose before the boys, dark and stern. As they approached, the gates swung open, and heavily armed sentries stood aside to allow the procession through. The courtyard was bigger than they had expected. 
an assortment of soldiers and servants hurried about, finishing their duties for the day, or beginning their duties for the night, or possibly just looking busy to avoid being given additional duties. The palace stood at the end of the courtyard, and though they had all gazed up at it through the gate, it appeared far bigger now. The building rose perhaps a hundred and fifty feet above them. Aidan noticed how the lowest doors were all eight feet above the ground with stairs leading up to them, stairs that could theoretically be destroyed when under threat. But where the stairs should have been made from wood, these were of polished granite. Clearly, there was a conflict of values here. The apprentices were handed over to a royal porter, whose face hung from his skull like drooping clay, and whose eyes registered neither welcome nor hostility. In fact, if it were not for the treachery of blinking eyelids, the unfocused gaze might have belonged to a corpse. Aidan had heard of this kind of thing. Many important servants considered an appearance of bored efficiency, void of interest or powers of observation, to be safest. With grave indifference, the porter led them up the stairs and into an airy vestibule of the keep. The windows here should have been no more than angled slits, allowing arrows to be shot out in almost any direction and light to enter from almost none. But again, the design ideals had apparently been flung away, and much larger windows cut into the stone walls. The boys were led past guards, through a hall and up a wide marble stairway bordered with alabaster statues, all resplendent in royal robes. They climbed five stories before the porter turned. He led them into a wide passage so lavishly decorated it made Aidan feel uncomfortable. The windows faced west, admitting bright shafts of bronzed light that glowed off the opposing wall. They passed several grand archways and large rooms, before stopping outside a decorated oak door at the end of the passage, where the dead-faced porter knocked. The spy latch was opened. An eye inspected them, a bolt slid, and the door was swung open. They filed into a spacious room, richly carpeted and decorated with all manner of maps, sketches of weapons, and diagrams of fortresses. On the western and southern walls were large windows, a strangely unwarlike feature for a room dedicated to the purpose of war strategy, but the commanding view gave it some justification. Light from the windows fell on two dozen men sitting at a long table that ran the length of the room. Aidan recognized some of the faces. Osric, Skeet, and Balfour, the dandified mayor who was still festooned with chains and rings. Aidan knew he was meant to bow to the prince, but because nobody in the room was dressed in any sort of royal outfit and all heads were crownless, he had no idea whom to acknowledge. Bow to your prince, boys, said Skeet. Aidan glanced desperately across at Peashot for some clue, but the smaller boy shrugged. In a kind of disorganized arrangement, they all bowed, each aiming in a different direction. Vale, at the back, was the only one to get it right. The room fell silent. Boys, 
Do you intend to humiliate me? Skeet said. Here is your prince. Do you not recognize him? Sorry, sir, Hadley replied. Sorry, your highness. We have only ever seen you from the backs of crowds. We would only recognize you by those big prince clothes and the crown. Though Hadley did not exactly say it, there was in fact nothing remarkable about Prince Burkhardt, except for a general appearance of softness. A neatly arranged crop of mousy hair framed a round face with browned cheeks, eyes that held more humor than command, and a surprisingly red nose, looking as if it had been struck by a heavy bottle, or the contents. Aidan wondered if that was perhaps the young ruler's means of escaping the strains of leadership. The prince laughed, stepping out from the others and dissolving the tension in the room. That's all right. I have no love of big clothes or heavy metal hats. I suppose I look rather like the squire of one of these gentlemen here, all of whom probably appear a lot more commanding than I. Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. Your Highness. Prince Burkhardt clapped his hands and laughed again. Quite right. Your candor would make you abysmal in matters of court policy, for none of us may say what we really think. But let's get to the reason for your presence here. You came up with some interesting ideas in that last design of yours. While we are not convinced that they would work, we admire the boldness, something that qualified strategists will tend to place beneath caution— perhaps to the detriment of their plans. Even if your thoughts do no more than shake us from rutted thinking, it will be well worth the exercise. The ideas of thirteen- and fourteen-year-old boys have never been heard in this room before, but the present exigency calls for unusual measures and creative approaches. The internal moat, the rolling discs, and the die. Crafty one, that are all fresh ideas, and those are most welcome here. The dies we will certainly attempt, as it will cost us little. The angle of the sun will probably play a strong role in their success. The moat does give us some interesting possibilities. An external moat would need to be at full depth all the way round, before a siege begins. There might not be time for that in our case. But if it is behind a protective wall, it could be partitioned off, drained and deepened in a section where tunneling is taking place, then flooded again in preparation for the tunnel's arrival. The rolling disks are interesting, especially on the downward slopes where they could roll at speed for a mile or more. On the level, however, we feel that they would not travel any great distance before collapsing and might not be that difficult to avoid. We will still build a prototype and see what happens. Soaked in oil and set alight, they would prove devastating if they could reach an enemy camp. As you can see, we place a high value on original concepts. So now that you know what we think of your ideas, we would like you to see if you can spot the flaws in ours. Before you look at the plans, I want to make two things clear. Firstly, if you speak of any of these things outside this room, you will all be built into the foundations of the outer wall. He smiled, 
but his brows were raised in a way that assured the boys this was not a joke. Secondly, there is to be no polite deference. If you observe a flaw, you speak of it. You have been brought here because of your original perspectives. It is your duty to voice them. Now, let's get to it. Five chairs stood open at the center of the long table, and the boys were invited to take their places before the large map unfurled there. As Aidan settled into a plush velvet chair, he decided that he liked this prince. Burkhart struck him as an open and upfront man, someone with whom he would always know his ground. He shifted the chair up and focused on the map, eager to say something that might win the prince's approval. The drawing was complicated, and the annotations numerous, but the work was so neat that things became quickly clear. Trying to concentrate under the weighty eyes of the city's war council was not easy. Lorimer, if he was absorbing anything, gave no evidence of it and fidgeted constantly. Aidan was the first to speak. Is this a tunnel? he asked, pointing to lines that led from the outer wall to a small fortified hill. Yes, Burkhart replied, hovering over the map. Leaving that hill to an enemy is not an option, as it gives an excellent prospect for catapulting the city. It is a ghastly shortfall of the original city plan. Fortifying and holding the hill is a necessity. It will also give us an excellent means of guarding our own eastern wall, forcing an enemy to take the sloping ground on the northern, western, and southern aspects. Do you see a problem? Wouldn't they suspect a tunnel? And if they drew a line between the two structures and looked for the way plants grow differently after the soil has been disturbed, especially if it's dug from the top, then wouldn't they be able to sink a shaft and enter our own tunnel? entering both the city and hill fortress. That is why there are very heavy iron doors on either side, said the prince. Passwords would be required to get in. Aidan nodded and tried to hide his frown. Speak, young man. You dislike the idea? You have a better one? Well, I was just thinking that if the tunnel was breached, the Hill Fortress would not last as long without supplies and reinforcements. I was wondering if we could use the first tunnel as a trap and dig a second one in secret, one that maybe wanders off to the side before coming back to the fortress, so they would never guess where to dig. Osric and Skeet exchanged a quiet grin. The reactions in the room ranged from amusement to shock. Some of the men had pages in front of them and began drawing. Osric spoke up. If a tunnel entry were attempted, there would most certainly be senior officers in the party. We could have the decoy tunnel enter the city and open into a large hall that has no exits except in the roof. A prison. False doors and racks of equipment could be installed to allay suspicion, when they have gathered a good force in the hall and begin hacking at the false doors, granite slabs could be dropped in place, sealing the tunnel as effectively as the wall. We would have a fine catch of useful prisoners. The idea caught fire, and a dozen discussions broke out. The prince smiled and turned to the boys. What else? 
Keyshot indicated a spot outside the north wall. This is where I would build catapults if I were attacking. It's the most level, and it would be out of range of the hill fortress. It would make a good camp, too. Why don't we use it as a dump site for the next few years? The prince threw his head back and laughed. The rest of the meeting progressed with the same informal tone, and Burkhardt continued to speak to the boys more as a brother than as royalty. But something had begun to gnaw at Aidan's ease. Would he and his friends really be allowed to leave the castle, carrying secrets of such weight after being warned with no more than a wagging finger? He had read of tunnels that had been kept secret by holding the diggers on site until the work was done, and then thanking and murdering them. But as he watched Burkhart exchanging a joke with Skeet, he did not think this prince would be capable of even blackening someone's eye. He was all laughter and goodwill, though he did not appear to be all concentration. The man flounced about the room, exchanging a joke here and a story there. He would get distracted by something outside the window, then suddenly remember himself and rush back to the map with a furrowed brow, urging everyone to focus themselves. The fresh perspectives had unlocked a whole cascade of ideas, and old warlords brimmed with new plans. The urgency of the situation rendered many of the traditional time-consuming methods inappropriate. So tradition was relinquishing ground to innovation. The meeting was not quite done when everyone's attention was drawn away from the maps and plans. Something very unusual was happening in the sky. Men clustered at the windows as clouds began to weave themselves into peculiar arrangements. It almost looked as though they were alive. The room grew very quiet. I wish to see this from the turret, said Burkhardt. Anyone who desires to join me is welcome. He rushed to the back of the room and sprang up a circular stairway. Osric and Skeet followed, but the rest stayed at the windows. Aidan looked unenthusiastically at the remaining company and headed for the stairs, followed by the other apprentices. The turret had an outer walkway, large enough to accommodate them easily. The only trouble was that the battlement was high, even the lowered crenels. Aidan was on his toes, and Peashot had to climb up and rest on his belly and elbows. Out to the west, the plains were still awash in the last rays of a sinking sun, but as the clouds started to gather over the Pelamine Mountains, the impossible happened. The solid thunderheads peeled away, their tops seemingly torn off by some mighty wind, and where there should have been the pale blue of afternoon, stars appeared with astonishing brightness and gleamed through the deep, dark sapphire of night. The wind died down, and silence took hold of the earth and sky. Aidan was gripping the stone wall so hard his fingers had lost their color. Lorimer whined softly. In the street below, citizens crouched against the walls. Dogs scampered this way and that, not knowing where to run until they shrank and cowered in alleys. Flocks of birds descended on the roofs huddling and making themselves small. 
All watched. All waited. The stillness burst apart with a roar. It was a sound like thunder, only deeper, bigger, and fuller, like a voice, yet unlike any earthly voice. It was as if the sky itself had spoken. The rumbling shook the stones of the palace, as if it were no more than a mound of bark and leaves. Everyone clutched the walls, and Lorimer shrank down into a corner. Peashot fell from his perch and stayed on the ground. Everything fell silent again. But it was a silence that waited. To speak would have been wrong for a reason none could have explained, but all understood. The clouds lit up and a bolt of lightning fell onto the Pelamines. But just as Aiden had once seen it do over Nimlis, the shaft of light did not flicker and vanish. It latched and began to glow seeming to pour fiery gold into the depths of the granite mountain. As quickly as it had appeared, the golden bolt was gone. A deep boom rolled over the city, causing the land to shudder once more. Before the rumblings had died away, the wind picked up again, and that deep silence was ended. Clouds broke into fragments, scattering, as the rift in the sky closed, and the stars were covered over by the pale hues of late afternoon. It was some time before the prince recovered himself enough to unlatch his hands from the battlements and walk silently back down the stairs. The others followed, but Aidan hung back. His face was pale, and his voice was full of jumps and jolts as he called Hadley. Did you... Hear something in that first peal of thunder. What do you mean? Aiden began to reply, but then changed his mind. Never mind, he said. We'd better get down there. He led the way, but soon wished he hadn't, because he was trembling so violently he had to match his feet on every step, like a small child or an old man. Eventually, they reached the council room. Well, the prince was saying, I must confess that I had doubted the ranger's reports, but there's no doubting what we've just witnessed. Is there anyone who can venture an explanation? Blank looks faced him, many still tinged with fear. There is one man who might be able to offer an explanation, said Balfour. Ah, him. Yes. I suppose I would have to listen to the answer in the original Gellerak. I am well aware of the theories Culver put forward, and I will not pretend to be impressed by them. Today's event will certainly send him right back to his archives. But for now, we need to appease the masses quickly and simply. I know there is little love in this room for diviners, but perhaps they are worth hearing on the matter. They'll have explanations, no doubt, grumbled Osric. But how can we endorse them? Do any of us believe the answer to what we just saw is going to be found while poking through the entrails of a goat? As if the beast ate the explanation to the mystery. What's just happened was something... something... Real? Skeet offered. Exactly. 
Osric slapped the varnished wood before him with his open hand. The table shuddered to its gums as if struck by a logger's axe. These diviners thrive on mystery because, as long as there's no evidence, they can't be challenged. Our people deserve something better in answer to what we just saw. The prince smiled. Your straight talk would make you an awful politician, Osric. And no, I do not mean that as a compliment. There were a few polite chuckles. The collective thoughts of the masses are volatile and need to be managed carefully. If diviners are a means of appeasement, then they work for the good of all. Osric shook his head. How can we, at the same time, appease the masses with walls we trust and religious guidance we don't, that we actually deem untrue? Ah, Osric, you are fixed on this idea of absolute truth. But do we possess it? And even if we did, would people want it? How many of our people worship a lump of metal that's been shaped a bit, or some invented deity? In every sense, these are created gods, even down to their supposed instructions and blessings. If you were able to point people to a real god, I suspect a lot of them would prefer their own creations. Easier to control, less likely to make demands. No, Osric, our people wouldn't love you if you addressed them with this unsubtle candor. Osric said nothing, but Aidan knew that he did not agree. The prince was looking for what was expedient, while Osric wanted what was right. Burkhardt turned to the group. I shall have to make some announcement to allay concerns, else we'll have a week of panic, looting, and slothfulness. Let us resume tomorrow. Pages were collected, and maps rolled up as the men gathered their things and began to head for the door. Aidan saw Osric leave, and was about to follow him when the prince stepped in his way. I'd like you and your friends to wait behind, Burkhardt said. Aidan paled. His fears rushed back. In the books he had read, it always started with being asked to remain behind. Chapter 27 When the room had emptied, the prince spoke with a voice that held none of its earlier cheerfulness. Before you leave, he said, Ganevant, the first counselor, my right-hand man, would like to speak with you. As he turned to go, his soft cheeks attempted a parting smile, but his eyes avoided theirs. Ganavant lumbered forward. He was not the tallest of men, yet he carried an impression of bewildering largeness, thick limbs, belly like a wheat sack, flabby neck, and swollen head with huge, bulging eyes. His stare was heavy and direct, and he wore no smile. Aidan remembered him now the rude and strangely disturbing man from the meeting at the academy. This counsellor had made his presence felt during the recent meeting, too. Those unsettling eyes had slid from one person to the next, never vacant, always calculating. He addressed them now in a voice that had a dark, flabby resonance. 
As you may have guessed, he began, walking out of here after what you have seen on the table today is not a right you can claim. I have made some arrangements. Jorla awaits us. Tishak mouthed the word, Who? to which four pairs of shoulders were raised. Aidan was worried now. The prince, he thought, might not be capable of brutal measures, but this gurgling bullfrog of a counselor was something else. They made their way down one level, then took a corridor that led them past a series of small galleries and halls. In one of them, Aidan thought he glimpsed the girls from their field surgery class, the young queen's envoys, seated at a long table bedecked with silver cutlery, fine crystal, and strange foods that were not immediately recognizable. What's that a bath of seaweed on the counter? Peashot whispered. Silence! Gallivant bawled in his deep, chesty voice. They reached a stairway and descended several flights until a service door discharged them into a large courtyard. The two guards saluted the counselor, who made no response. Ganavant led the way across polished flagstones to a plain, squat building where sentries scurried to unlock a heavy gate. Inside, the room was bare, except for a dark flight of stairs descending into the ground. Aidan held his breath, and Peashot lifted his shirt over his nose. The smell of putrefaction and filth was thick enough to make them cough and it grew worse as they began to descend. At the third landing, Ganavant lifted a torch from an iron ring and walked ahead of them, down a low corridor that became more putrid with each step. Defiant squeaks and the patter of unseen paws filled the air, while little bodies brushed and tails slithered across the boy's ankles. Lorimer seemed to be going wild as he frantically dodged and kicked out into the darting, nipping shadows. For once, Aidan was relieved to be wearing shoes. He noticed that low doors were passing by, and started hearing faint moans in response to the group's footfalls. The dungeons. They were in the royal dungeons. Every horror story of wrongful imprisonment and slow death came back to him as they walked further into the darkness. With every step, his dread increased, and he tried to ready his mind for a desperate escape. Ganavant was not going to trick him into a cell while standing at the entrance. They stopped before a wooden door stained by centuries of dank air and slow rot. Ganavant pushed it open and led them inside, where he held his torch against a larger one mounted on the wall. The light was not generous, nor clean. The flames shed an unwholesome red glare as they bobbed and danced with demented ecstasy. Aidan hovered at the entrance before following the others in. As the room lit up, he felt his legs weaken. He turned to the door just in time to see it slam. Planning on leaving so soon, said Ganavant. You have yet to meet your host. Boys, meet Jorla. What was left of Jorla filled several buckets, covered some of the floor, and sagged from a number of hooks and spikes. When Aidan looked back at Ganavant, 
It was with horror. Jorla, the counselor continued without emotion, was entrusted with secrets that had the potential to endanger our entire city. He betrayed us. For the safety of all, it was necessary that he reveal the extent of his betrayal. The only way to ensure he was holding nothing back was through torture. His remains will not be buried, but fed to pigs. Such is the punishment for high treason. He turned his bulging eyes on them. Do I need to harbor any concern that you might leak what you have been shown? The assurances of silence could not have been more earnest. You are never to speak of these plans to anyone but the members of the War Council. You do not even speak amongst yourselves, or you can be overheard. Remember that anyone you tell will be subject to the same punishment. Do you apprehend your position? Five trembling voices answered that they did indeed. Ganavant led them back through the passage, up the stairs, and out into daylight. A large unit of soldiers waited outside. Ganavant nodded to the captain and left without another word. The boys walked between the soldiers in a kind of stupor, as they were led around the side of the palace. They had to traverse the gardens to reach the gate. On the way, they were spotted by a group of women dressed with all the magnificence of royal taste. A strikingly tall and graceful woman stepped away from the group. As she approached, there was more than one gasp. It's her, Vale whispered. It's Princess Elysian. Five young hearts almost leapt from their moorings as she smiled and beckoned them to approach. Unlike her elder brother, she was not afraid to wear the garments of royalty. She stood wrapped in deep blue fabrics, layered and delicate as the wings of a giant butterfly, and crowning her dark locks was a circlet of gold. When they reached her, they bowed, this time without any confusion. I am Elysian, she said, and you must be the exceptional young apprentices I've heard so much about. We are apprentices, Hadley said, when it appeared she was waiting for an answer. But I'm not sure we are exceptional. We were just asked here to... He froze. Aidan looked at him with horror as Ganavant's words and images from the dungeon hung before them again. Yes? Nothing, Your Highness. We are just apprentices. That's all. Her brows knitted, as if she were slightly hurt, and she studied Hadley with thoughtful blue eyes that Aidan suddenly realized could be spellbinding. He fixed his gaze on the floor. I know you are at the War Council, she said. You are not required to keep secrets from me. Surely you know that. Won't you tell me one of your ideas? Ideas so interesting that they have caused apprentices to be brought to the palace? Heads dropped. Toes squirmed within shoes. Lorimer tugged at his ear. I'm 
Sorry, your highness, Hadley said at last. We promised that we would not talk about such things to anyone but the War Council. You can't possibly think that I was excluded from that circle. Come now. What I ask is not unreasonable. Would you offend me? The boys writhed. Aidan wondered how annoyed Hadley was that he'd been left to do the talking. We don't want to offend you, Highness, but we would be sent to the dungeon if we were to mention those things, even to each other. I'm sorry. Look at me, all of you, she said, and now her voice held a note that transformed the butterfly into something more like a dragonfly. Is that your final answer? Each of the boys nodded and apologized. She pouted, and then smiled. I see you are boys of rigid principles. Very well, I'll not be offended. In fact, I think I like you the better for it. Let us be friends. Aidan wasn't really sure if it was a question or an instruction. Apparently the others were equally uncertain. Not knowing what to do with it, they said nothing, and looked embarrassed. What is your name? she asked, straightening, rising to her full height, and addressing the only boy now on her level. Lo, Lorimer, ma'am. Miss, your highness, sorry. She smiled, and Lorimer blushed, fidgeted again with his ear, and managed to show a few teeth through a misshapen, quivering grin. Highness is unfortunately a good description of me, she said, I am unhappily taller than most of the men in this city, but I'm glad to see that you will probably overtake me. Lorimer, you shall have to learn to dance. With a wink, she turned and left, a butterfly again, gliding back over the lawn to the other ladies, while Peashot and Hadley whispered a few envious taunts at the full blushing Lorimer. Aidan thought he saw her making a sign to the captain of the guard, most of the soldiers turned and left. Only two remained to escort them back to the academy. He understood, with a horrible chill, that they had just been tested, and that the large group of soldiers had been waiting to carry them into detainment. All was not as it seemed at this palace. He was only too eager to leave. He began to wonder about Prince Burkhardt whether his first impression had been entirely accurate. The prince had shown them nothing but warmth and laughter, but it must have been by his instruction that Ganavant had threatened them and Alician had tested them. Apparently the prince was a man who preferred to be seen as a cheery leader, spilling sunlight while having other hands do his darker work. His argument with Osric came back to Aidan's mind. He remembered the prince's lack of respect for truth, and it began to seem a far more worrying thing than it had at the time. He decided to keep the thoughts to himself. Revealing them would prove dangerous, and there was something else on his mind. As he lay awake, long into the night, he still shook beneath the remembered power of the storm. The others had heard only thunder, but Aidan had heard more. A voice and it had spoken. Deep 
as the shuddering growl of a waterfall, yet clearer than the ring of crystal. The voice had spoken his name. Chapter 28 The days were growing warmer. Changing seasons did nothing to dim the memory of the storm, but as the weeks passed, Aidan began to wonder if he had truly heard a voice, or if his imagination, awakened by the impossible sights, had lent a hand. Yet, when he drifted towards skepticism, there was a strange discomfort, a whisper at the back of his thoughts that he could not entirely hush. It insisted that not only had the voice been real, but that he would hear it again and it caused his chest to hammer out the rhythm of emotions he couldn't even begin to understand. Aidan went as often as he could to see his mother, who was looking more settled and had begun assisting at a nearby scrivener's office. She was always delighted and proud to see her growing son. Harriet compensated for that by being even more bullheaded and domineering than before. She had given birth, and her young child did not seem to have tired her or diminished her enthusiasm for interfering in Aidan's life. Still, there was no news of Clawman. Aidan's doubts about his father's character refused to wane. It was those doubts that held him fast whenever he considered making inquiries. He decided it would be safest to wait for news, though he hoped it would not be too long a wait. On his free days, he would often find himself wandering alone in a forest, or sitting atop a windy hill. Sometimes he waited on a plain, while heavy clouds drove in from the west, and the old familiar song of the rainbird filled the air with anticipation, and his heart with memories of the misty veils. First the wind would rumble in the distance like an approaching river. Then he would see grass bend, pressed by a great invisible hand. The dull rumble would rise in pitch to a swishing, lashing exultation, causing stalks to lie flat against the ground, while the tougher branches of shrubs held themselves up and shrieked their defiance in the gusts. Then the first drops, cold and heavy, would plummet from the sky and burst on the ground. Aidan could not have held the smile in if he tried. He would pull his oilskin over his head, and let the deluge press down and wash over him until the drops spent themselves, thinned, resolved into a fine haze, and painted a rainbow across a dripping sky. On these solitary outings, he always carried the leather case with the design of the oak sapling and the toadstool, and though he often took it out and stared at it, he couldn't muster the courage to look inside. Often he turned towards the west, towards Lekrau, and reminded himself of his purpose. Yet there were moments when he considered the enormity of what opposed him, when he wondered if he was not being completely unrealistic. And he wondered, even if he could bring justice to Lekrau, would it truly bring him peace? But he dreaded that lost feeling of purposeless existence. Any purpose, he thought, was better than none. And what better, more noble purpose could he possibly find than, as Osric had put it, felling the oppressor? To this end, 
Aidan trained harder than any of them. When the others moaned about a particularly strenuous challenge, he saw it as an opportunity to increase his strength, and increase it he did. His injuries, while they still gave him a little stiffness after a heavy day, no longer held him back. Often he would be the first to complete the courses Don and Wildemar set. If any kind of woodsmanship was involved, none of the others were even close. The boys now jogged regularly to the tree-mantled hills and exercised the various ranging skills they were learning. Using ropes for safety, they climbed many of the rocky faces, scaled the city walls, and traversed sections of forest without touching the ground. In good weather, they swam across the dam once a week. In bad weather, twice. The daily routine had grown more demanding, but they now managed it, if not quite effortlessly, at least without that cloying exhaustion. Even those who had additional literacy classes were beginning to get a hold on things. The sessions with Dunn always included duels as individuals, in pairs, and in groups. Sometimes they fought with weapons, but often without. Dunn taught them many ways to defeat opponents using crafty, sudden movements and always using whatever the environment offered. At first he made them fight at half speed to nurture the habit of thinking. Repeatedly, he would stop a fight and ask why someone had not swung the rope lying at his feet, kicked the sand in which he stood, or pushed over the line of barrels instead of treating them with timid respect. Thank, boys, thank. I cannot do it for you. They began to move more quickly, to hit harder and with fluid ease, and above all, to think. Aidan's imaginative love of strategy was finding an interesting outlet. Since his humiliation during the first challenge, he had never again engaged in any form of combat without thinking it through, and he was finding that he could not only match the others, but better them. He came up with the strangest ideas, and seemed to draw them from some inexhaustible supply. Once, when facing Wharton with blunted training spear and shield, he slipped off his boots drawing odd looks, then lobbed his spear high into the air so that it arced just beneath the ceiling and fell towards his opponent. Wharton followed the trajectory, along with everyone else, snorted at the stupidity of the decision, and stepped forward, allowing the spear to drop behind him. He watched it clatter to the floor, and looked around just in time to catch Aidan's shoulder full in the chest. Bare feet had enabled a soundless charge while everyone was looking at the ceiling. Wharton was rammed and borne to the ground. The tricks were never repeated, and they worked more often than not. Hadley was the strongest and best balanced, Peashot the slipperiest. Second to Aidan, Peashot was the one everyone most dreaded fighting. Malik often fought dirty, ignoring the limits that had been imposed. Many of the boys let it pass, too intimidated to object, but nobody in Aidan's dorm cared a whit for Malik's high standing. They took great pleasure repaying each dirty blow with another, until he reined himself in. One morning, Dunn told them of a regiment that had escaped an enemy prison without tools or weapons, and been unable to survive the journey home. He vowed he would allow no such incompetence within the ranks of marshals 
So the boys began learning how to make tools and weapons from what their garments and nature provided. They began with a class in which they used sharp rocks to cut slings from the material of their shirts, though for the exercise they didn't actually use their own shirts. Scrap cloth was provided. They practiced with their slings and with better-made leather versions until they were able to hit a rabbit-sized target at twenty paces with reasonable consistency. Some who had not used slings before proved dangerous at first. Mistiming their releases, they launched stones in any and every direction, even backwards. There was more than one injury before the skill was mastered. From there, they moved on to batons, clubs, and quarterstaves. Wildemar took them through the forests, where they found and prepared their own quarterstaves from the trees. Oak, blackthorn, or hawthorn were his favored woods. In Castith, the quarterstaves were normally harvested by coppicing, cutting a tree low to its base, resulting in straight or slightly curved shoots. But this resource was denied the apprentices, and the subsequent hunt for straight branches did much to develop their eyes. Wildemar showed them how to heat bend wood directly over a fire, by wedging one end of the heated staff in a forked tree and leaning against the other, they were able to straighten even a very crooked branch. Spears were next. When it came to bows, however, it was time for the specialists. Everyone knew how to find a hopeful-looking branch and string it, but as Dunn had stressed, in some terrains a man could wait a week for a long shot at a buck, and a poor bow could mean his own starvation. It's time for you to see a true bowyer at work. Peashot raised his hand. A what? A bowyer is a bowmaker. For the first time, I have managed to convince Torville, the most sought-after bowyer in Castith, perhaps in all of Thurna, to give you a demonstration. It will be... difficult for him. He sounded hesitant, like someone struggling with delicate information. Aidan wondered what Don was not telling them. I will not be there, Dunn resumed. Master Wildemar will take you, so I'm warning you now. Don't give Torvel cause to grieve his decision. Streets were still dark and empty, but for a few carts. Farmers trundling goods into market, store owners setting up for the morning's business, and travelers stealing a march on the day. Wildemar, with his apprentices surging behind him, crossed the city to a large workshop alongside the main timber yard. The workshop was airy and quiet. Dozens of workbenches cluttered with tools awaited the bowyers who were just beginning to drift in and take their places. Peashot kept to the front, eager eyes consuming every detail. The smells of sap, resin, and wood shavings were alluring. Some of the sweet woods like maple were almost appetizing. For Aidan, it brought back memories of forts and treehouses, and of one unforgettable autumn when everyone at Badgerfields got involved building the new hay barn in the West Field. With a sigh, he drew himself back into the present. Wildemar led them to a workbench at the end of the building, where a man was seated, waiting. This would have to be the legendary Torvald. He was an elderly man, who Aidan decided was unmarried, 
for no wife would have allowed him out in such mismatched, tatty clothes. He had a narrow rim of grey hair, a heavy, bulging brow, huge gorilla arms, and a surprisingly meek expression. Aidan was at first surprised, then shocked. Archery's great Torville actually looked afraid. The boys recognized his kind immediately, the kind that would be eaten alive if put in charge of a classroom, and their confidence surged forward to dominate the space vacated by his. Fortunately, Wildemar remained with the group. Cade asked in his biggest voice if Torval had been a military archer. Torval's eyes dropped and he shook his head. Wildemar stuttered and mumbled and wasn't sure where to look. The response left everyone puzzled. After a lengthy and awkward silence, in which Wildemar waited for Torval to assume command and Torval quietly studied a spot between his mismatched shoes, Wildemar coughed and proceeded to rush through an unprepared introduction. He presented the two most commonly used bows in Castith, longbows that were plain, tall, and sturdy, and flatbows with powerful broad limbs that were thinned along the belly. He then fetched something from a rack that did not look like a bow at all. The short limbs were curled in on each other like the legs of a dead spider. This is one our bowyers have been experimenting with, he explained. Lekrau was the first nation to start it. Small composite of different woods. See the belly? Strips of deer horn. Stronger in compression. On the back, sinew. Stronger in tension. He surprised everyone when he strung it, a tricky business that required half sitting on the bow, by bending the limbs that looked to be the wrong way, against the original arc. The result was a tight little bow that vaguely resembled some of the recurved flat bows though the curves were far deeper. Impressive power, these little weapons, but they tend to break easily, too easily. Crack snap, gone. Don't think we have the glue right yet. Helped us improve our other bows, though. He pulled down a strongly arched wooden bow from a long rack. Sinew backed, he said, pointing to the semi-transparent layer. Increases draw weight and makes the recoil faster, much faster. Improves the lifespan, too. Someone want to try it? Peashot sprang from the group before the question was out. The length and weight of the draw were too much for him, but he succeeded in plugging an arrow very near the center of the target. Torva's face lit up with surprise and pleasure. Screaming fine shot, said Wildemar. Didn't expect someone your size to manage it. Here, try the composite. Might suit you better. Heshot's eyes were glowing as he took the little bow. He sighted before drawing, pulled the string, and pushed forward into the handle. Crack! The bow split, and the arrow spun away and clattered to ground. Oh, said Wildemar. Uh, sorry, Torville. Very sorry. Torville retrieved the bow gently from Peashot, holding it as someone might cradle a child. Some of the boys laughed. Torville winced at the sound and turned away to hide his broken creation behind a rack of saws and files. Wildemar was equally uncomfortable, looking like he wanted to dart off and hide at the end of a high branch until the embarrassment had worn off. 
Fingers worked and face twitched, but he managed to gather himself and began tossing out little pips of information on the bow-making process, beginning with wood selection. You, elm, and hickory, he considered ideal, if they could be found, while other woods like maple, walnut, and fruit trees like plum, apple, or mulberry would also produce good bows. He showed them how to test any wood by bending a thin branch and watching whether it snapped back into place or returned with more of a ponderous lethargy. Torval sat without looking up, nodding occasionally. Aidan was beginning to wonder what the legendary boyer was going to contribute to the class when Wildemar's store of information ran empty and he looked across at Torval and asked if he would demonstrate the full construction of a survival bow. A hunting flat bow, if possible, from branch to weapon in a single day. Torval mumbled something to Wildemar, who relayed the message, a request for a volunteer. Peashot jumped forward. Torval, without explaining what he was doing, measured the reach of Peashot's arm with a marked cord, doubled this and added a few inches. Then he rose to his feet. The boys went very quiet, and Aidan understood why the man could never have been in the military. Torvald kept his eyes down as he began to move away, struggling for each step. His legs were bent, not just a little bandy, but completely deformed, as if they had been strapped around a barrel through his childhood and forced to set in wide, looping arches. As powerful and capable as his arms were, so misshapen and useless were his legs. He had to throw his weight from side to side, weaving forward in a tottering, stumping gait. The initial silence was broken by something worse. Malik started it. A cold, sniggering amusement that was taken up by his friends and bootlickers. Wildemar called for silence, but he could not undo the insult that continued to ring in everyone's ears. Though he had taken no part in it, Aidan still felt ashamed. When the crippled boyer made his tottering way back, he did not raise his head, though he had the strength in his arms to thrash the lot of them with a few strokes of the young maple trunk he now carried, and sat down quietly and began to work. The trunk was about four inches in diameter. He sawed it to the length he had just measured and split it down the middle. Choosing the side free of knots, he used a draw knife to strip off the bark and cambium along the back until it showed a single, undamaged growth ring. Then he began to tiller the limbs. The heavy-armed bowyer hunched over his work, lost, or perhaps taking shelter, in the rhythm of the draw knife. It fell to Wildemar to explain what was taking place. Usually, he said, Torval would dry the wood very slowly, tiller little bits off in stages, especially with longbows. Drying hardens wood. Tillering is thinning the limbs. Balancing them is important. Very important. Can take years. But what he's demonstrating is a hasty bow for a survival situation. The bow will be weaker, might crack slightly from forced drying. Should still deliver a good shot, though. After chipping out the rough shape of limbs and handle with a small axe, deliberately avoiding the back of the bow, 
the side facing the target, he placed the stave over a bed of coals and left it to dry. Vale raised his hand. Yes, said Wildemar. How likely are we to be carrying axes, draw knives, and all these other tools if we are in a survival situation? Wildemar looked at Torville. The boys looked at Torville. Torville looked at his shoes. Do... Uh, do you... Uh, think, asked Wildemar, the high branch calling him again, that you could possibly show them with... without using specialized tools? Maybe only a small hunting knife? And still finish in a day? Possibly? The boyar did not raise his eyes. He lurched and stumped over to the coals, picked up the stave and placed it in a corner. Then he left the room. Wildemar twitched, eyes darting everywhere except at the boys' inquiring faces. Nobody knew what to do. It had obviously been too bold a request. Peashot glared at Vale. Then Torville walked back into the room with a second bow swinging under his arm, this one about two inches thick. In his other hand was a small rock. Without a word, he took up a stick instead of his measuring cord, motioned for Peashot to step forward, repeated the measurement, and marked the bow. His voice barely over a whisper, he turned to Wildemar. Would you like me to use one of their knives? he asked. Before Wildemar had a chance to reply, Peashot slipped his knife out the sheath and handed it over. From behind him, Aidan heard someone make a scathing comment. The monkey bowmaker about to embarrass himself. He felt a sudden pang. Why would Torval risk it? He could simply say it was not possible, and nobody would think any less of him. But by subjecting himself to absurd challenges like this, he was inviting further ridicule. How was he going to make a flat bow in a single day without tools? There was a reason why little knives were not used to chop branches or split firewood. By this time the workshop had filled with boyers, and the general noise of sawing, chopping, and filing provided a blanket for murmured conversation. Wildemar noticed, of course, but did not interfere. Aidan listened to what was developing. It was a bet. Malik, never short of money, was offering three to one that the bow would not be completed by sunset, or that it would break. Cade was writing down names and amounts. North boy, Malik whispered, frightened to bet against me. Aidan glanced back at the quiet craftsman hunched over his work. He looked old, beaten down, friendless. The way he studied the wood with such hopeful intensity, as if he had nothing in the world apart from his craft, tugged at Aiden. He suddenly wanted the quietly courageous man to succeed in front of these sneering boys, wanted it dreadfully. Thought so, beggar boy, said Malik, misreading the silence. Aiden swung back at him. Ten coppers says he does it. Malik's eyes narrowed. You actually have ten huddies? You have two chims and six, 
A smirk stole over Malik's face. Cade filled in the bet. Aiden had never owned ten copper hoodies in his life. At this point, he had only one, maybe somewhere, possibly under his bed or behind his desk. If he lost the wager, it would mean asking Osric for help, and that would not go well. Osric's opinions on gambling were nothing short of volcanic. If Osric refused to help, Aiden's surge of boldness began to melt into a sticky worry. What had he done? If the bow failed, there would be a noose around his neck, and he had just given Malik the rope. But he could not back out now. He turned to watch the bowyer with an interest that quickly became feverish. What was that about? Hadley asked. I bet. A few coppers? That he would fail? That he would succeed? What? How much? Aiden hesitated. Ten. You bet ten hoodies that he would finish. Are you mad? He was slow with tools. How was he even going to cut through the wood to begin with? It will take him two weeks to whittle out the basic shape. Hadley raised and dropped his hands while staring at Aiden and shaking his head. Aiden writhed. He had no reply. They both turned to watch the bowyer, who, as yet, had not made any progress. Torval's brows were pinched together, an expression of bear-like simplicity, as he peered from the knife to the bow and back again. Aiden groaned, wishing again that he had not been such a fool. After what seemed an age of short-sighted squinting, Torval reached for the knife, held it in one hand, and picked up a rock in the other. Using the knife edge as a broad chisel, he tapped on the back with the rock, cutting an angled incision into the wood all the way round, as a beaver works through a tree trunk. It was slower than a saw, but quicker than Aiden had expected. It allowed him the slightest tingle of desperate hope. Wildemar, having calmed his nervous fidgets again, explained that this wood was mulberry, not as hard as maple, but very supple, and a lot easier to work with, an important consideration given the lack of tools. When the section was cut, Torval knocked the blade into the end of the beam. By hammering the back of the projecting tip and pulling on the handle, he managed to work his way down prying the sections of wood apart until he reached the area marked as the handle. He then chiseled the long flap of wood off and repeated the procedure on the other side. The rough layout of the bow was clear now. Then he did something Aiden would not have thought of. After sharpening the knife on the stone, he knocked the tip into a short, sturdy branch and used the resulting tool as a kind of rough draw knife. With the handle in one hand and the attached branch in the other, he was able to pull the blade along the length of the wood, slicing off long shavings that fluttered to the ground. This was clearly something that had not been seen before in the workshop, because a few of the other bowyers left their benches and drifted over to witness the unusual operation. One of them tapped Hadley on the shoulder wanting to know why Torval was not using tools. 
Hadley explained, and more than one of the men nodded his surprise and approval at the old man's creativity. Once happy with the shape, Torvald set the bow over the coals to dry. Do you want me to make the string, too? he asked Wildemar in a quiet voice. Aidan held his breath. He had forgotten about this part. Before Wildemar could answer, Malik spoke up in his aloof tones, now oiled with false courtesy. Master Wildemar, we would really appreciate being shown the whole process. The request had nothing to do with understanding the process. All the boys knew it. In the rush of whispered complaints from those who had bet against Malik, the bowyer lurched away and returned with an enormous thorny leaf. Aidan had seen these leaves on a type of large, succulent plant growing in the area. Torval used his rock to bash the heavy leaf into wet, fleshy fibers, which he then separated and hung up to dry behind the stave, just as lunch was served. Seeing how quickly the hours had slipped away caused Aidan's stomach to knot. He could only swallow only a few bites of flatbread dipped in his potato and leek soup. His appetite wasn't improved by the slight pang he felt whenever he glanced at the far corner where Torval, separate from the groups of younger craftsmen, was hunkered down over his meal alone. The wooden bowls were gathered up, and everyone hurried back to their places. After turning the bow that was suspended over the coals and leaving it to bake a while longer, Torval collected the now-dry leaf fibers and separated them into strands, hanging them over the bench in front of him. Beginning with three strands, he knotted them together at the ends, then started the tedious process of reverse twisting, in which one strand is twisted and then looped over the other two in the reverse direction. His fingers moved slowly at first, but then they sped up until he had done almost two feet. One of the strands was growing short. He took another from the bench, twisted it into the first and continued as before, adding to the strands one at a time, as needed. Within an hour, the string was complete, a tight, pale green weave that looked surprisingly neat and strong. He coiled and placed it on the table, then collected the stave. It had lost much of its weight while drying, Wildemar explained, and would be a lot harder. Torval sharpened the knife again and began to tiller the limbs from the belly side, carefully weakening them until he was able to bend the bow over his knee. The limbs were broad, too broad for a handle, so he trimmed the center section until it was a comfortable fit for a small hand then chiseled out a rough arrow shelf. The apprentices were drawing into two groups, one excited and daring to hope, the other still cynical, yet not as confident anymore, as they saw the bow materialize under the edge of the little knife. This time, when the bowyer pushed himself onto his bent legs and hobbled to the fire, there were no whispers of mocking laughter. He held one of the limbs above the flames, as if slow roasting it. The boys had seen this when straightening quarterstaves. Torville kept touching the wood, and when it was too hot for his finger to remain on the surface, 
He slipped the end of the stave into a gap between bricks and bent it, holding it in place until it cooled. He looked down the length, heated and bent it again, and examined it with a grunt of satisfaction. Aidan could see from where he was that a mild crook in the wood had been completely removed. The string would now track down the middle. Torva then repeated the heat-bending process, this time giving the bow a gentle recurve, pointing the ends of the limbs away from the archer. Much better recoil, Wildemar explained. Tension in the room grew as the sun passed its zenith and began the downward journey. Lively chatter became loud, and Wildemar was compelled to hush the apprentices several times. But now, the other bowyers in the room had got wind of the bet and seemed to have arranged some bets of their own. One by one they gathered around, ringing the old man as he settled at his bench to carve notches at the tips of the limbs. Need to make a natural tillering stick, he mumbled to Wildemar, and stepped through the wall of onlookers to a pile of timber where he rummaged around and withdrew a stout, forked branch. He brought it back and nailed it vertically into his workbench. Then used the knife and rock to chip half a dozen grooves across the branch, starting about six inches below the fork and going down about two and a half feet. Wildemar, after conferring with Torval, explained to the class that the bowyer had set up the branch to mimic a standing sapling or a stick wedged into the ground. Torval placed the bow's handle in the fork pulled the string down a few times, and hooked it into the first groove. Aidan cringed with horror. The curvature of the bow was so uneven that the whole thing was lopsided. It looked ridiculous. He heard sniggers from behind. Words drifted out. Pathetic. Crooked. Can't shoot that. Not a real bow. Using a piece of charcoal, Torval marked the rigid sections of both limbs, took the bow down and began thinning the belly in those areas with his same branch and handle draw knife. The next time he set the bow on the tillering stick, it looked much better. Aidan released his breath. After several stages of this, the bow was bending evenly and smoothly, but the wood itself was far from smooth. With a rough sandstone rock, he began to file the jagged sections until there were no protruding splinters. He motioned to Wildemar, who leaned in, and after a few hushed words, the master relayed the information. Better results if you make a paste of blackberries or some other dye. White wood can be conspicuous for hunting. Fur twisted into the string will help silence it too. Reduce the chance of your quarry flinching before the arrow covers the distance. Aidan wished they would spend less time on these useful tips and just get on with it. The afternoon rays were slanting ominously when Torval started on the arrow, beginning with a slightly bent stick which he straightened over the fire. He bound a sharp stone to the tip and glued it in place using heated pine resin mixed with a little charcoal dust. Wildemar mentioned a few other simple glues that could be made from various saps or pounded from bulbs. Torvald sliced a knock in the back end of the arrow and faint grooves a little forward. Into these grooves, 
he fixed three trimmed feathers using more pine resin and a fine thread from the original string fibers. It was surprising just how neat and precise the great sausage fingers could be. His face was intent as he mumbled again, pointing and motioning with his hands. Wildemar turned and explained that the feathers selected were from the same side of the bird, producing arrow rotation. Aiden blew out his breath noisily and stamped. This time-wasting obsession with trifling details was pushing him, and all those who had betted with him, to exasperation. They glanced constantly out the window. The sun appeared to have lost its grip in the sky and begun plummeting to earth. Aiden had never seen it drop this fast. Wait till you make your own arrows, Wildemar said with a feral grin. Bet or no bet, shoddy fletching, you may as well forget the bow and throw a stick. By this stage, there was not a craftsman to be found at his bench. The entire workshop had gathered around, those at the back standing on chairs. The atmosphere was like the boiling hubbub preceding a fight or race. It seemed everyone was in on the wager. Torval was squinting and fiddling with some little thread behind the feathers. He frowned, obviously dissatisfied. Then he pulled the thread off, tossed it away, and began afresh with another. Aidan dropped his head in his hands. There were several exclamations of dismay, not all of them from the boys. The crimson sun fell lower and lower. They could actually see it move as it began to fall behind the roofs outside. But Torville was lost in his world, apparently unaware of any need for haste, as he carefully rewound the thread. Then he tied it off, nodded, and placed the arrow on the bench. Aidan looked up with a start. It was done! The last gleam of red was fading from the wall. He turned to Malik and pushed out his chin. That was the easy part, Malik said with a tone that was almost sympathetic. It has to shoot. It breaks. You lose. All talk was hushed as the bowyer looked up at Peashot and nodded. Peashot stepped forward, taking the bow. The bowyer's attention was complete, his eyes young and eager. Aidan dreaded another snap dreaded what it would do to the big man. He dreaded it even more than the difficulty he himself would face. Malik and Cade moved to the front. They would want to see if anything cracked or failed. Aidan was breathing fast. Hope and fear wrestled in him as Peashot walked to his position and the arc of spectators gathered around. Aidan was near the front, and he saw with alarm that there was a slight hairline crack in the handle. Wildemar had said that forced drying could have that result. All he could do was hope. Everyone held their breaths as Peashot lined up. He placed his feet, rested the arrow in the shelf, knocked it, and gripped the string. He took a deep breath, raised the bow, drew back, leaned into the handle, and hesitated. Aidan wanted to scream for him to release. The wood creaked under the strain as the little boy steadied his aim. Every eye was wide, every mouth open. Peashot's arm grew still. Then 
A noise split the breathless tension in the room as he released the string and it snapped away from his fingers. The arrow hissed through the air, flew straight, and thudded into the target. The room erupted in wild shouts and cheers. Torvald smiled a shy smile, while his fellow craftsmen gathered around, clasped his arm, and thumped him on the back. Coins began to slide from hands and clinked into others. Torvald refused to accept the bow when Peashot tried to hand it over. It was made for you, he said, handing it back along with the borrowed knife. The small boy's confusion was all too obvious as he stuttered. But I... but... Ada knew what the trouble was, understood the torment. He watched. When the attention shifted elsewhere, Peashot sidled around the back of Torvald's workbench. With a moment so slight, so well covered as to be almost invisible, he slipped a fletching clamp from his pocket and placed it where it had been before the lunch break. Aidan chuckled. Peashot caught the look and scowled in return. Before leaving, Wildemar thanked Torvald for sharing his remarkable knowledge with the apprentices. The old boyer studied his shoes, grimaced through the speech directed at him, and merely nodded when it was done. Wish we could have given him more than that, Aidan said to Peashot, as Wildemar finished off and led the way out. They looked back and watched Torvald cleaning his bench and replacing his tools with infinite care. The other craftsman had left the building, and he was alone again. Peashot stopped then ran back inside. He drew up in front of the workbench where he placed his knife and sheath, nodded to the boyer, and returned to the departing group. The last sight they had was of the silent man smiling as he held the little knife in front of him. Words of appreciation were not close to his heart, but this was something he did understand. Malik paid all his debts but one. He and Kate insisted that Aidan had pulled out of the wager. Of course, the bootlickers had witnessed it, too. Hadley was even angrier than Aidan. If it had not been for Dunn's looming presence, there would have been a fight to rattle the walls and make the previous one look like a polite discussion. Peashot let his tongue loose within Matron Rosalie's field of surveillance and found himself on kitchen duty that evening. That same evening, Malik found himself eating a decomposed toad buried in his stew. Peashot was given a caning from Don, and hero's welcome from everyone back at the dorm. Over the next five days, the boys worked with the assistance of several bowyers to imitate the demonstration they had been given, first with tools and then with only their knives. They came to a full appreciation of Torval's skill, and discovered just how many ways there were to ruin and break a sturdy piece of wood. After they had each produced something resembling a bow, Wildemar set them loose in the forests. Not everyone had paid attention to the wood selection process. As a result, some fine-looking bows were produced using soft, unspringy woods, from which eager arrows dribbled only a little further than a boy could spit. Some tried to bypass the drying and tillering processes, 
scoffing at the talk of hand shock. Aidan was one such. His first bow was made of such a thin branch that it would have endangered nothing more than a mouse at close range. So for his next attempt, he used a much thicker branch. The first shot almost gave him concussion. The bow, still heavy with sap, delivered bone-rattling jolts, contributing nothing to accuracy and much to headaches. Annoyed, he tracked Kian down in a woody valley and got some help starting over. Most of the early results were less than spectacular, but enough, perhaps, to maim a very small, short-sighted and deaf antelope from a few paces downwind. Ideally, not much wind. But over the weeks, the bows improved, and some, like Keon's and Peashot's, were weapons to be respected. Wildemar revised the string-making technique that Torval had demonstrated, and introduced them to other natural fibers like flax and nettles. He then went on to rawhide and gut strings, which required less labor but more drying time. Sinew strings were the most difficult to make. Tendons had to be dried and pounded until they'd separated into fibers which could be twisted together. One of the useful advantages with sinew was the way it could be soaked into strands that dried with their own natural glue. The different kind of strings which could be combined to form rope were useful for more than bows, so the apprentices spent several classes learning the techniques. As the range and power of survival bows did not always stand up to larger prey, Wildemar demonstrated how to make many poisons, poisons which were sometimes used in war. He led the boys through the riverbeds, plains and forests, where he ferreted about, saying nothing and noticing everything, until he had found what he was after. He started with a large tree, known as the quarter-mile tree. Anything poisoned with its sap would collapse within a quarter-mile. To the larvae of a spotty beetle that looked much like a toadstool on legs. When extracting and applying the poisons, Wildemar was very clear about never letting them onto the tips or edges of the arrow for fear of the hunter scratching himself. Very dangerous, very, very dangerous, he chattered. No antidote for any of these poisons except for the hermit rose. Some of them are slow, though. Can take five days to drop your prey. The beetle larvae is the slowest, so only use it if you can't find anything else. It will give you many days hard tracking before you catch your meal. Won't the meat be poisoning of you? Kian asked. No, no, not from eating. These poisons don't kill when swallowed. All the same, cut out the area where the arrow struck. Burn the meat. Might have broken skin on your lips or in your mouth. Not worth the chance. Dead marshals are no good. After two months of this, Dunn, with Wildemar fidgeting nearby, gathered the boys and banished them from the city for a week, allowing them no equipment but their knives. They had to prepare sensible, concealed shelters, make weapons, hunt and feed themselves. Wildemar would find them and assess the survival skills. Dunn would meet them on their return and assess the weapons. Some of the boys grumbled and looked like they were about to protest. Dunn told them that the following year they would not be allowed knives, and that the next person who muttered would not be allowed clothes. 
Aidan took to the hills like a gazelle set loose. He had a rough idea of where the others might go, and chose a different direction, setting a course where even Wildemar would struggle to find him. He laid a false trail up a dry, rocky riverbed, and then doubled back through a section of dense woodland, climbing from tree to tree. When he finally dropped to the ground, there wasn't a footprint within half a mile. He scouted a little further and found an overhang that could be inconspicuously protected by bending and not breaking a branch from a nearby tree, so the leaves would not dry out and draw attention. The plan worked better than he had expected. He placed a few snares with string twisted from nettles, and after eight or nine days he began to feel bloated with rabbit and quite lonely. Eventually, he abandoned the exercise and wandered back to the city, where Wildemar was only too happy to see him alive, and gave him full marks for survival skills. It was a good thing, because Dunn drove a splinter deep into his hand while examining Aidan's crooked bow. A rough specimen that had been heated and bent so many times, it looked like an overdone steak. Shot like one, too. It was disappointing. Aidan had held such bright hopes for the bow, cutting it from an oak branch, swaying high in the air, and almost falling to his death in the process. Dunn frowned. Did you manage to kill anything with this? he asked. Almost, said Aidan, grinning slightly. Chapter 29 there's a room we need to explore. Spoons lowered, and five sets of eyes looked across at Aiden, the usual four, and Keen's. Over the past few weeks, Aiden had been feeling, as he had so often done back in the north, that it was time for his friends to share an adventure. He was still convinced that adventures were the only real forges of true friendship. What is it? Where is it? asked Hadley. Will it get us in trouble? Lorimer whispered. It's down a corridor I discovered last night. There's another level under the training hall. The stairways are always locked, but there's a collapsed section of the floor that hasn't been repaired and you can climb down. Don't you sleep at night? Vale interrupted. Sometimes I get the adventuring fidgets at night, and it's been too hot to sleep lately. It's nice and cool down below. Anyway, as I was saying, there's this huge black door made of some kind of metal that looks so heavy I would have to use all my weight to open it a crack. Whatever is in there is going to be worth seeing, and yes, of course it will get us in trouble. If we are stupid enough to get caught. Wouldn't be worth exploring otherwise. I'm out, said Lorimer. In, said Hadley and Peashot. Vale and Kian looked at each other, unsure. How will we get in? Vale asked. Well, I know the door has to be opened sometimes, because I saw the scrape grooves on the floor had bits of grindings in them. Maybe they use it during the day when we are busy. But I know the cleaners work at night. They never lock themselves into a room when they are busy. If we can find the night when they are there, I'm sure we'll be able to get a good look. Just need to keep quiet. They don't notice things very well. 
If they let the cleaners in there, it can't be that much of a secret. The cleaners I've seen on the lower sections are different. I think they are more like curators or inspectors. Don't know if they actually do any cleaning. I'm sure they know the biggest secrets out of everyone. If you are sure that it's open, I'll go, said Vale. But I'm not dragging myself all the way and risking a misbehavior charge for a locked door. Fine. I'll check it tomorrow, said Aiden. The following night, they were all waiting up for him when he returned to the room. Locked, he said, throwing down a coil of rope and falling into bed. The same thing happened the next night. And the next. Eventually, the others stopped waiting up, which made the shock all the more when Aiden burst into the room, puffing. It's open, he called through the darkness in a hoarse whisper, and it doesn't look like there's anyone there. There were a series of yawns and confused questions from various points, and then some very strange words from a sleep-talking Lorimer who began to spill a few dreaming thoughts over the edge of his slumber, something about third helpings of beautiful stew. Do you think we should wake him? Peashot asked. He'll say no, Bale reminded them. Better than having him complain that we left him out, said Aidan, shaking Lorimer from his gourmet dreams and getting ready to deliver a customized version of his usual pre-adventure speech. What? Where? Ha? Who? Lorimer, wake up. The secret room's open. We're going. Bale is off to fetch Kean. If you don't come, you'll spend the rest of your life regretting it and wondering about what you might have found and it will drive you crazy and make you wish you hadn't been such a coward, and all the girls who hear you that just— All right, all right, just let me find my boots. In the display room, they didn't bother with the ramp or attempt the slippery statue Aidan had used earlier. Instead, they hoisted Lorimer up on their shoulders and then climbed a short rope he lowered for them. After the hours they had spent in the training hall, this was a simple feat. Aidan made sure everyone was properly awake before proceeding down the treacherous stairs. They all carried their dark lanterns unlit, except for Aidan, who kept his trimmed low, so the group moved in near blackness and in silence, disrupted only by the brushing of cloth and the slapping of Lorimer's big feet. Can't you put those things down more softly? Peashot whispered. What things? Clack, clack, clack. Your boots. You sound like you've got hammers strapped to your ankles. Why didn't you come barefoot? Aiden's barefoot. Aiden's mad. Have you tried... Hush, you two, said Aiden. I think I see... The light peeping from under an entrance ahead suddenly burst out and flooded a section of the passage as the door swung open. Aiden snapped the shutter closed on his lantern and crouched against the wall as the others dropped down behind him. Two cleaners with mops and buckets stepped into the passage. Aidan prepared to run as he watched their movements. While one of the men held the lamp, the other struggled with a key in the lock, dividing his concentration between what he was doing and saying. But like I says, Mick, them folks that lives out east is gonna have a rough time if it's true. We got our walls and our army. What they got? Bunch of wooden fences and hay forks. 
I'm telling you like I've told you before. You get her a nice job here in the city, and she can stay with my sister until you've got enough to get married. Don't you be leaving her out there with these whispers of a fen invasion. You won't be able to turn the days back if it happens. In the silence that followed, the lock in the door finally yielded with a rusty scrape and a click. The second cleaner handed over the broom he'd been holding, and to Aidan's relief, the men turned away and headed further down the passage while the conversation resumed. She already moved last year from Imnoa. Slavers pretending to be merchants from Tullin Row hit the town, she says. Hit it bad. Now, she says, the further east, the better. By this stage, the talk was all echoes, too indistinct to follow. The cleaners unlocked another door in the distance, stepped inside and closed it behind them, dropping the passage into blackness. Aidan opened his lamp and moved off, the others following. Clack, clack, clack. They hurried along, passing the door to the weapons and training halls, and continued until they reached a split. I've never been here, said Peashot. The others echoed him and wanted to know how far the passages went. This is only the beginning, said Aidan. I think there's more under the ground of the academy than above it. He took the left turn. After fifty yards they reached another split and turned left again. Even in the dim light it was clear that this passage was different, older. The pale stone that had lined the walls had given way to coarse-grained reddish blocks that were roughly placed. The smooth flagstones were gone, and they walked now on uneven blocks that had deep and sometimes wide fissures between them. It wasn't long before Lorimer caught his toe and swooped to ground with a crunch of his lantern. It was a good thing it wasn't lit because oil gushed out over the blocks and soaked most of his shirt. Haven't you learned to lift your feet over uneven ground? Peashot complained while helping Lorimer up. I was keeping them low to be stealthy, so you would stop yakking about the noise. It didn't work. Quiet, Aidan hissed. There are night staff in this section too. They moved on. The air was colder here, the walls closer, and there was a forgotten smell of earth and damp and darkness. A few doors were set in the walls, deeply recessed. The wood was black with age, as if all color had been leached from it during the long, silent years. Hadley whistled quietly. It's enormous down here. We must be near the edge of the academy by now. I don't think we're under the academy anymore, said Aidan. I have a hunch some of these passages might lead as far as the city walls, maybe even beyond. He stopped at a doorway on his right that turned out to be a very narrow corridor. Better light your lanterns now, he said. Using a splint, they transferred his flame to the other wicks. When all but Lorimer had a lantern, Aidan handed the tall boy his, then moved into the dark opening, asking Lorimer to hold the light up behind him. Careful here, he whispered. Watch the ground. It's collapsed in places. Keep your feet to the outside. Is he mad? Vale asked as Aidan scuttled away down the shaft. Took you a while to notice, Lorimer mumbled. 
Aiden stopped a few feet before an iron grill that barred the way. Well? Hadley asked, when he came to a stop. Aiden leaned to the side so Hadley could see, and pointed ahead at the floor, or rather, he pointed to where the floor should have been. A black void swallowed the ground. There was nothing to step on, no way to proceed. But we can't. Aiden had braced his back against one wall and his feet against the other, and had started edging his way down through the hole into the darkness beneath. Hadley leaned forward as far as he dared and held out his lamp. It was twenty feet down to another tiny passage, only that the lower one had a floor. He made no comment, simply copied Aiden. Lorimer and Vale had a different reaction. They exchanged thoughts freely, and several words drifted down, mostly colourful variants of idiotic, irresponsible, and insane. It was a while before Lorimer, breathing hard, lamp handle clasped in his teeth and spit dribbling off his chin, touched the ground. Aidan noticed Lorimer's oil-soaked shirt, eager inches from the flame. How is this supposed to be fun? Lorimer growled. This way, Aidan replied, grabbing his lantern and moving off in the direction they had been going when the grill above had blocked the way. They came to an ancient wooden door, partly eaten by time. It was not locked, and Aidan pushed it open with a feeble creak. After looking left and right, he whispered, There's nobody here. Come on. He led the way down another blocky passage, this one unexpectedly wide and high. It almost felt like stepping outdoors until the gathering lanterns provided enough light to reveal the ceiling and far wall. The paving stones showed evidence of recent heavy use. They were dirty, scraped and well-trodden, rather than dusty. The boys set out again, passing a number of archways on both sides, and finally turned into a huge alcove that ended before a giant door. Aidan had not exaggerated. The black double door was as wide and high as the passage itself. Obviously, it held something important. The metal looked thick enough to scoff at battering rams. A man could pick any tool and spend a month hacking at panels like these without success. This was a door nobody could force. And it was open. Just a crack. Aidan put his ear to the crack and listened. What can you hear? Lorimer whispered pressing forward. You, what do you expect? Go breathe somewhere else. Oh, ah, uh, right. They waited. I think it's empty, Aiden said. Whoever was in here must have forgotten to lock. This is even better than I'd hoped. Could have gone to fetch something, Vale pointed out. Been gone a long time for that. I don't think anyone is coming back tonight. Here, help me with the door. Hadley added his weight, and the two of them heaved the great door back enough to allow them in. Their lanterns illuminated a large room whose high walls were shelved and hung with what looked like woodwork tools, but some of them were strange indeed. Funny place to put a carpentry workshop, 
Aiden said. Vale was inspecting the shelves. I don't think these belong to carpenters. These are shipwrights' tools. Shipwrights? Who builds boats underground? Vale wasn't listening. He was walking to the end of the workshop. But now the others saw that it wasn't the end. There was no wall here, and a lot of hollow darkness lay beyond. Following Vale, they passed under a great arch and, after a few paces, came to a standstill on a balcony. Surrounding them were giant swinging platforms suspended from levered beams and wide ramps that led down, far down. As they hastily snapped open the shutters on their lanterns, greedy for more light, none could hold back the gasps. The space was cavernous. The ceiling rose high overhead, but the floor dropped away even further, at least a hundred feet. And before them, looking as out of place as a beached whale, and far more intimidating, was a ship of such gigantic proportions that it completely dominated everything else. Even with all their lanterns open, the far end of the hull extended away into a thick, dusty gloom. Aidan stared. He'd never been to the coast and had only seen small boats on rivers and lakes. This monstrous vessel that reached almost up to the balcony was beyond anything he had imagined. He noticed now that the assembly was not complete. The entire structure was surrounded by braces, scaffolds, and supports. A large section towards the middle consisted of little more than skeletal braces, but the forward portion looked finished, and it was simply terrifying. No grand figurehead graced the prow. Instead, a thirty-foot trunk-like ram tipped with black metal thrust out from the keel. He had read of such things, but never seen them in their stark and vicious horror. High above it, ballistae and catapults were fixed on the broad deck, and the bullocks looked as solid as the battlements on a castle wall. This was no ship. It was a fortress. But admiration of the immense craft and the pride he felt for a city's strength turned to confusion. Why do we have a dry dock in Castith, hundreds of miles from the sea, he said. And why build a ship underground? How would we get it out? Bale, your father is a shipping merchant. Do you know? It's not being built, said Vale. Look at the beams. Most are damaged. All have seen weather. The keel is shattered. This ship is a wreck that is being rebuilt. What for? To study it, I would think. That's probably why it's here, to make sure it isn't discovered and destroyed along with all its secrets. Look at the hull. It's not like our ships at all. See the three sharp angles going from the deck to the keel, instead of the gentle curve we use? Hard chined, I think it's called. Allows the boat to carry more weight and reach higher speeds. The ram looks hinged. Clever. A punctured ship won't pull this one down, even if they don't separate. And can you see the lines of portholes running along the hull? Rowers. 
Must have been a few hundred. Sail and oar. This thing would have been fast, and it's as big as a mountain. Wait. Bale put a finger to his lips, as he often did when deep in thought. I know this ship. We heard rumors of it down in Port Breckley about five years ago. I was just a child, but I remember it now. They called it a monster of the ocean. My father was convinced it never existed, but this must be it. The Vremdrak, I think. Supposed to be the most devastating warship ever built. This would have been the king of the sea. Only the sea itself would have been able to sink it. Must have got caught on a lee shore. The rowers, Aidan began. His voice changed. Would they have been sailors, or slaves, said Vale. Aidan was quiet. His face was twitching. What nation built this ship? What nation? Who do you think? Only one nation can build ships like this. Lekrow. Aiden pushed away from the railing and turned his back, all his admiration soured to hatred and disgust. His lamplight fell on several racks of piled shields, spears, crossbows, javelins for the ballistae, oil pots for the catapults, and much more, obviously collected from the wreck. He dropped his lamp, marched up to the weapons, and snatched a spear. Then he sprinted back at the railing and flung it with all his strength. The spear shot out through the murky light, flew over the prow, and plugged into the foredeck with a sharp crack of splintering wood. Five heads spun at him. If anyone finds out you did that, Lorimer began, but Aidan grabbed his lamp and stormed down one of the many ramps. The great bows arched and loomed over him, dark and cruel. He snarled back, and when his feet reached the ground, he began walking down the length of the hull, his solitary light casting hard shadows that stalked and weaved through the open belly of the beast. Though he had known Lekrow commanded the seas, a few dozen men and a few flimsy riverboats were all he had glimpsed of the nation. The monster that now towered over him seemed to laugh, ridiculing his insignificant anger. He considered setting it alight. Then he realized this would probably be in Lekrow's favor. So he walked away and seethed and studied the ship. One day, one day he would send ships like this to the bottom of the sea. One day there would be vengeance. At the stern he noticed something peculiar about the rudder mechanism revealed by incomplete panelling. He studied it until he understood every aspect of its functioning and then filed the knowledge away in his mind. It took him a long time to complete a circuit. When he finally made it back to the bows, the others were there. Kean and Vale were looking at seams. Hadley was inspecting the ram while Peashot walked on top, and Lorimer was hovering halfway down to the construction floor constantly turning his head with nervous twitches back to the gallery, as if he expected to be caught at any moment. 
The stem has to be plumb because of the ram, Vale was saying. Raked would have been too weak. But see how it flares overhead to those bluff bows? That way they could fill the forward deck with a whole army of soldiers, catapults, or whatever they wanted. Aiden didn't recognize half the words in Vale's explanation from either of the languages he knew. So he walked over to Hadley. See this, Aiden? The tip of the ram doesn't end in a point like a spear. It couldn't be any blunter. Almost looks like it was put on the wrong way. Obviously, the idea was to smash planking instead of just puncturing it, probably to make a bigger hole. Bronze. Looks like it. No rust. What is that? Peashot pointed and then rushed back to the ladder he had propped up against the ram. It was a good eight feet off the ground, owing to the presence of a keel. He slid down and ran away from the ship to something that had been hidden in shadow. The others followed. Lorimer remained at his sentry post. As the other lamps arrived, the grotesque shape swelled out from the darkness. Aiden stepped back and bumped into Kean. Dark bronze teeth cast fierce shadows on the wall, and the heavy jaws looked built to crush stone pillars. It was simply colossal, made on the same daunting scale as the ship. What is it? Peashot repeated, reaching out and stopping a foot short before retreating. Aiden understood why. There was something about the contraption that reminded him of an unpredictable, growling animal. It was poised to snap shut, and this metal fiend would slice through anything, wood, stone, iron, boy. It would not differentiate. Those six-inch teeth were over two inches thick at the base, but they ended in knife tips. It is being built like a trap, said Kean still rubbing his nose. See, there's a thick, twisty steel part by the inside. Can't be a trap. Hadley pointed at the length of the jaw. It would close six feet up. Miss any animal. Miss most men's heads. Unless they were hanging, said Peashot. What? Why are you looking at me like that? These people are cruel. Why wouldn't they do something bloodthirsty like a double execution? Too much trouble, said Hadley. And it's way too powerfully built. It must have had another purpose. Maybe it was mounted against the sides of the ship and used to snap shut at other boats. Vale shook his head. Don't think that would be too successful. Maybe they had a way of throwing it at another ship's mast. But that seems clumsy. Whatever it is doing, said Kean. This has been the most frightening weapon on the Academy. Everyone agreed. They were all hovering, but nobody touched it. They made a respectful retreat and drifted back under the bows of the ship, five small points of light in a giant's cavern, insignificant as glowworms faintly illuminating the head of the monster itself. Hey! Hey! It was Lorimer doing his best to shout in a whisper. I think someone's coming. Aiden dashed up the ramp past Lorimer and arrived at the top just in time to see a slice of light vanish. 
He heard a heavy metallic clank that traveled past and then swam back at him from all angles in deep, lost echoes. We've been closed in, Lorimer cried, his whisper forgotten. Quick, Aiden called. If we don't get his attention now, we might be here for a week without water. It would be a death sentence. He rushed across the balcony and into the workshop, grabbed a hammer and was about to pound on the door and give himself up to punishment and infamy when he noticed a low table beside him and had an idea. Lantern's out! Under the table, now! he whispered as loudly as he dared. They raised no argument, and while they were puffing at wicks and scuttling out of sight, he ran to the nearest cabinet of standing shelves, braced his foot against the wall, and pulled it over. The noise was thunderous. Chisels clinked, braces rattled, anvils thumped, saws twanged, nails tinkled, and all of this was swallowed and regurgitated with a monstrous boom from the cavern beyond. Aidan dived under the table and waited. Nothing. A sharp pain caused him to look at his hand. With a start, he remembered his lantern. He couldn't put it out. They would need a light soon if this was to work. So he closed the shutters, hid it behind him, and hoped for the best. He could hear Lorimer beginning to make a soft, whimpering sound. Still nothing. If the locks didn't turn soon, he would have to start hammering. Silence. This was as long as he could afford to wait. He crawled out just as an iron bolt shot loose and the great door yawned open with a whoosh. A short, round man stepped into the workshop, a staff held up over his head. First one of you I see I'm gonna squash into a bloody pulp. Aidan swallowed and ducked back under cover. I'm going to pluck your little ratty whiskers and swing you by your tails until the walls are painted. There was the faintest breath of relief from several points under the table. As the man lugged his weight past them to the overturned rack, Aidan slipped from under his hiding and stalked out through the open door. The others were close on his heels and almost as quiet. Then Lorimer made the short dash. Clack, clack, clack. He was at the door when there was a shout. Oi, what was that? Beck, that you? Aidan lifted the shutter on his lantern, and they sprinted out into the passage, back past the archways. Aidan was counting. One, two, three, four, five. There. He swung the shutter closed, and he saw the opening to the narrow corridor. From the darkness, he looked back as the heavy curator lumbered into the passage. The man began to turn around, peering this way and that, but the boys were too far away now to be found by his lantern. Eventually, he shook his head and returned to tidy the mess and hunt rats. The boys passed through the door and crept down the narrow passage. You don't expect us to climb back up, do you? Vale whispered. Well, yes, said Aiden. There wasn't anything up there sturdy enough to tie a rope onto. But I'll lower the rope for the lanterns when I get up.
Just can't take your weight. He wants us to claim this. It was Lorimer. He was not happy. I'm going to, said Peashot. Always thought I could climb better than you. Huh? I didn't say I couldn't. Probably do it in half your time. The climb up was a lot more difficult than the descent had been, but Aidan slid up the blocks as if he were being pushed by invisible hands. Hadley said it was lizard blood. Lorimer said it was bare feet, and he could do that too, but the stone was colder than he liked. By the time they had negotiated the delicate section where the floor was part crumbled and where mistakes would probably result in broken legs or death, they were scratched and dusty, and all steamed up from the exertion. They made the walk back in silence, stopping once to let a night guard amble sleepily round the bend ahead of them, but otherwise they were undisturbed. Aidan reminded the others about the trigger steps on the way out and then almost forgot them himself. He had to do a nasty double stretch at the last moment, as he remembered. When they had said goodbye to Kian, they crept back into the dorm and closed the door. It was only Hadley who felt the need to wash himself off. The others were content to dust their clothes and drop into bed. That, said Vale in distant tones, was about the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. Aidan, I'm very glad I went, and I have made up my mind that I will never go on any of your mad adventures again. Ever. Speak for yourself, said Peashot. That was more fun than tenderizing Master Rodwell. Lorimer said something incoherent, barely audible over Hadley's splashing. What'd he say? Peashot asked. It was probably a complaint, said Vale. Well, whatever he says, he learned how to walk quietly. Didn't make a sound on the way back. Just then, a horrible scraping noise filled the room as Lorimer's throat or nose began to sing that most ancient song of exhausted slumber. Aidan lay awake long into the night. The cruel shapes and vast proportions of that ship were settling in his mind. It was a destroyer of lives, of hopes, and in this it represented the entire slave trade. Even in death, the ship was terrifying. He had glimpsed something of how it must feel to be under the chains of the slave lords. Even if for only a single slave, those chains needed to be smashed. The slave lords, too. Just before he dropped off to sleep, a small part of him yawned, and he wished that he had set fire to the timbers. Chapter 30 The next morning, Don stopped them when they tried to leave the dining hall after breakfast. To the academy gates, he said. Skeet was waiting for them, glaring. As always, he seemed annoyed at something or other, though the sky was young and bright and the birdsong full. The boys hurried into line, falling silent as the glare passed over them. Aidan tried not to fidget and managed to work up a look of bored unconcern. 
had the curator reported the incident. You're going to find this a little different to the Bowyer's workshop, Skeet said. The next few days will leave your ears ringing and your fingers jangling. Swords. The whispered word ran up and down the line, bringing forth twenty sets of gleaming teeth. Aidan's fears dissolved into the bright morning. Skeet returned no eager smile. Usually we keep this until your second year, he said. But two weeks ago we had an update on weapons production in Greel. It seems that Fenlor is stepping up their preparations. Their smithies are opening an hour earlier and running an hour later. We cannot afford to lag behind, so we have decided to keep our forges hot day and night. Though you won't be given time to fully master the art of working with steel, you need to be able to at least hammer out a basic weapon. If the Fen begin their assault before you are old enough to be deployed on the field, then you will likely find yourselves with the Bowyers or the Smiths. He ran a critical, disapproving eye over them. The border threat has given our weapons manufacturing a much-needed kick. If you misbehave, you too will receive a kick that will send you all the way back to the academy. If you behave, you will learn how to make a sword. The grins reappeared. Skeet rolled his eyes, signaled for them to follow and marched away. The group wound through the streets to a section near the north wall, where there were several warehouses and workshops. Outside a particularly smoky building, Skeet turned back and raised his voice over the general clangor of industry filling the area. We split the process into stages, beginning here, the bloomery. He led them into a hot, smoky chamber where, despite good ventilation, the air was dry and sharp. Here iron is extracted from ore by burning with charcoal. Smelting, not melting. The porous blooms that emerge are hammered to get rid of the slag, giving us pure, wrought iron. Depending on where it is mined, ore can have different qualities. There are some interesting stocks reserved for special blades. He moved across to another set of furnaces. The boys at the front had to shield their faces as they looked into the flames. In order to produce steel, the smelted iron is brought here, where it is heated, again with charcoal, and kept at a higher temperature for a long time, sometimes for days, depending on what grade of steel is needed. This is a tricky process. Too much of the charcoal essence in the metal, and the steel is brittle. Not enough, and it's soft as iron. They left the bloomery, and the boys jogged to keep up as Skeet marched along a sooty road towards a steady, pounding din. It was not necessary for him to explain that they were approaching a smithy. He did, however, mention that it would be unwise to refer to the swordsmiths within as blacksmiths. Again, several coal forgers kept the large chamber at a sweaty heat. The room was packed. Not a bench stood empty. Not a forge was cold. If Skeet's earlier words hadn't convinced the boys, one look into this room was enough to make it clear 
This was a city preparing for war. About fifty men worked at various stations, swordsmiths and their attendant strikers. Before the visitors entered, they stood in the wide doorway, and Skeet shouted, As you can see, steel weapons are not melted and molded. Bronze weapons are, but they are weak by comparison. Steel that is molded is far too brittle for weapons, so forges and hammers are used to draw the blades out. He led them inside and began explaining the process, but there was a problem. What the boys heard was, Over here is the clang, and if you clang carefully, you'll notice clang, bang. Can you all see it? He was met with twenty blank stares. Sorry, Master Skeet, Hadley said. Clang. Can we see what? Weren't you listening? I said this is the clang, bang, bang. More blank stares. Skeet was growing red. He turned a dangerous eye on the nearest striker, raised his voice and tried again. The cling bang Oh, for mercy's sake! He whipped around and bellowed with such force that every hammer froze on its descent. The next one of you mangy cars who uses his hammer while I'm talking is going to swallow it. The response was impressive. Hammers were cautiously laid down. Apart from the rumble from the forges, the space was filled with a respectful silence. Aidan guessed that Skeet was known here, and that he held an intimidating rank. Now, as I said, here is where the steel is heated and hammered into the right dimensions. He pointed to a steel ingot the size of a fist. This, he said, is a sword hatchling, fresh from the bloomery. Depending on the price offered, it is either beaten directly into shape or subjected to processes that can include combining with other grades of steel or iron, twisting and folding, all of which result in superior properties. He drew his own sword and held it out. See the interwoven pattern on the steel that looks like the work of a thousand wood borers? This sword was a combination of four ingots that were hammered into rectangular billets, forge-welded, twisted into tight coils, flattened, folded ten times, and wrapped around a softer core before being lengthened. It was a technique developed by Magnus over there, who is our chief swordsmith for good reason. This was said for all to hear and Skeeton climbed his head to the white-headed, sinewy man who bowed in acknowledgment. The swordsmiths are always experimenting, trying and testing new ideas, but this makes for expensive weapons. The quicker and cheaper option of hammering out a single ingot produces a usable but inferior blade that is heavily dependent on the charcoal infusion process, which, if you remember, is a tricky one, often unreliable. He moved to another bench, where he used the tongs to pick up a longer piece. This ingot has been partially extended. If you look carefully, you'll... Yo! All eyes turned on Lorimer, who was furiously shaking his oversized hand and hopping over the steel block he had just flung on the ground. Did you think I was using the tongues to keep my fingers clean? Skeet asked. 
Lorimer recovered himself, blushed with a heat to shame the forgers, and apologized profusely. The swordsmiths and strikers were grinning at him. Skeet ignored him and carried on. Here you'll see that two metals have been combined, a hard steel and a softer iron on the inside. Master Skeet, Vale asked, why use a softer metal? Doesn't that make it weaker? Fired clay is harder than wet, but which shatters when dropped. If you make a sword too rigid, it will break on impact. He moved over to where a blade had been drawn out to its full length. It was straight, double-edged, and partially fullered. He held it up and pointed first to the stumpy section at the back. The tang, he said, is far more important than you would think. Get this part wrong, and the handling will be horrendous. The fuller, he indicated the partly formed groove running down the middle, reduces the overall weight without taking from the strength. He put the blade down and turned to another that was glowing in the nearest forge. Once the blade has reached its basic shape, it is put through several stages of heat treatment that takes two forms, annealing and tempering, differentiated by how the heated metal is cooled. Annealing is a slow cooling, making the blade softer and more flexible, while tempering... He drew their attention to one of the smiths who had removed a red-hot blade from the forge and now submerged it in a quenching tank, producing a short, angry hiss of steam. Tempering hardens the blade, allowing for a sharp edge. Each treating is an art that has a big influence on the final strength. The clanging resumed as they followed Skeet through a partial division and into an adjacent workshop. This one was just as noisy, though less percussive. Skeet made his explanations from the door. The grinders are the craftsmen who shape, sharpen, and eventually polish the blades so that they don't look like beaten fire irons. The rough grinding takes place before the tempering, while the steel is still soft from annealing, and the final sharpening and polishing afterwards when the edges have been hardened. So the blades and some of the swordsmiths move between these workshops. There are loyal chains of craftsmen running through the process. Each chain has its own particular methods, arrangements, and even a few secrets. Inside were a number of men working at grinding wheels, and many more at tables, scraping away with stones and files. Others polished. The boys were still feasting their eyes on the emerging blades when Skeet clapped his hands and shooed them out. They followed a courier, hefting a thickly wrapped bundle of sharp steel, up a flight of stairs to the next workshop. The Cutlers. Here, hilts were produced to match the size and weight of each blade. Some were plain, like the standard military arming sword, of which several were to be seen at every bench. Others were of a far higher breed, mostly the swords of officers and wealthy clans. A poor cutler, Skeet told them, can ruin a good blade in a number of ways. Balance being the first of these. A cutler must, before anything else, be a swordsman. As if to establish the point, 
one of the men at a bench nearby stood and executed a sequence of sweeping cuts and thrusts with the sword he had just completed. Satisfied, he placed it in a tray and started on another. The scabbard makers produce standard scabbards for the standard issue blades, but custom blades must take another journey. Once the scabbards are done, the blades are cleaned, oiled, and ready. Right, he said, with a note of animation. Glasses are suspended. This is where you will be for a little over a week. One day in each of the workshops, and three days making your own sword. When you are done, you will swap weapons and test their strength and handling. If you don't want to be deaf by the end of it all, stuff something in your ears. The smiles reappeared, even bigger than before. Aidan could see the sword he was going to make. It would be magnificent. It would be legendary, a blade by which epic battles would be won. He would call it the Avenger, or the Bane of Lekrau. And it would pass down the generations, hoarded in the vaults of kings and coveted by all. The glittering eyes around him revealed that he was not the only one with such ambitions. And rightly so. How difficult could a bit of hammering and grinding be? I'll challenge you one shift of clean-up duty, Aiden whispered to Peashot. Best sword wins. Deal. You lose. You both lose, said Hadley. Just you wait and see what I have in mind. Also me, said Kean. I'm hating clean-up. Soon everyone was in, and the winner would have no clean-up duties for a long time. Over the next week, they were tutored through the details of the process, and then each was given a steel ingot and a place at a forge. They were guided but not assisted in producing their own blades. When the blades cracked, which happened to more than one, they had to be forge-welded, heated and hammered together, and beaten out to length again. Every night the boys returned to the academy with grimy faces, blistered hands, dry eyes, and ringing ears. On his second day, Aidan decided that the heat of the room would be better endured without shoes. He discovered that of all environments he had ever known, none offered nearly as many sharp objects on which to step, not to mention the showers of sparks that anointed his feet from time to time. When he returned from the forge that evening, he approached the gate alone, barefoot, hobbling, and filthy beyond recognition. He was, of course, denied entrance, the guard thinking him a street urchin trying his luck. One of the clerks had to be summoned to verify Aidan's identity. After his dismal failure with bows, he had chosen to heed what Skeet had said about a soft inner core. Wharton, too. It made for longer hours of hammering and some late nights, but they pushed on and completed their blades. For Aiden, it wasn't about impressing anyone. He had a little scheme in mind. A little payback from Malik, who would want to win the contest no less than the rest of them, and who would certainly cheat. Apart from Aiden and Wharton, the boys all ignored advice and made their blades long, resulting in trickier labor and flimsier weapons. Nevertheless, 
They were proud and competitive as they hammered, ground, polished, and finally hilted their creations. Each was truly awful in its own special way, but the boys were quite pleased with themselves, feeling that the art of sword-making was not as difficult as they had expected. Skeet didn't say anything. Instead, he gathered them in the enclosed marshal's courtyard and presented them with shields strapped to fir branches. They were told to swap swords so that no one held his own, and deliver ten good blows to the shields. Aidan could see Malik and Cade whispering. He called across all the others. Hey, Malik! You brave enough to swap with me? Everyone looked. Malik's lips pressed tightly shut. Aidan guessed that he had been instructing Kay to take his sword and hit as gently as possible. Aidan would do quite the opposite. Yep, said Pishot. He's scared. Give it, Malik snapped, taking his sword back from Cade and making the swap with Aidan. He could not voice a warning to treat his blade gently, now that everyone was watching, but the warning was in his eyes. Aidan read it and smiled. He was going to hit those shields as hard as his arms would allow, knowing full well that Malik would do the same. Hadley was first, as usual. Then the others followed. The swords that did not bend shattered. When Aidan stepped up, he swung hard enough to slice through the shield, the branch, and the stone underneath, but the single ingot blade snapped clean off at the hilt on impact. Malik, with cold fury in his eyes, was next. He hacked and hammered until he was puffing. Skeet had to stop him, informing him that he was only supposed to execute ten cuts. Aidan's sword had a few nicks, and the blade was bent from when Malik had purposely hit against the flat. Aidan took it back and returned Malik's hilt, the rest of the sword having skittered away somewhere down the courtyard. You'll pay for this, Malik hissed. Nobody would pay for this, Aidan said glancing at the stump of metal. Several boys laughed as Malik stalked away. The testing continued. Only Wharton's held its shape, though not its edge. But as all the boys had felt when trying it, the balance was so far forward it may as well have been an axe. Then Skeet brought out a whole range of poorly made swords, from bad steel composition to misguided hilt design. He explained the flaws while demonstrating the results. They bent and broke in a number of interesting ways, and the apprentices were allowed to feel a little better. Then Skeet drew his own sword and delivered a blinding slash, producing a deep cut in the shield and no visible damage to the blade. Being able to recognize a poor weapon he said, is as important as choosing a good one. In a sense, they are the same thing. Thanks to this exercise, you should all have an intimate acquaintance with many construction defects. Now you are going to get back into the smithy during the night shift, and each of you will produce one blade that we can add to our armory. This time, you will keep them short. 
They returned to the heat and smoke and din of hammers for another week. In that time, Aiden, Wharton, and Hadley produced not one but two serviceable weapons each, impressing the swordsmiths, whose advice they had depended on. When all the boys were done, they were allowed to mend their first blades and keep them as reminders of the need to respect the skills of a master at his craft. Wharton took the prize. Aidan came a close second. Everyone had seen how heavily his sword had been punished. He didn't really mind the clean-up duty, taking pleasure in the knowledge that it would hurt Malik a hundred times more. In spite of the unanimous vote, there was a good deal of grumbling about Wharton's overfed, bloated blade. They decided to honour it with two awards, one for the strongest sword, one for the year's most interesting farming invention. Once the rest of the blades were mended, there were dozens of mock battles to be seen in the passages at night, and one or two minor injuries. During these battles, each dorm considered itself Therner, and the rival dorms were mostly Fenlor and sometimes Lekrow. The boys were all mightily pleased with their work, not so much because it was good, but because it was theirs. They had actually made their own swords. It was late one night, and the others had all fallen asleep, when Aidan placed his on top of the bookshelf and stepped back to better appreciate the overall shape. Light from his lantern played over the uneven metal, giving it that chunky look, the look of ditch water on a restless day. But there was something else he had seen before that looked like this. He racked his brain for a moment, hoping for some terrible and daunting image, until all the little pocks and dimples from a thousand uneven hammer strikes brought an image to mind. Aidan winced. It was Harriet's oldest pot, dented with battering and hard use, and equally dull and sooty. He pushed the image away with a shudder, and decided not to dwell too much on the appearance of his new blade. This was a warrior's weapon, not some decoration for a statesman's office. What did it matter if it was a bit rugged, lacked shine, wasn't exactly straight? He decided, after a little contemplation, not to name it. Perhaps the next one. As he crawled into bed, he almost failed to notice the deep shudder that ran through the floor and caused the faintest slipping of dust from the walls around him. It was brief, stilled again before he gave it any attention, as if something in the earth had cleared its throat to speak and then drawn back into silence. It was just a feather of a thought, a hint of doubt. Was there more for Casteth to fear, something entirely unconnected with the plans of hostile nations? But the shudder had been too subtle, and the exhaustion too great. Before he knew it, he was asleep, and the thought lost. Chapter 31 Rodwell's persistent droning bounced off Aidan's ears, causing little damage. Like the rest of the boys, he had never celebrated the classes in law. But now, 
After the thrill of sword-making, these monotonous strings of wordy terminology held doses of boredom that were surely fatal. Aidan turned away and let his thoughts drift out the window. It was mid-morning, of a sizzling day, plucked from the middle of the sun and dropped into a lingering summer. Green lawns sprawled in the golden blaze. A few students sprawled where the lawns crept under the shade of oak and plain. Birds dropped out of the sky and collapsed on leafy branches, where they wheezed and panted and fell asleep. Spiders ignored the flies stretched out in their webs, and all the world dreamed. Nudged by a sleepy conscience, Aidan wrenched himself into the classroom just in time to hear Rodwell say something about eleven exclusion clauses to bad debt penalties in merchant commerce. He uttered a tortured groan and collapsed back into blissful thoughts that fled the academy, dived into the river where they splashed around until cool, and then sat down dripping in the shade on a grassy rise. It had become one of the boys' favourite pastimes to watch from their little hill as work progressed on the grounds laid out for the much-awaited autumn festival. The screech of chairs told Aidan that the class was over. He had survived with minimal injury and decided to apply the same technique through the rest of the day. But something long-awaited was soon to change this. It was the beginning of Dunn's evening class, and Aidan was the only one who remained where he was after the announcement. He hadn't been listening. Did he say we can handle them? he asked Peashot. But Peashot was already halfway to one of the racks, reaching for a sword that was too long for him by a yard. That was all the answer Aidan needed. He snapped fully awake and headed for a line of weird leaf-bladed monstrosities. Don allowed the apprentices one whole class to move freely through the weapons hall where, at last, they were permitted to handle and study whatever beckoned. After the days spent making his own sword, Aidan looked through the weapons in an entirely new way, searching for weaknesses, estimating strength, and remarking on balance. His appreciation for good blades had only grown. Around him, the gleaming eyes and expressions of awe were telling. The primary fascination was, of course, with the long swords and great swords, massive weapons that the boys pretended to lift without effort, while arms shook in their sleeves and necks were webbed with bulging veins. Dunn watched all this with wry amusement. The following morning, he spoke to them. You heard about the increased weapons production in Greel, he said. Unfortunately, it has grown worse than that. Three weeks ago, one of our rangers happened on a camp of six men in the forest south of the river. The ranger was spotted and barely got away. We haven't been able to find his attackers, who we suspect were fen scouts, skillful ones, too. The thing that really concerns us is that the ranger is convinced they were trying to capture not kill him. Don paused to allow the boys to reach the conclusion themselves. It's information they were after, he said. Now, considering the depth of inside knowledge you are given, we can no longer afford to let you out into the wilds with only hunting weapons. 
It's time that you learned to handle the blades you have been making. Follow me. The boys jostled each other as Dunn led them from the weapons hall into the training hall and had them sit in front of a strange new addition to the furnishings. A pig carcass. The carcass was bound in leather and steel armor, and beside it was a rack with a dozen swords. They ranged from short, stout weapons, no longer than a forearm, to curving, single-edged blades, and finally to the towering greatsword. I think you can guess what we are going to do here, Don said, and what you will be having for lunch. He walked over to the rack. Let's begin with edge cuts. He drew a very short, double-edged, leaf-bladed sword, hacked at the unguarded carcass, then at the leather armor, and finally at the steel plate armor. Damage was minimal. The falchion, with its heavy head and slightly curved edge, was far more impressive. The standard military-issue straight-edged arming sword and the long sword, though more imposing weapons, produced less damage. A basket-hilted broadsword was no better. The curved saber and cutlass surprised them all by slicing through the leather easily and creating an even deeper dent in the steel plate than the falchion had done. Eager smile showed as Dunn took up the greatsword, which stood almost as tall as he did. He brought it down with a shriek of wind, and it gave the carcass a resounding thump. But, unlike the curved blades, it was not able to slice through steel or leather. Now, before you all sink into clouds of disappointment, Dunn said, remember that a warhammer will not pierce armor either, but it will fell an enemy. Cutting is not everything, but it is important. What have we learned from this? Curved blades cut better, the boys replied. And thinner blades, added Vale. The saber cut deeper than the falchion. True, said Dunn. Though that also has to do with the increased blade speed of a longer weapon. Anyone know why the curved blade slices more easily? They thought about this for a moment before one of the boys from Wharton's dorm offered a reply. If you sit on stones that are all the same height, it doesn't hurt. But if some of them are higher, it does. I think it's the same with the blade, where only the high parts are pressing hard, and they sink in more easily. That's an interesting way to describe force distribution. Another reason is that a curved blade will tend to slide over the surface and not just press as a straight sword does. A sliding blade will always cut more easily. Anyone who has worked in the kitchen will have seen this. Does everyone understand the principles? They did, or at least they pretended to. He moved to the other side of the rack and took up the smallest sword again. This time he stabbed. The results were even more disappointing. The shorter blades made deep punctures in both types of armor. The longer blades bent in ways that the boys had not thought possible, leaving far shallower punctures. The longsword actually bent so far that it retained its skew form, and the greatsword bowed and bounced Dunn away from the steel plating, revealing only a vague impression in the armor. Conclusions, said Dunn. 
There were several responses. Longer blades bend. Shorter blades are sturdier for thrusting. Never underestimate short swords. Long swords are stupid. Don held up his hand. Longer swords are not stupid, he said. What crucial aspect have we not dealt with here? Reach, said Aiden. Exactly. What good will your little falchion be if you can't get close enough to use it? Remember that in combat it is often the one who causes the first damage who wins. It is seldom necessary to cut an enemy up for firewood. A thrust to the eye or chop into the shoulder will put an end to most resistance. He picked up the curved saber and held it out straight. What is the difficulty with thrusts here? The point is not where you expect it to be, unless you are used to that sword, said Pichot. And that's a very important thing to remember. If you are watching the tip, you'll adjust naturally. But if it's dark, or you're rushed, you could miss your target by a long way. When thrusting at chinks in armor or at eyes, it could render your efforts largely useless. Master Dunn, Pichot interrupted, is that why there are some swords back in the weapons hall that have a curved edge and a flat back with a point that looks like a sting? Well spotted, said Dunn. He went to retrieve one of these swords and held it up. Two protruding curved edges would have made it too heavy at this length, so the design is a compromise. The front edge is given a curve by means of an outward bulge, but the point is dead ahead. Sickle swords also try to achieve the compromise, but as far as I'm concerned, the farmers can have them. To end the demonstration, he took up a spear, held it at the back of the shaft, and rammed it through the steel armor and deep into the carcass, where he let it rest. The wooden shaft bobbed slowly in the air. And the disadvantage of a spear? It's only really dangerous at the tip, Hadley said. If an enemy gets past that, it's just a stick. Dunn nodded. Same problem if the tip gets sliced off. Now do you begin to see why there is no such thing as a supreme weapon? Respect them all for their particular strength. The following day, the boys were presented with their first training weapons. Swords, daggers, shields, spears, bows and quarterstaves. You'll begin with wooden and covered blades, Dunn said. They are shorter and lighter than full blades, so that you don't develop bad habits while trying to adjust for excessive size and weight. Remember, these are only for training. From now on, during any outing that requires you to leave the safety of the Castith surrounds, you will carry sharpened steel. Each apprentice was given two swords, one of straight wood and one of curved iron bound in tough leather. Dunn showed some of the ways they might be carried, by belt, baldric, or mounted across the back. Different applications called for different mountings, and he pointed out the disadvantages to each. Both a baldric and a hip attachment could be cumbersome to movement, catching, even tripping the wearer, whereas a sword on the back was conveniently out of the way, but was much more difficult to draw in an emergency and exposed an armpit that would seldom be covered by armor. 
Don showed how, if this particular mounting sagged, locating and retrieving the weapon could be troublesome, and how, with a full scabbard, a longsword could only be pulled halfway out before the arm was fully extended. There were modified scabbards that compensated with slits or by enclosing only part of the blade, but they created other problems. Generally, he said, back mountings are recommended for short blades or very long blades that would be clumsy at the hip and could not be drawn there either. When he had finished with scabbards, he folded his arms and put on a stern expression. After this class, you're always to be with training sword or quarterstaff or bow and quiver so that you can get comfortable with them. Even at night, some weapon is to be immediately within reach. Expect to be tested in this. Anyone who has to scratch around in the darkness to find his weapon will do circuits until morning. It was Vale's confidence that tripped him up. Instead of doing like the others and keeping his wooden sword under his pillow, he placed it under the bed where it wouldn't cause him discomfort. At the wild, clanging alarm, they sprang from bed, wooden weapons clutched, while Vale knelt in the darkness, bumped his head on the timber frame, groped around, knocked the sword deeper under the bed, and had to crawl after it on his belly. He looked quite spent when he finally stood before a sad-faced clerk who said nothing and merely pointed to the door. By morning, Vale was too tired to even hear the jibes. The training blade slept under his pillow from then on. Don taught the sword in a way that was far less spectacular than he had hoped. The training began with long, heavy mops. The boys were made to traverse a course of short, upturned logs with the woolly-headed weapons, executing basic thrusts and cuts at each step. It was a week before their balance compensation was good enough to allow them to finish the course. After mopping out the hall, they retired the mops and progressed to training swords. As they began working on forms and rudimentary sequences, there was no dimming of the Weapon Master's obsession with balance. The number of times they heard the word, Feet, was beyond counting. Foundations and flow, Don called in his almost sing-song tones, while he walked between them, assessing their efforts. Feet first, then swing. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to swing? Place your feet accordingly. If the blade's weight carries you and forces you to step, your footing was wrong. Lorimer, that was awful. With your height, you can't afford desperate footing. If you topple around like that, you are fighting your own clumsiness as well as your enemy, and you give him a hundred openings. Good, Hadley. There's nothing wrong with a deep step as long as you remain in control of yourself. Ha! What have we always said about moving over uneven ground, Kian? If you can't afford to look, then slide your feet. Don't just slap them down and hope for the best. Breathe, Aiden, breathe. I can see the redness of your face from here. Attack him, Kian. He's too tired to oppose you. Go, go, don't let him recover. Kian drove forward with his encased iron sword, and sure enough, Aiden's exhaustion caused him to fold under the attack and stumble as he backed away. Dunn called them together. A heavier weapon will naturally lead you to tighten up, especially when you are swinging hard. 
If you don't force yourself to breathe, you will be weakened with every heartbeat. On the battlefield, it is often exhaustion that defeats, rather than a lack of skill. Don't forget that. He fixed Aiden with a stare, then turned to speak to the rest of them. From the reports we are getting, it looks as if your first real battle may take place long before your training is done. I guarantee that you will be frightened. You will find yourselves with tense muscles and shallow breathing. Fear makes you think little and swing like a mad logger. It will exhaust you rapidly, and on the battlefield exhaustion is more dangerous than disarming. If you want to survive, you need to consciously resist these reactions. The attention in the class after this was absolute. Once he had covered the basics of technique, Dunn devoted several classes to unteaching the bad ideas some of them had picked up during the performances of touring adventurers, as they called themselves. They were troubadours who would sell their stories and demonstrate their skills against challengers. It was clear that some of the boys had these performances in mind, the way they were hopping and spinning like dancers. Dunn asked Wharton to attempt a spinning swipe. As the boy pivoted, Dunn moved in and stopped Wharton's arm with a wooden blade. Never voluntarily show an opponent your back in a fight, he said. Spins like this might help you unleash a ripping swing, and against a poor opponent they will help you look dashing, but any decent swordsman will step in and lop off your arm as it comes around. The same goes for these leaping heroic slashes. When one foot leaves the ground, you are unable to change direction or resist force, which is why we step quickly and deliberately. But with two feet off the ground, you have no control whatsoever until you land and steady yourself. Again, he demonstrated. Wharton leapt into the air and swung down. Don stepped in, parried the blow, and rammed with his shoulder. It threw Wharton into a backward, stumbling recovery which ended when he toppled over a sandbag. The point was made. Dunn continued to lay a solid foundation of practical techniques suited to the mayhem of warfare rather than the controlled arenas of performance. Once the basics had been grasped, other trainers were invited to build on Dunn's foundation and illustrate the techniques used by the surrounding nations. Many of these trainers were senior marshals who had been posted in other lands. It was during these sessions that the boys noticed the respect shown to Dunn. On several occasions he engaged in full-armoured bouts against these men, and it became clear that Dunn was not a trainer because he was incapable of more. They found a new respect for the demanding master, whose cheery cries shattered the silence every morning. Dunn made sure that skills were not honed in isolation and earlier practices forgotten, so every lesson ended with disarming and hand-to-hand -hand challenges. The new exercises produced many aches as the muscles in backs, shoulders, and freshly calloused hands, right and left, but Dunn insisted they train with both, were pushed to new levels of strength. Aidan now understood why swordsmen had fingers like owl talons. The injuries were not plentiful, but a few concussions, cracked ribs, broken fingers, and strained muscles were to be expected. Anyone who received an interesting injury became the topic for the day in Mistress Gilda's class. 
Once they'd gained a level of proficiency with the sword, Dunn added shields, demonstrating some crafty ways of using them as weapons. He reintroduced quarterstaves and spears to the routine, progressing to more advanced techniques. In addition, several types of bows were discussed, along with a number of different methods for shooting them. The most difficult was that intended for speed, in which the archer would hold at least three and up to twelve arrows between the fingers of his string hand and fire them in rapid succession. The technique was known as the porcupine because of the resemblance to quills. A particularly famous archer was on hand to demonstrate. The boys gaped at his rate of fire. Out in the open, he could put eight or nine arrows in the air before the first hit the ground. It was said that there were Lecran archers who could do more. With this technique, there was no reaching into a quiver for the next arrow, because they were already in his hand. Knocking only one of the arrows and pulling the string back without dropping the others was the challenge. It was a demanding method that required months of practice before anything like a success could be detected. In their cluttered, clumsy fingers, the shafts often slipped. The boys spent a lot of their time flinching and ducking as arrows edged off strings during release and whipped around their heads, while the rest of the shafts escaped to drip and drizzle at their feet. They had never seen Dunn laugh with such abandon. Peashot struggled as much as everyone else, but showed a fanatical determination. He had watched the demonstration with trembling awe, the rapid twangs of the string clearly plucking a note that resonated in his heart. The loss of the pea-shooter, for a time at least, was forgotten. He trained constantly, skipping classes and even practicing in his dorm, firing away against the wall until he was threatened with death and burial, in reverse order. On the academic side, the language classes were proving to be the most taxing as well as the most rewarding. Learning new words and interesting expressions was the rewarding part. The rest was worse than Dunn's circuits. Arunian had the most muddled prepositions. You were at work but in home and on class. Tenses were not defined by verbs, requiring constant use of adverbs of time. Then there were the idioms, and Arunian was infested with them, that crashed heedless through all rules of grammar with meanings that simply had to be memorized. Some were explainable. To buy a flecked horse meant to invest in something that was going to change, associated with the fact that grey flecks tend to diminish with time. But often the meanings were lost. Not even Giddard knew why switching gloves meant avoiding the question. They now had two foreign languages, Arunian and Fen. The latter was considered a priority due to the current threat. Fen, while simpler in tenses, had come with the curse of noun genders. Peashot's frustration grew daily. It's to do with an old division of labor, Aidan said, explaining what Peashot had slept through in one of the classes. It's not about things being boy or girl. It's about which gender was responsible for them. That's all that Av and L show you. And no, said Liru, preempting the obvious retort, you cannot just leave them all off. Aidan resumed. 
Then women do most of the cooking, so kitchenware is mostly female, and men look after the livestock, so the animals are mostly male. Except goats, chickens, and donkeys. I'm not sure why they are different. So, all cattle are male, even the females? Unless you specify that it's a cow, in that case it's female. So then, females are cows. Maybe they aren't so stupid. Ouch! You did not know that cows kick? Liru said, her face betraying not even a hint of humor. What bothers me more, said Aiden, is that the language has no plurals. I know you work them out by the context, but imagine the watchman. Help, help! The wall is being overrun by a soldier. That might not get the right response. It would be better, said Liru, than Peashot asking a father for his youngest cow's hand in marriage. Apprentices were required to learn ten new words every day, and to use the growing vocabulary in practical exercises, one of which was mealtime conversation. Those found speaking Thurnish were denied the next meal. Sitting in detached silence was also forbidden. Of those who had never before used Arunian, Vale was learning the fastest. As he finished his midday meal, he delivered an opinion. Rat selonti. Food taste pretty. All nodded, except Peashot. He wanted to voice a counter-opinion, but lacked the vocabulary. Hadley excused himself. Hak ver uto, he managed. Must go latrine. Peashot caught the word and announced with satisfaction as he pushed his plate away, Let's say Uto. The laughter was unfortunately enough to draw Matron Rosalie's attention, and Peashot was rewarded with washing up duty. Another subject had been introduced. In a sense, it was another language. It was known as signal spotting, and dealt with the reading and interpreting of clues from body language through to unintended messages contained in people's words. Once Giddard had covered the basics, he took the class to a judicial hearing, where they silently observed the accused and took notes. On their return to the academy, Giddard asked for observations. Guilty, they chimed. Perhaps, he said, but that's not an observation. Which of the patterns we discussed were you able to detect? Hadley went first. He gave too much irrelevant and untestable detail about when he arrived. Sun, weather, carriages, his personal plans for the evening. That is true, said Giddard. And he didn't mention seeing the ruby, even though it would have been obvious to anyone. Excellent point. So we have both aspects of an amended testimony, padding with the irrelevant and excluding the relevant. The first could mean nothing, but the second is an attempt to appear ignorant of an opportunity. What else? His smile was shaky. Yes, bead, but that might be the effect of nervousness. What more about his smile? Well, he wasn't smiling with his eyes, only his mouth. Good, that is more telling. Remember how we said that a forced smile tends to leave the skin around the eyes unchanged? Eyes tell the truth more than mouths. Malik? I watched facial expressions when the attention was not on him. His eyes were down, he was frowning, and his fingers were never still. That is a good observation. 
Those unguarded expressions can betray a lot. In this case, we strongly suspect guilt. Bear in mind, though, that they are much more reliable when we consider them against a baseline of the subject's normal behavior. Some people just have nervous eyes or busy fingers. Who do we all know who... Master Wildemar, they replied as one. Giddard grinned and put a finger to his lips before continuing. So don't make final judgments using signals. None of them can send a man to prison, but they can serve to awaken suspicions and give you a warning of danger, even in the middle of a fight. Master Giddard, Aiden said, can you give us an example? Certainly. Did you notice when the prisoner wasn't looking down, how his eyes kept darting to a point in the balcony above us? Under the circumstances, it could well have indicated the presence of an ally. During a treacherous negotiation, confrontation, or even physical conflict, an ally's eyes are often sought as a kind of security. It can help you know who is backing whom. But as a more direct answer to your question... Someone sneaking up behind you is often betrayed by his ally's eyes in front of you. I must warn you, though, not to be gullible. There are some who will fake this darting of eyes to turn you around. Move so as to cover both possibilities. Is it something we should be able to fake? Absolutely. Even to the point of tossing a dagger to your non-existent partner. That would turn almost anyone around. In tournaments and challenges of honor, it would be considered poor form. But when the fate of your nation is at stake, you need to make use of any means possible. And I guarantee that the field will be even. The autumn trials were approaching when they would be examined in all subjects. But there was something far more immediate and far more compelling, something that was spreading a feverish excitement through the whole city. The countdown to the autumn festival had ended. In spite of deep worries about the location, while the festival grounds were outside the city walls, the prince made it clear that safety would be guaranteed. Patrols would be tripled, and soldiers would be posted in a wide circle around the area. The heralds delivered Burkhardt's assurances. There was no imminent danger, and the celebrations would be better than ever. Aidan knew Burkhardt was lying on the first count, but the glimpses he had stolen of the ground suggested that the second part was true. On the eve of the festival, as twilight gathered and called the birds to roost and the crickets to song, the little group of friends sat on top of the rise and surveyed the bright expanse beneath them. Green fields were ringed by stalls, festooned with colourful streamers and country bunting. Laborers and stall owners finished up their preparations and drifted to fires where music and laughter and the smell of food rose together in irresistible harmony to sweeten the breeze. This, said Aidan, taking a deep breath, is going to be a festival to remember. Chapter 32 Hurry up! How long does it take you louts to get ready? Peashot was hovering outside the room, alternately plucking his bow, springing in the air, and pounding the door. For once, Hadley was not out front. He was fussing with his hair before a brass mirror, 
something he had taken up whenever there was a possibility of meeting the girls. But whatever air of class he contributed to the group was offset by Aidan and Peashot, who invariably appeared in rumpled clothes and broom-bristle hair. Eventually, everyone was ready, and they rushed down the corridor and surged out of the academy. The weeks of preparation had come to an end. Town bells rang and trumpets blared. Children ran through the streets selling ribbons, blue, green, red, and white. All but the poorest and surliest bought. Each color represented a team in which were storytellers, bards, dancers, cooks, athletes, and men-at-arms. The competitions were friendly, or were intended to be, and at the closing celebration, always held on the central field, the winning team would dine with the prince. It was even whispered that the princess would be there this year. Since throwing Wharton onto his back in the class scuffle, Kean had found his dorm companions less inviting company, so he joined Aidan's group. Dunn had not set aside the rule about bearing arms at all times, so they had each chosen what they were most comfortable with. Aidan and Lorimer swirled quarterstaves. Hadley and Vale carried iron swords, but neither was entirely confident with the mounting. Hadley used the baldric, so his was swinging about his knees and getting tangled in the legs of those who bustled alongside, while Vale's was strapped loosely and comfortably on his back, where it could be easily drawn by almost anyone but him. Kean and Peashod had small bows slung over their backs and soft quivers of blunted arrows. Peashod also had a sling stuffed up his sleeve. Aidan had no doubt it would be put to use before the day was up. They did feel more than a little foolish as they moved through the crowd with their painfully visible training weapons. If anything, it made them seem smaller and younger. After falling in with the mass of people that squeezed into a tight plug at the gate and hurried away on the other side, they broke free and sprinted to the festival grounds, ducking and swerving between slower groups. Tents, tables, and stands lined grassy walkways, and in the center of it all was the main field where the year's most spectacular and unforgettable events would take place. Several smaller arenas and stages were scattered about where single combatants would wear each other down to the delight of spectators, both the rowdy and the swooning variety, and bards and minstrels would hold audiences in their spells and draw tears and laughter and, hopefully, no vegetables. The boys wandered between the stalls and the growing throngs of people, but as they had little money and at least two meals to purchase, theirs was the lot of admiring and wishing and moving on. The main event, the feat of arms, was what they and most others were there for. But that would only take place much later, so they ambled around behind the tents, found a discarded barrel of spoiled apples, and began their own feat of arms. Soon another group of boys spotted the fun. Rules were set, teams chosen, and before long there was a small war of running boys, exploding apples, and a fine haze that smelled vaguely of cider. The game had reached a furious intensity when one of the festival officials detected juvenile fun and put a stop to it. Nobody ever told who crowned the man's receding head with a particularly ripe apple. After that, they scattered, 
when Aiden, his blood stirred, was on the lookout. The original six of them sat down on a grassy bank that gave a fine view of the tents beneath. But Aiden and Hadley sprawled out to bask in the sun and grin at the memory of the official's slimy hat. After a while, Aiden broke the spell. That could be something, he said. Look down there. See that bloke who's trying to call the girl behind the tent? They all sat up to witness the little drama unfolding. A young man with floppy hair, wilting posture and clutching hands was stealing glances around the edge of a stall and beckoning a younger woman. His movements, Aiden thought, were as twitchy as one of those pygmy antelopes. The reason for the twitchiness soon became apparent. The girl's brawny father looked protective and threatening, even from this distance. He was busy setting up the shelves inside his tent, and his daughter was torn between her duty and her heart. Soon, though, the father was obliged to make a trip to collect something, and as soon as he was out of sight, the girl was moving around the tent. The boys were moving, too. Hadley was ahead leading them in an inconspicuous flanking path to the front of the tent. The girl and her timorous young man were behind the rear wall, the morning sun betraying them with clear-cast shadows on the taut fabric. Count of three, Hadley mouthed. One, two. On three, all six boys wrenched the cloth up and shouted at the tops of their voices. The tender embrace came to a sudden end. The young man shrieked and flung the girl from him as he made good his escape. He fled into the side of a wagon with a sharp oof and a forward flop of his plumed hair. The hair got in his eyes, but he resumed his flight nonetheless, swerving and tottering until he had his vision back. Peashot's laughter was so overpowering that he dropped to the ground, hugging his belly as the spasm shook him. The others were equally helpless. The girl, however, showed herself to be far from helpless when she snatched up a broom and proceeded to wallop them from the tent. You little pile of blather swabs, snogs, brollies, grudder bungs. At this point, the young man, realizing what had happened, made a dashing and heroic return. But now the girl wanted nothing to do with a man who had tossed her aside in his fright. Accordingly, she applied the broom to his twitching frame. The boys roared with laughter, and that drew the attention back to them. They stumbled away, clutching their sides while trying to dodge the yelling assailant. By the time they reached the top of their grassy bank, they were utterly drained, and dropped down with gasps of contentment. Little ripples of chuckling continued to wash over them. Can you imagine what he would have done if it had been at night and lonely? said Peashot. He would have squeezed down a mole tunnel to escape. Or climbed a moonbeam, said Lorimer. Where'd you get that? You haven't been reading poetry, have you? Maybe. Ugh. Anybody know what a snog's brolly is? Aidan asked. Is that one of your southern words? Not southern, said Hadley. I would know if it was from here. I think she's from out west. She had a whole collection of strange words. Bale. Don't you know? Those weren't the kinds of words I tried to learn, but I think a snog's brolly is what ends up on your handkerchief when you have a bad cold. Aidan laughed. Good thing she was looking at Hadley when she said it. 
Well, a grudderbung is worse, and she definitely aimed that one at you. It was worth it. They spent a good while longer congratulating themselves on their little success. Hadley was the first to recover his thoughtful composure, and he sat up to survey the grounds. Hey, that's the bossy official who chased us away. What's he doing now? The others looked up to see the official shaking his head and pointing an old couple away from their prime location on the main walkway. They had obviously arrived early and set up their little table in a good spot, but now they were being chased off and directed to a gap in the last tier of food stalls. The old man was waving his arms in frustration, and the woman's face was in her hands. None of it moved the official, who thrust his chin forward in what was clearly a threatening glare as he pointed. Another group was standing nearby, with a cart full of tables, pots, and tent materials. As the old couple began to relocate, the official drifted across to the larger group. The movement was subtle, almost imperceptible, but Aidan spotted the purse change hands. It was a bribe, he said. They just bribed that pig-headed official to chase away the ones that got there first. What's a bribe? asked Kian. When you give money to someone to make them do something wrong. Oh, we are calling it taking of the coin for conscience. But aren't officials meant to be stopping of this? Supposed to. Aidan was watching the old couple as they struggled to drag their table over to the indicated space. His face was going red, and it had nothing to do with the sun. Something snapped in him, and he leapt to his feet and ran down the bank. When he reached the scene, he asked the couple if he could help them with the carrying. Before they had finished expressing their gratitude, the other boys had gathered around. Between them, they carried the two heavy pots and several crates of ingredients. The old lady was trying to smile, but kept hiding her face. Before they were done, names had been exchanged, and the couple had introduced themselves as Corin and Enna. You are very kind, Corin said, when they had finished transporting the goods. Not many youngsters take the initiative to help us more, uh, wise and mature ones, he said with a wink to his wife. She attempted a frail smile, but turned away, and this time was unable to conceal the waterworks. It was clear that there was more on her mind than a change in location. Corin explained. We got to that spot early because we need to sell a lot of stew if we are to keep our little cottage. This was our last chance. We have very wealthy in-laws, but they would sooner throw money down a well than give it to us. They see poverty as a disease only made worse by charity. He looked around. From back here, we might sell half a pot a day. Nobody will notice our table among all these tents. We need to sell at least two pots a day, or we'll be without a roof by the end of the month. The official was bribed, Aidan said. I expected so, but there's nothing we can do now. Fighting with the officials will only get us thrown out. Still, we are very grateful for your help. Aidan stepped back, taking in the single table, dwarfed by the surrounding tents and banners. A thoughtful look 
crept over him. Kian, he said, your father here today? Of course. He's doing building on tents and stands all over. There is lots of fixing work wanting for carpenters here. Any chance you could borrow a hammer and maybe a saw? Let me ask. I'll be back in a flush. Flash, said Vale. Oh, thanks. Kian sped away as Aiden paced and cradled his chin. He wasn't sure if the chin cradling helped him think, but he'd often seen William doing it when trying to solve some problem, and it had always looked so grand. Got an idea, Aiden? asked Hadley. Aiden emerged from his thoughts. Remember those scraps of material around the back where we had the apple war earlier? The others nodded. I'm sure I remember some broken crates, leftover poles and discarded rope, too. If Kean finds a hammer, we can pull nails and rework the crates into a big table. If we get a saw, we can cut the poles to the right length and put up a frame for the cloth. Maybe we can get it bigger than the other tents here. How about a banner? said Lorimer. I might be able to get some paint from my uncle. He hates bribes. If I tell him the story, he might even paint a sign properly. Boys, you are very thoughtful, said Enna, who had been listening. But I can't ask you to spend your whole day working for us. We can't pay you, you know that. But we can pay you, said Hadley. We've all been given enough for two meals. And if you can promise us two full portions at four copper hoodies each, then we'll be smiling. Enna looked like she didn't know what to say. Corin answered. You won't take the meals without paying, will you? No, sir. Then all I can do is assure you that these will be the best four huddy meals of your life. He smiled at Enna, who blushed at the compliment. Settled, said Hadley, with deep gravity, as if he had struck a trade agreement that would alter the fate of nations. After a little while, Kian skidded around the corner and almost had an accident with the saw and hammer. Let's go, said Aiden. I've got a couple more ideas to make this the best fun of the day yet. Now that, that is rancid, Vale choked, staggering away as Aiden tipped the barrel. A thick ooze of semi-liquid potatoes crawled onto the ground and lay bubbling in the sun killing grass and poisoning the air. It's perfect, said Peashot, in unfeigned admiration of the plan. This is definitely going to be the best part of the day. Aiden grinned. He was looking forward to it too, but Carpentry was first on the list, and the less he had to do with it, the better for all. He could build traps and slings and such, but had never got the knack for what needed to be done now. His forts had always been better at falling down than standing up, and he'd never really had enough of an interest to work out why. Kean, however, was right at home with wood and tools. After making a quick inventory of what was available, he began allotting tasks. Aiden and Peashot cut the cloth into sections that Kean measured off. Lorimer joined the numerous scraps of rope to make useful lengths. Hadley knocked the crates apart, preserving the nails and Kean and Vale cut and sliced poles until they had enough for a large frame. When all the materials were ready, they carried them to the back row stand where Corin and Enna 
were setting up pots and ingredients on their little table. The boys drew a fair amount of attention with their burdens, and even more when they began to hammer and hoist. Kean showed himself to be something of a young master as he managed his team. All his quiet reserve was forgotten. Even Hadley jumped at the lash of his tongue. The frame went up. It towered over the neighboring stalls. Ropes were used to secure it in place with stakes cut from branches. Thinner twines were used to haul cloth over the frame and secure it in place, and two poles that stood out front had cords threaded over their tops so that a banner could be hoisted. After deciding what the banner should say, Lorimer ran off with the cloth to beg his uncle's help. Kean and Hadley arranged the planks that had been salvaged from the crates. They nailed together a huge table that ran the length of the stall and two long flanking benches. Kean examined the tarnished wood with a critical eye and announced that it needed a cloth covering, so Aidan and Pichot were sent to Scrange for more. When they came back with the cloth, they stretched and secured it, wrapping even the support so that the results looked impressively clean and neat. Lorimer returned an hour later with a banner painted in dazzling blue. Using the cords, they hoisted the sign to the top of the posts and stood back to admire the result. Enna's excellent stews flapped grandly over the large tent. Aidan frowned. It didn't look quite right. He remembered that Lorimer had been illiterate and wondered how much this uncle knew about the letters he had painted. As he looked around, he spotted a few amused smiles, but nobody said anything, so he let it go. The building had taken until early afternoon, and now a deep lull of contentment settled on them as they admired their work. Kean, I am impressed, said Aidan. This is a fine stall. Makes all the others around look almost shoddy. Kean beamed. Enna hugged them, and Corin gripped their forearms and gave them each a large hollowed barley loaf, filled to the brim with stew. The loaves had been freshly baked a few stalls away, and the aroma of the bread was compelling, but it was insipid against Enna's stew. The vapors drifting out of her large copper pot were nothing short of entrancing. Mutton, sweet potato, onions, celery, mushrooms, rosemary, thyme, pinches of this and that, and something secret in a bronze gourd that never left her side had blended into a meal that defied description. The boys had been quick to hand over their coins, despite Corrin's protests, so they could begin filling their mouths. Even Peashot was unable to speak until the last crumb was gone, and he sat back to lick his fingers with a look of complete satisfaction. That was the best meal I've ever had, he said, and for once Lorimer was deprived of leftovers. The rest agreed, and showered the old lady with compliments. When everyone was done, Aidan suggested that Enna make the second pot of stew. I think it will sell, he told her with an enigmatic grin, as he led the way to the next objective in the plan. It took a while to round up the boys from the Apple War, but when they had found enough of them, they explained what had happened, what they had done, and what they planned. 
The boys gritted their teeth at the outrage, stared with fascination at the new banner, which could be seen from a good distance, and shrieked with laughter at the plan. Aidan led them to the fetid potatoes, and the new boys were not disappointed with the force of the aroma. Aidan and Hadley agreed that it would not be wise for them, the builders of Enna's tent, to hang around while this particular operation was in progress. So they drifted off to a tiered grandstand from where they could watch. Two boys went to the back of the intruding tent that now stood in Enna's original spot. They hoisted the flap and made enough noise to draw the furious attentions of the manager and all three cooks, while four boys leaned in the front and dumped little smelly handfuls into the pots. They did that perfectly, said Peashot, with a hint of disappointment, no doubt, at being excluded. The results were not immediate, but they were impressive. Cooks started arguing and pointing as they wrinkled their noses. The manager raised his voice over theirs and restored order as a customer arrived and seated himself at the table. He took only one bite. He didn't swallow. The manager should have given the man his money back because the shouting that ensued carried well over the showground and warned off a number of would-be patrons. The front row position now worked against the stall, and many of the hungry drifted away from the yells of Rotten! and Poison! and several other deeply felt expressions to the bright blue sign. Over the course of the afternoon, parents were begged to take boys to the stall that had food better than golden honeycakes, as Peashot had put it. Laborers came to inspect the work of the young martial apprentices who would use their tools and paint, and here they encountered trails of persuasive vapors and found themselves instantly hungry. And curious strollers altered course to see who Enna was and found a busy table and satisfied expressions. So for the remainder of the day, there was a queue outside the stall. Corin had to make more than one trip to buy additional ingredients with the money that was flowing in. The boys, after promising to return later, decided to explore the rest of the fairgrounds. As they moved off, Aidan stopped and pointed. Who's that? he asked. Down the line of tents, partly hidden by a stack of barrels, stood a tall man wearing a low grey hat that concealed his face. Nobody could identify him before he slipped behind a tent. I'm sure I saw him before, Aidan said. Almost looked like he was watching us. The others weren't deeply interested. There were much more compelling things on their minds. But the man's behavior worried Aiden. What possible reason would anyone have for watching them from the shadows? The absence of an obvious answer bothered him more than a suspicion even of robbery. Could the stranger be a fen spy? But that was hardly possible considering the large number of patrolling soldiers. He turned it over in his mind for a while and decided, in spite of the plentiful distractions calling for his attention, to remain alert. Chapter 33 Their earlier wanderings had covered just a portion of the grounds. They now took themselves on an exploration of the lanes, arenas, tents, and stands on the far side. 
From spices to farming tools, brass and clay trinkets to porcelain statuettes, magical charms to weapons, where festival security officials presided in number, it seemed that anything that money could buy was on display. There was far more than the city's usual variety, but traveling merchants were even more plentiful than the local ones. They brought with them strange articles that wealthy landowners and nobles found irresistible, partly because they were foreign, but mostly because they were expensive, and therefore essential trophies, however useless they might otherwise be. Aidan overheard a richly dressed woman being told that the speckled stone in her hand was worth three silver chims. That was enough to buy a good wheelbarrow. For a stone? He wondered if the merchant would fill a bag with chunks of dollarite along the road and sell the grey rocks for the same price again in the region where he'd found the speckled ones. The merchant's wares had no hold on the boys, and they moved along. There was a gloomy booth across the lane, attended by a man in midnight amethyst robes, adorned with the strangest symbols. Here were all manner of magical garments, charms, weapons, and potions in little glass vials of every color imaginable. There were potions to make people smarter, stronger, younger, healthier, more attractive, shorter or taller. Peashot and Lorimer remained long at the shelf, staring at the last two bottles. Does the magic work? Lorimer asked the wizard storekeeper. Before he could reply, Hadley barged in. Of course it works, but all the potions do the same magic. They make money disappear. Come on, you woolheads. He gave them a shove, ignoring the wrath building on the wizard's brow, and they progressed through to a livelier part of the grounds. The next stall almost coaxed everyone's dinner money from them. Here, all things honey were on delectable display. It wasn't just the cakes. A whole range of delights winked at them from the table. Honey brittle in shapes of horseshoes, keys, and spoons. Honey frosted over plums and apples, honey and oatmeal biscuits, and blends of honey with cream and crushed nuts served in little wafer bowls. The smoke of grilled sausages drifted from another quarter and reminded the boys that they would still need to buy supper. They wrenched themselves away, casting longing looks behind them, and pushed on. All except Lorimer. He tried bravely, but after a dozen steps, came to a stop with a broken, whimpering sound. Then he turned and rushed back to the honey store, where he flung down his remaining coins and scooped up a pile of sweet and gluey things that he carried away in his hands, pockets, and mouth. How can you be that hungry? Peashot asked. We just ate. Lorimer tried to reply, but nobody could understand the sticky sounds. After two attempts, he gave up and resigned himself to a quiet ecstasy of chewing. Besides merchants, the festival's incoming tide had brought a flood of minstrels, actors, raconteurs, magicians, and acrobats. The boys found them now as they entered a broad, grassy walkway between large tents. On either side were stages where various actors performed. Some were roving troops with large wagons that served as home, change rooms, and stage. 
A few cloth screens had been put up to keep bystanders from seeing the performances from the lane, and three copper hoodies was the standard entry charge. Aidan noticed that there were officials keeping watch on all the players and raconteurs. It was one thing for people to whisper to each other of signs in the sky, of dark times, of the approach of fearful things from the eastern mountains, and Aidan regularly heard snatches of such talk from passing groups. But it had become known recently that anyone who spoke those ideas from a platform was quickly and forcefully silenced. Soldiers waited nearby, and they would be ready with gags and chains. Politics, Vale said, when Aidan remarked on it. Remember how careful the prince was about getting only one explanation of the storm to the heralds? I think that storm and the rumors of terrible things stirring in Danielan concern him more than he'll admit. We know he's petrified of what fear can do if it spreads in the people. He likes to keep a very tight lid on ideas he doesn't want. And I wish you'd keep a lid on your talk about that meeting, Aidan replied. What are you being saying about a meeting? Kian asked. Nothing, the other five replied in unison. Strains of various kinds of singing and music grew in the air as they entered Song Lane. Their group began to stretch out. Peashot was growing bored and restless. He pushed ahead to the beckoning arena, while Aidan hung back, walking slower and slower as the strands of melody and story songs began to catch in his chest and tug in ways that were sweetness and ache at the same time. It was when he reached a large green tent that he could go no further. He stopped before the sign that read, The Lilt and Lore of Silrin. Hey, Tan, hurry up! Peashot yelled back. This is the most boring part of the fair. The games are up ahead. Aidan looked up with unfocused eyes, as if he had just been pulled from an afternoon nap. I think I'm going to go in here for a bit. But it's going to cost you your supper money, Peashot said, returning to talk a bit of sense into his deluded friend. I know. I still want to. But this stuff is as boring as law class. And anyway, why do you care about Silrin? It's some wild part of northern Theana where the people are a bunch of... Oi! Hadley grinned at Peashot, ready to cuff him again. That's where Aidan's from, Cabbagehead. Peashot's eyes cooled. Oh, yes. Something misty. Misty veils, Aidan said. Look, why don't you all carry on? I'll find you in the stands later. They agreed, and hurried away together, like a raft freed from a dragging anchor, while Aidan parted with the three of his remaining four coins and went into the tent. He found a seat on one of the benches, just as a thick-set middle-aged man climbed onto the stage alongside a woman, presumably his wife, who beamed red and round as a summer cherry. Three sons and a daughter sat on the platform, holding various instruments. Among the flutes, fiddles, drums, and shakers, Aidan spotted an alo, four fretted strings over a lyre-like body. He hadn't seen one of those since leaving his home. About a dozen listeners had seated themselves and began to quieten down as the man coughed for silence. 
Without any introduction, he nodded to his wife, who began to pick on the alo. The tones were haunting, the depth that struck Aidan before he had a chance to steel himself. To some listeners, the sound may have been only pleasing or alluring. To Aidan, it was as if the secrets of his beloved home had been slipped into the notes and coaxed into the air. The children took up their parts with a sensitivity that was no less astonishing. A few in the audience released little gasps of appreciation at the simple yet delicately woven lines of melody and harmony. But the audience fell into a complete hush when the father began to speak in his untamed accent. Aidan smiled as he recognized the northern rylome, a story with a frail strand of wispy poetic rhythm and occasionally rhyme that emerged and broke and reformed as it pleased. He closed his eyes and listened. It was a black and disturbed night, high up on the inland hills, where the summer days are patient, but the winter snows lie deep. A pup, too young to know its way, now slipped the watchful eye and lost itself chasing shadows upon the moor. Without lamp or coat, his young mistress dashed out in frantic search, but in her haste she missed the way and became lost herself. A girl, alone in those frozen woods, long she cannot last, and soon she saw her folly plain and knew her fate was come. But then a great rugged shape grew from the darkness, and she found herself before the gaze of a wild forest bear. Trembling, she stood and wept in her arms, waiting for the teeth and claws to gouge and tear. While the beast looked down, hesitating now. At last it moved, but not to devour. It drew her near, curled upon the ground and warmed the child against the wind and the storm-filled night. When morning came, they walked to the town, and the people came to see. But as she drew near, leaning on the bear, they began to shout, Witch! Wood spirit! Ghost of our daughter! With clubs and arrows they chased girl and bear from their home, and from hers. One day, when a full three years had passed, a townsman found a bear cub in the forest deep. Home he bore the starved young whelp, unable to run it was so weak. The townsfolk gathered around to marvel at the soft fur and tender eyes. Then they all felt quiet, as a young woman stood among them with tattered garments and soiled hair. As they stepped away, she pointed at the cub, and with trembling voice she cried, Now do you not see? The compassion you feel for your enemy's child once moved her heart for me. The only witching I ever knew was that which this cub has done to you. While listening, Aidan had felt as though he were among his spellbound friends in the Misty Vale's town hall, where they had first heard the story from a travelling raconteur. Their faces appeared again, Thomas horrified. 
Dara indignant, and the soft, hazel eyes beside him had looked sad. The musically blanketed tale now rose into a song so moving that Aidan had to drop his head and hide the feelings coursing through him. There was no one here that knew him, so he allowed himself to feel and remember much of what he had locked away. As the songs continued to flow, old adventures played out in his thoughts. For a little while, he lived again in the misty veils, and spoke with old friends now lost. It caused him to wonder about his father and hope. When the music was over, and the crowd had applauded and begun to move, Aidan lingered until the room was quiet. The bench moved as someone sat beside him. He took his head out from his hands and saw the cherry-cheeked lady smiling by his side. You are northern, aren't you? she asked. Yes, ma'am, the Misty Vales, Aidan said, Those accents said it for him. Thank you for giving me a breath of the north again. She smiled. We are Bregan and Valerie. Wherever you find us, you will also find welcome at the door of our wagon. Aidan was worried he would be drawn into a long discussion, but she only planted a kiss on his head and left him to his thoughts as the family slipped out the back to rest before the next performance. When Aidan emerged from the tent, he felt refreshed. Though old aches and losses had been uncovered, they had reminded him why he carried a staff strapped to his back. He took a quiet stroll to gather himself before searching for his friends. On his way, he stopped to watch groups of men competing to catch and pen pigs, one of which bit a man's foot and caused a terrible commotion. There were children playing foxes and hounds, a more interesting game of catch where two foxes could take on a hound. A robed priest stood before a large silver idol of Ermolus, the deity of fortune, and announced that the storm was a portent of coming prosperity. He covered this with a reluctance that was explained when Aidan glimpsed soldiers idling nearby. But the priest became far more animated when he explained how personal prosperity could be assured only by making an offering to this deity, whose offering box stood at his elbow. A riddler was challenging a small group. I have a dozen arms to each of yours, a hundred spears for each arm, and a thorn tree, Aidan called, then ducked and ran when he saw the look on the riddler's face. He'd heard that one from a riddler in the north. Peashot spotted him from a long way off, and the group reassembled. There was nothing happening on the arena while it was being cleared of acrobatics equipment in preparation for the feat of arms, the central event of the afternoon. They decided to take a walk down a noisy lane, and soon they were weaving their way between throngs of idlers. A small boy ran past and bumped into Hadley. Without a word, Peashot flew off in pursuit. When the others caught up, Peashot had the smaller boy on the ground and was prying something from his hand. Here you go, he said to Hadley, tossing him his purse. Hold on to it better next time. Peashot stood 
and the little thief slipped away between the people like a skink. How did you know? Hadley asked. Just knew, said Peashot. You have a good eye for pickpockets. Peashot didn't reply. At the end of the lane, they came across an enormous tent where men, women, and children whirled in folk dances, and where Lorimer was spotted by a group of girls from the academy. The boys tried to duck away, but the girls matched them for speed and caught them easily in the congested lane. Leru flew up, her raven hair streaming behind her, eyes filled with laughter. Oh, you poor young men, she teased. What grave danger is this at your heels that you run so? They shuffled and looked at the ground. Partners are always scarce for us girls. Would you really be such beasts that you would make us struggle on our own? Lorimer, I see you slinking away. There is a very pretty third-year student with us who has been complaining constantly about short partners, and I understand that you want to learn to dance. She winked. Lorimer darted a look at Aiden, who made no effort to hide the grin. Leru was finished talking. She snatched Aiden's hand in a grip that invited no debate and led him back to the tent. The other girls giggled and did likewise with the rest of the boys, all except Peashot, who had somehow disappeared. Aiden found it a lot more enjoyable than he had expected, especially when Lorimer introduced a comic aspect by attempting more challenging steps, to the alarm of his neighbors. He persevered with a determined set of jaw that reminded the boys all too clearly of Princess Elysian's parting words. Aidan had heard some of these reels in the misty veils. One in particular caught his ear. It was a harvester song that all knew and sang as they danced. Ring out, bells of the town, and sing out, dells and the downs, for heavy are the sheaf and tun, full with a summer's sun. Bursting are barrels and the workers, thirsting, but none for the shirkers. Rest for the labors done, and ease from the winter won. After they had completed several rounds, they were breathing hard and laughing at the numerous missteps and near collisions. Then a blast of trumpets echoed across the grounds. Crowds came to a standstill as dances and conversations stopped. Beat of arms, they cried, and began streaming from all parts of the festival towards the huge stands surrounding the main arena. Hadley led the now larger group across the lane, under the stands and through a little gap between supports that he had found earlier, thereby avoiding the crush of people squeezing into the designated entrances. Following Hadley's lead, they climbed up between the seating boards to the top of the stand, where they were able to fit all ten of them along a bench. Peashot was waiting, clearly trying not to look like he had missed out. The stands filled up. Almost everyone wore streamers of one of the four colors. Why don't you have colors? It was Delwyn, the tall, blonde girl who had danced with Lorimer. Here, she said and handed out green strips of cloth, which they tied around their heads. So, we're all green, team? asked Hadley. All except Liru, she said. Liru gasped, 
pulled the red ribbon from her head and stared at it with exaggerated horror, then tossed it away, snatched a green one from Delwyn, and bound it in place with such an air of mock relief that everyone laughed. Aidan marveled at how confident she had grown. I love watching from high up like this, she said. Me too, said Peashot. It's like walking across the bridge over Regent Street, where you can see the whole city market underneath you. And there are lots of nice piles of goats and horse dung that... some other children drop on those ratty bribe-collecting hygiene inspectors that the whole city hates. Liru chuckled. I have been doing that for years. So you're one of us. I've never been able to hit the chief inspector, though. He's really been... I meant watching from the bridge. Peashot's face drained. Uh, yes, I meant that too. What I was trying to say was that I couldn't get a good view of him. Sometimes when I use hit like that, I actually mean see. The silence was rigid. Aiden squirmed for Peashot. Liru turned back after a while. I got him once, she said, and grinned, jabbing Peashot in the ribs. Aiden laughed. I warned you about her sense of humor, he said. The stands filled up around the huge arena as slanting rays of the afternoon sun cast spectators' shadows halfway across the field. Another brassy peal of trumpets brought the excited crowd to a gradual hush. Through a large speaker horn, a golden-robed official announced the rules, as well as the winnings. Princess Elysian would indeed partner the winning knight at the feast. Aidan glanced over at Lorimer. The tall boy did not cheer. Another blast of trumpets, and the gates opened. Four teams of fully armed knights strode with crashing steps onto the field. There was no official rank of knight in Castith. It was an honorary title given to competitors who were chosen from among soldiers and citizens. At a gesture from the announcer, they saluted the royal tier, then took up their positions at the four quarters of the field, where four flags stood, blue, green, red, and white. Knights could engage in any manner they chose. The winning team was the one whose flag was the last standing. The winning knight the one who showed the greatest courage. Elysian herself, dazzling in a silken gown, dropped the gold ribbon. It had begun. The white team was the first to sally out. Four of their ten knights began stamping towards the red flag, raising swords, maces, and flails, all blunted but all still deadly. The green team saw the weakened white base and sent six of their knights to take it. But as the white team approached the full company of reds, they swerved aside and charged the now-weakened green base. A ruse. Crowds began to cheer and stamp, and then a harsher din broke through the applause as green and white smashed into each other with weapons swinging and shields denting. Red and blue looked to have a mutual understanding of preserving their numbers. A single knight from each strode forward and engaged in combat. When one fell, he was replaced. Green and white supporters booed this timid and conservative approach as their own teams whittled each other down at an alarming rate. The white flag dropped first. The green flag stood, 
but it was held by only a single tottering defender. A small contingent was sent from Red to attack him, but as they left, all but one of the Blues rushed at the Red base. The Red spotted the attack, and together they retreated to their flag, where, in a clatter of desperate fighting, all fell, including the flag. It was down to the single green and blue knight. The green was exhausted, swaying in his armor as he staggered forward. He was able to preserve his dignity by landing a few prods with his sword on his opponent's shield before the huge sweep of a mace knocked him off his feet. Blue took the win, but the green soldier was considered to have been the most valiant, having taken part in three separate confrontations in which he had demolished four opponents. Several men had to be carried off the field on stretchers. A few dark stains showed on the cloth when the stretchers returned for more. A whole range of contests followed, single combat, archery, wrestling, and another team event in which armed knights had to carry a ripe melon from across the field while their opponents attempted to smash it. The crowd roared with laughter when a melon was damaged near the finish, and the frustrated carrier smashed it over his antagonist's helm, felling the man with the most unexpected of weapons. While looking to the side, a movement behind the stands caught Aidan's eye. He turned to see the same tall man with the hat that kept his face in shadow. It gave him the first tingling of fear. But the next time he looked around, the man was gone. As the sky darkened, fires and lanterns were lit, and teams of acrobatic dancers ran onto the field and began to perform. They leapt over each other, built pyramids with their bodies, balanced on horses while throwing flaming torches to each other across the arena, and walked fearlessly along ropes high above the ground. The final applause that rolled from the audience expressed equal parts congratulation and relief. It was with an air of satisfied fatigue that the group of friends clumped down from the stands and gathered on the walkway. The boys insisted that the girls accompany them to Enna's for supper, and told them with no little pride how they had spent their morning. Aidan grinned as he passed the tent where they had added their own creative ingredients. It was empty. Letting his eye latch on a sign, jewellery made from seashells, Aidan stole a casual glance behind him. It was the same man with the grey hat and shaded face, still fifty paces behind. The uncertainty was making him uncomfortable. It was time to solve the riddle. I'll catch up, he told Hadley, and turned down a side alley. Once around the corner, he ran in a big loop, emerging onto the main walkway behind the stalker who was now entering the alley, following in Aiden's tracks. Aiden darted after him, keeping one turn behind and peering carefully around the corners. But this stalker appeared to have a nose for such tricks. At the third corner, Aiden peered around to see the man looking straight at him. He caught his breath. It was his father. A peculiar mixture of hope and uncertainty rushed through his veins. He realized just how much he wanted this reunion. Tarnished as the relationship had been, 
The good times came back now, and glowed in the silence that hung between them. He stepped out into the alley. I heard rumors that you'd entered the academy, his father said. Aidan smiled, but the answering sneer on his father's face showed this to have been a mistake. Oh, smug are you? Want to show that you're better than me now? Is that why you ran off to their snooty lectures and mounds of books? No, Aidan replied, suddenly confused. No, it wasn't like that. It was when Harriet wanted to... Actually, it was because of what happened back in Misty Vales, the slavers, and about taking revenge for her, and being strong enough to stop any bullies and General Oswick, and nothing about me. Yes, I understand all too well. A dead girl and some general are more important to you than your own father. And Harriet, you'd actually stoop to taking that woman's advice. Clawman's voice had risen. He was working himself into a shuddering rage. No, it's... You don't understand. Harriet... Oh, I don't understand, do I? Is that it? He was striding towards Aidan now, jaw clenched. He closed the distance with big steps. It's your turncoat mother and that fool of a meddler that have been putting these ideas into your head. With a bit of fancy learning, you think you've risen above me, don't you? Don't you? He was shouting now, spit flying, eyes bulging as his rage snapped free of the last restraints. You think you don't need to respect me anymore because you can read and scribble, don't you? Let's see about that. Aidan wanted to run, but he was locked in a paralysis like that of deep sleep. He could see it all clearly and slowly. His father seized him by the neck and hoisted him off his feet while striking so hard with the other hand that Aidan barely remained conscious. Skin was burning and ears ringing when he was dropped. Filthy little traitor! Treacherous milk-blooded coward! I always suspected she would teach you to despise me. You both deserve every thrashing you got and more! Aidan wanted to say that was not true, that he had missed his father, that he had wanted to see him, and indeed he had. But now the words curdled in him. A deep cauldron of hissing anger heaved its contents out, turning his eyes and his thoughts dark, though he was still unable to move. Gorman took a handful of Aidan's hair in a shaking fist. Now, he said, barely in control of himself. Let me warn you not to interfere with matters that do not concern children. The stall you ruined earlier today was one of my sideline investments. You stole from me. Tonight, my boys will collect what was stolen. Then he brought his face right down to Aidan's. If you meddle with my operations... The discipline you have needed in the past will be like mist compared to the hailstorm I'll set on you. Aidan stared back from a whirl of screaming, stamping, fear and rage. You? A criminal? He finally managed, between gritted teeth. Clawman stood and waited a long time before answering. All that knowledge 
and still blind. He looked around before continuing. When I lived in Tullinrow, I was a better forester than any of them. But the challenge was not enough, and neither was the money. I remained a forester by day, but by night I made use of the trained senses and quiet feet to become something else. I became a legend. I left all that behind when I moved to Misty Vales. Only a fool works the small village he lives in. But here, my reputation is just beginning to take root again. No window, no safe defied me, and no doddering lawman ever had any idea. Not even your mother knew, thinking herself so clever with all her books. The reason I can trust you to hold your tongue is because the knowledge would destroy your future quicker than mine. Interfere with my plans again, and you will know what it is to be sorry. He picked up his hat, where it had fallen during his exertions. In a few weeks, things will be ready, and it will be time to fetch you back from that foolish academy. Your vacation is over. There's work for you to do, and it starts tonight. You keep yourself and your friends clear. Chapter 34 By the time Aidan had found a water barrel and washed his face, it was late. He returned to Enna's, where he found everyone had finished their meals. Lorimer was wiping his mouth. Aidan guessed that Enna had pushed a meal at him, even though he had blown his money earlier. It would have required little pushing. What have you been up to? Peashot asked. Nothing. Aidan turned his face away from the lantern glare. Nearby, Corrin was fastening straps over a cart that held all the copper pots, pewter bowls and mugs, wash basins, cutlery and spices. Several bulging purses of coins were put into an iron box which was stowed in the cart, too. Leeroo and Delwyn were heading in the same direction as the elderly couple and offered to accompany them. Corin began explaining that he and Enna needed to wait for their relatives. When Malik and Ilona walked around a corner. Ah, oh, here they are, Corin said. These are our grandchildren. You are brother and sister? Adley asked them. Cousins, said Ilona with a shake of her golden hair and a winning smile. Her look turned cold as she saw Aiden. How did you manage to afford such a huge tent? Ilona asked, stepping back and staring. And a table, too. And why aren't you where you set up this morning? Corin explained what had happened, and how the boys had taken it upon themselves to build the tent. It was Aiden's idea, said Hadley. But Kean's carpentry, said Aidan, diverting the attention and hoping nobody had looked at him too closely. Elona turned to her grandmother. Did you do well? she asked. Enna beamed as she pulled out the money bags. We can pay the next four months just from today's earnings, she said, tears filling her eyes. Elona threw her arms around her grandmother. 
and avoided looking at Aiden. Malik avoided looking at anyone. He took up the handles of the cart and set off towards the exit, signaling the parting of ways. Lero and Delwyn accompanied the little group as they trundled away into the night. Aiden watched them go. Someone small peeled from the shadows and scurried ahead of the cart. His father's words began to echo in his head. The picture hadn't been clear at first. Shock had kept his mind numb. But he saw it now. And if he interfered, his life would be ruined by a father whose anger knew no bounds. It would be madness anyway. What could his little group of boys with training weapons hope to do? All strength, all sense of purpose had been battered from him. He trailed silently behind his group of friends as they headed in the opposite direction, back to the city gates. He hoped it would be a clean robbery, that none would be hurt, especially Liru. And then he began to feel ashamed. He knew that if it had been Calry, a hundred fathers would not have held him back. Once again, with her memory came purpose. Stop, he said. The others came to a halt and looked at him. He rocked slightly, staring at the ground, grimacing. What is it? Hadley asked. Then he stepped closer. Hey, how did you get these bruises? Aiden ignored the questions, took a breath, and looked up. Follow me, he said. He made a turn, and then another so that they were walking back towards the other half of the party. Aiden, where are we going? Adley asked. Aiden stopped and turned around, and for the first time, they all saw the bruises. I think they are going to be robbed. I'm going back. It is going to be rough, so don't come if you don't want to get hurt. Then he turned and set off at a run. Without a word, all five followed. The screams made the search easy. They stepped into a shadowy section of the festival's grounds' outer lane and saw, a little way ahead in the bright moonlight, a large gang surrounding the party of six. Aidan counted the assailants. Twelve. Malik lay still on the ground beside one of the thieves who was moaning and clutching his head. The other boys jeered and shoved the girls, dodging out of the way of kicks and swipes. One of the boys laughed as Liru's fist skimmed his throat. He stopped laughing when she took advantage of his inattention and hoofed him in the groin. He struck her so hard that she fell back against the cart and dropped to the ground. Peashot and Hadley started forward, but Aiden gripped their arms and held them back. Wait, he said. Peashot listened, but Hadley dragged him forward and then turned at him like a mad dog on a frail leash. He did not like being told what he could not do. Just trust me, Hadley. I also want to charge in, but that won't work here. We'll have no chance. Shift the disadvantage, remember? Let me think. Reluctantly, they hung back as Aiden tried desperately to clear his mind and hatch some strategy. The gang tightened its circle. You and those dirty little friends of yours be making our boss angry today one of the gangsters taunted. 
Aiden grimaced at the memories recalled by the thuggish tones. He could almost see the anvil in front of him again, dipping and lurching with his taunts. The boss, he says only to take the money, but it looks to us like you'll be needing a mighty big lesson in manners. Aiden's head buzzed with anger, but he forced himself to concentrate. This was a large gang of much older boys and some grown men. If he and his friends simply charged in, they would accomplish nothing. Anger is a poor strategist, Don had constantly told them. Aiden glanced around, taking in everything that could be used to their advantage. Moonlight flooded the scene, but he and his friends stood hidden in the shadow of a large oak. The gang stood between the last line of tents and a wall on the right. This wall was more like a tier, the higher ground above it being flush with the top. A ramp behind Aiden led to the higher level. On the left side of the alley, opposite the gang, there was an opening in the line of tents, no more than a narrow passage. It was probably this passage the gang had used to hide in. The ground beneath his feet was gravelly, and if he moved forward, he would lose the cover of shadow. An idea grew in his mind. The gang would have to be thinned in stages. Peashot, Kean, he whispered. Get up the ramp behind us, and when you are above them, hit them with whatever you can. Rocks, slings, even blunt arrows, if there is nothing else. Aim for the head. Don't stop even when we are among them. Just try not to hit us. The two boys slipped away. Lorimer, Bale, go back around the tents and wait in that passage opposite them. Some of the gang will probably try to go through there to get behind Hadley and me when they hear us. Bale, go ahead and crouch to trip them. Lorimer, use your staff on their heads as they fall. They nodded and glided off. Hadley, we drop however many are sent to get rid of Peashot and Kean. Take a handful of gravel for the eyes, then use your training sword like a club. Aidan unslung his quarterstaff and removed the strap. The wild rush in his veins was causing his fingers to fumble and his hands to shake. This would not be like one of Dunn's exercises. These opponents would not hold back. They would strike with the intention to harm, perhaps kill. He tried to stop the shaking, but couldn't. Hadley wriggled his leather-clad training sword free. Then they both scooped a handful of gravel, moved apart so they wouldn't strike each other, and took positions just inside the shadow where they would be able to see without being seen. They waited. Aiden was breathing like he had just run a mile. Fear and excitement tightened him up, gumming his thoughts until he looked at the staff in his hand and suddenly realized he had forgotten everything he'd been taught on how to use it. He hoped, in a kind of dizzy panic, that some of the techniques might come back, otherwise he'd just have to swing and chop and hope for the best. For an instant, he wondered if he would freeze before the charge, like he had done before his father. But there was no reminder of his father in any of the gang members that lurked ahead of him, and no echo of that crippling fear. Good luck, said Hadley. Aidan was somewhat comforted to hear that not even Hadley could disguise the trembling in his voice. Good luck, he replied. Two rocks flew out from the upper level. One of the bandits went down with a sigh, and another screamed and reeled away, clutching his nose. 
The next two rocks were partly deflected, surprise having been lost. There was some shouting, and four of the gang separated from the group and started running towards the ramp. They drew knives and clubs, but showed no sign that they had seen the boys waiting in the thick shadow of the oak. Aidan crouched. Heavy boots thudded closer. Forty yards. Twenty. He took a deep breath. Ten. Five. Aidan and Hadley flung their handfuls of gravel. The first two gangsters broke into howls of pain and skidded to a halt, hands over their eyes. The next two had only a heartbeat to prepare as they ran into a quarterstaff wedged into the ground and a small sword swung powerfully at knee height. They both dropped. Blows fell thick and heavy on the backs of heads and any fingers that got in the way. One of the gangsters was a hulking bull of a man. He recovered himself sufficiently to grab the staff, wrestle it away with a roar, and deliver a glancing blow to Aidan's shoulder that was still enough to knock him down. But Hadley, finished with his two, circled behind and unleashed a furious swing at the man's head, producing a groan and a heavy thud as the body collapsed. Aidan, panting and trembling, picked himself up from the ground and retrieved his staff. He looked back at the cart. The gang still kept their prisoners at bay while cursing the two boys throwing rocks. It was not easy to concentrate, but he pulled his thoughts together and counted. Only five? Where were the others? He crouched and spun around, looking for a surprise attack. From a distance he heard two thumps of falling bodies and a few woody-sounding whacks. The noises came from the direction of the passage. Someone began to shout and threaten in strained tones that betrayed a struggle. Another three whacks brought silence. Six of them against five gangsters, Aidan thought, assuming Vale and Lorimer were still on their feet. He decided to move quickly, before anyone thought to use the prisoners as hostages. He also wanted the thugs to face away from the wall, giving Peashot and Kean targets that would not dodge. With Hadley beside him, he ran along the tented side of the road, calling Lorimer and Vale as he neared. They jumped out into the open. It's a bunch of children! The biggest of the gang jeered, drawing a long, cruel blade. With toy weapons! It was the last thing he said. The distraction had worked. Peashot's expertly aimed rock bounced off the side of his head, and he crumpled. Kean's glanced from another's shoulder. One of the remaining four turned and grabbed Ilona by the hair. Aiden flew at him, Hadley and the others following. This was the part where the tricks were done and the advantage was lost. The man holding Ilona reached for a short, curving blade, like a claw. Aiden could not afford to wrestle with that blade. He had to make a clean strike, but his arm was numb from the blow he had taken on his shoulder, and as he swung the staff round, it escaped his grip and skittered away. There was no time to run after it now. Without breaking stride, he sped over the last few yards and leapt into the air, something Dunn had forbidden, aiming his elbow at the much taller gangster's head. The distance closed as he soared, swung, and missed. The man's head had moved. An airborne attack had made adjustment impossible. The momentum carried Aiden into the wall, where he thudded against the stones and dropped to a crouch. Ilona's captor looked at him and smiled as he put the blade to her throat. 
Call them off or I'll be painting everything red. It was what Aiden had feared. With a hostage, they could dictate anything they pleased. He opened his mouth to speak when he noticed something in Lona's hand. She raised her arm, and Aiden caught the glint of a blade, just before she jabbed it into her attacker's thigh. He screamed and dropped his hands to the injured limb. Elona ducked away, but she caught her foot on something hidden in the long grass and fell. The man drew her knife from his leg with a shudder, raised his own to throw at her, and then dropped in a heap as a rock collided with his head. Peashot looked down with a savage smile. Aiden's attention was pulled away as someone yelled. He turned to see Hadley struggling on the ground under a boy larger and heavier than him. The boy was clawing, spitting, and biting like a rabid dog. Teeth marks in Hadley's neck began to well with blood. The clawing became more frantic, and then, gradually, the arms wilted and fell limp. Hadley released his hold on the boy's neck, and both of them slumped back and lay still. Only one of the gang remained standing, knife poised. Lorimer and Vale were circling him. Vale hobbled noticeably as he thrust and swung Aiden's staff, his training sword still tucked away on his back. He was clearly too weak to step in and commit himself, and it seemed that Lorimer was too timid. Aiden had been moving to assist Hadley, but he changed direction. He grabbed Hadley's fallen sword, ran at the thug, drew his attention with a yell, and hurled the sword at him. The man jumped aside and faced Aiden, forgetting the other two for only an instant. Vale's staff descended on his head, followed by Lorimer's, and then Vale's again. He sagged like a collapsed tent. Quickly! Aiden shouted as he rushed back to Hadley, who looked unnaturally still. Tie them up! Cut ropes from the stores! Hadley was breathing in shallow gasps. There was a lot of blood on his face, and one eye looked wrong. Ilona left Malik propped against the cartwheel and rushed over. Aidan caught his breath as he saw the red film over the lower part of her neck. You're hurt. It's not deep, she said. He only cut the skin. She began to look over Hadley, prodding with the greatest of care, and soon found the painful area between his ribs. She lifted his shirt to reveal an ugly-looking gash. Aidan thought his friend was done for and turned away with a groan. Don't worry, Aiden, Elona said. It didn't reach the lungs. No bubbles in the wound, no coughing blood. You just need to help me put on a bandage for now. You sure? I'm sure, she smiled. How was Liru? he asked, looking to where Delwyn was nursing her. Broken arm, I think. Maybe shoulder, too. She was hit very hard, and they enjoyed it. Her eyes spilled over and Aidan's fists clenched. What kind of people do that? she said. People that belong in prison, or worse. She finished with the bandages and looked up. Thank you, Aidan. I know it was you. We've all heard about your ways with strategy. Aidan turned his eyes down, embarrassed. I have been horrible to you for a bad reason, she continued. When you and Peashot took the last places in that endurance trial, it was Malik's best friend who lost out. Malik thought you had an unfair advantage. He hated you for it, and because he's my cousin, so did I. 
But that friend couldn't have done what you did here, and he would never have done what you did for my grandparents. I'm glad now that you beat him. Just don't tell Malik I said that. Malik spent a year training him. He's still bitter about it. Malik's hatred suddenly made sense as the history drew into focus. But then everything in Aiden's mind went into a wild blur as the dazzling girl leaned forward and kissed him on the forehead. Keyshot and Kean jumped down. Kean's face was half-blooded by a deep scratch. A rock had been returned to him with a powerful arm. As they joined the others and helped to cut ropes, one of the gangsters began staggering to his feet. Pishot rushed at him with a wild scream and planted a knee in the man's face. The gangster fell, and so did Pishot, clutching his knee and shouting a string of words that would have put any of the thugs to shame. The tramp of boots announced a regiment of soldiers. They had heard the noise and come to inspect. Corin, who was still recovering from the shock, gave them the details. The whole gang was chained and removed to the city prison. All but one. Aidan noticed with a rush of dismay that the man who had wrestled his staff from him was not in the final number. That man would tell Clawman what had happened. Hadley spent three weeks in a dangerous fever, and the vision in his right eye was blurry for months afterwards. Mistress Gilder said he was very lucky to still have the eye at all. Vale had been stabbed in the leg. He limped for weeks. Liru and Malik both had broken bones, which had to be set, and the rest of the group escaped with bruises and cuts. The gang was jailed with no chance of release for many years. News of the rescue spread through the academy, drawing a bewildering amount of attention. Envious classmates were thoroughly impressed with the injuries the boys now sported, particularly Hadley's and Malik's. Peashot was mad that he had gained nothing more than a bruised knee. The group told and retold the story, expanding a detail here and there, until it sounded like they had conquered an army of ogres. They remembered clearly what moves they had done, and the explaining was always accompanied by swinging arms and explosive noises, with a good measure of argument over who hit whom and when. They had the decency, however, to forget that after the encounter, Lorimer had found himself a quiet spot and indulged in a brief cry. The whole business was something at which the girls might have rolled their eyes and raised their noses, dismissing it all as boyish imaginings. But Ilona and Liru, two of their own, had been present. So, instead, they fussed over the conquerors, Hadley in particular, calling them brave and honourable until the boys who had missed out became quite miserable and sick of it all. Malik never once commented on the fight. He felt completely silent whenever the topic was raised. His taunting of Aiden came to an end. It wasn't intended as an insult when Aiden said it. He was just rolling along with the banter as the class joked about what they remembered or had heard, and his tongue slipped its leash in the excitement. Someone asked if any of them had seen Malik do anything. Aiden replied, Yes, he did a perfect copy of the possum technique, only that he got so carried away with playing dead that he fell asleep. Aiden hadn't meant for everyone to hear it, but his words happened to find a lull in other conversations. The whole class heard, and most of them laughed. Malik said nothing and stared at the floor, 
but Vale raised both eyebrows at Aidan and let out a soft whistle of disapproval. Aidan knew he'd overstepped, but there was no chance he was going to apologize to someone who had threatened him so badly, and it was about time that Malik learned to take the ribbings like they all did. The masters were all very pleased with the boys, and Matron Rosalie scolded them for being reckless. They managed to find favor with her again when they arranged for Enna to prepare a stew in the hostel kitchen. Enna was immediately given a job, and Peashot an appetite. Don used the encounter with the gang as an exercise in strategy. He recreated the environment in the training hall, where many variations were discussed and played out. The general feeling was one of pride, but it was one in which Aidan could only partly share. Both Peashot and Hadley asked him about the bruises he had sustained before the fight, and how he had known the attack would happen. But he wouldn't talk of it, and they let him be. One evening, Aidan crept out of bed, opened a secret cubby in his desk, and withdrew a tattered page. He clutched it and made his way to the kitchens where coals would still be glowing in the oven. For a long time he stood with the folded page in his hand, thinking, remembering. He counted the beatings. Three in the north, one on the journey, one that Harriet had interrupted, and the last one. Something had changed, broken in him during that last beating. Though it was one of the mildest, it had been different. Before he had been thrashed for something he had done, but the last time it had seemed he was being thrashed for who he was. In him there had been a secret longing to reunite with his father, and it had been chased away, bleeding. Clawman would not be collecting him from the academy to work with him. There would be no father and son togetherness. Never again. That bubbling cauldron of remembered injuries and fermented hate slid forward from the dark inner chamber and began to tip again. He could not use his fists, for there was a better weapon. From now on he would know his father no more. Clawman would be a stranger to him. Aidan would be deaf to his words and blind to his face. His father was dead. He looked at the page, considered opening and reading it one last time, then decided against it. He knew what it said, every word. None of it meant anything to him now. With a flick of the wrist, he spun it into the coals. It perched there for some time before beginning to blacken and smolder. Finally, it burst into flames. To watch it flake and crumble hurt more than he had expected. But he did not try to rescue the page. He stayed until it had disintegrated, and wondered if little Dara would understand. For it was she who had written out the words with such care. In the weeks that followed, Aidan took to long periods of brooding, Part of him wanted to wander out and chance upon his father that he might unleash his bitterness and completely ignore the man in the most obvious way possible. But another part of him was afraid. His father had warned him that revenge would be severe if he meddled with the robbery. And he had meddled. It was difficult to know if the threat was real, 
and it hung over him like an axe suspended from the roof beams by a ragged string. Chapter 35 Aidan, must you get mud all over the floor? Hadley was the only one in the dorm with any notion of orderliness. His notion was unanimously disregarded. Just sharing, Aidan mumbled as he passed Hadley's section on the way to the little washing cubicle. He got a lot of mud off, and a lot remained. This was fairly normal. On the way back, he left samples of deep brown and wild ochre with every step. The others were in bed. He passed their alcoves, one by one, and noted the familiar scenes. Hadley looked down at the mudstains and shook his head. Vale was lost in a book, probably some abstract and philosophical tosh like the meaning of meaning, far beneath the notice of any normal boy. Lorimer was crouched over a page, lips and pen moving together, obviously composing another poem, and Peashot was lying on his back, adding a gravestone to his collection scratched in the wall. You miss curfew every rest day, Peashot noted, his voice carrying round the log partition as Aidan dropped onto his bed. How come you don't have any charges? Who says they know? Well, how do you get back through the gates? I don't. I climb the wall. Are you mad? It's high enough to break both your legs if you fall, and the grips are tiny. Been good for my climbing. Slipping won't. Aidan grunted. You're not still taking the shortcut back through the law wing, are you? Of course. Didn't you hear what happened to Kean and Wharton? They got caught by that Ivor everyone's been warning us about. When he finished with them, Wharton was actually crying. At least that's what Cade said. Those older law students are bad news, and this Ivor is a champion street brawler. So? Why should that scare me? He's at least nineteen, and huge. What are you, thirteen? Almost fourteen. Your birthday's next year, you're thirteen. My age makes no difference. I'm not walking around just because they wanted to themselves. Slipping through the Law Wing Boulevard cuts off a quarter of a mile. Anyway, these flabby law students would have to catch me first. Peashot made a rude sound. One day you're going to get snagged. You're always snooping around anywhere that's forbidden or dangerous. Where'd you go today? Some wild and lonely spot again? The oak and hawthorn section of the forest. You mean the dark and eerie section? I don't think it's eerie. And don't give me the Fen Scout lecture. I always take sword, knife and bow. And anyway, the scouts would have no reason to go into those areas. Master Dunn would skin you if he found out you were wandering there alone. But you're probably right. No scout with half a brain would go into that area. I've only seen it from the hill. Don't even know how you get in past the brambles. Sometimes I think you're like one of those tracker mongooses, still half wild. He's more than half wild, Vale observed, his voice floating down the room. Have you seen the way he moves when we're in the forest? Doesn't make me think of a mongoose, more like a marsh eel in muddy water. I heard that not even Wildemar could find him during the last survival challenge. Probably found another one of those inaccessible spots. If you ask me, I'd say he goes there to sing. Aidan shook his head. Vale thinks I can't sing, he explained. I wouldn't put it quite like that, Vale said. 
It's just that you sing worse than anyone I've ever heard before. Aiden threw a wet sock over the partition with just enough weight to travel two cubicles and land in veils. It produced a suitable reaction of disgust. You always take that leather case that you hang around your neck, said Peashot. You guard that thing like it's full of gold and rubies. Aren't you ever going to tell us what's inside? Touch it and I'll kill you. Peashot chuckled. So what's the real reason for your gloomy wandering? He asked. Why do you like those kinds of places? Why do you always draw gravestones? Peashot didn't answer. Maybe it's the quiet, Aiden resumed. Let me think. Or maybe it's the opposite of normal thinking, more like untangling. I'm comfortable in those spots. Suits your mood lately. Somewhere between angry and sulky. You've been different since the festival. Aiden didn't want to explain. Hadley walked up and leaned against the rough log partition. It's not Lero's influence, is it? What do you mean? Aiden asked, bristling. She is Marjorie. Hadley was the only one in the group who hadn't warmed to Liru. It was rooted in the one unfortunate trait he shared with Malik, a distrust of those from far-off nations. So? Well, doesn't it bother you? There's foreign, and there's foreign. Kian's all right. Arunian folk aren't much different to us. But these Marjorie are very foreign. You don't think she could be changing you? You say Marjorie like it's a disease, like any change she caused would be bad. Some people here think it is. Many people, actually. They say if her father wasn't rich, they wouldn't have let her into the academy. And you think they shouldn't have? No, I don't really care. Just saying that she's maybe bringing you down with her foreign ways of thinking. Aiden was getting annoyed partly because of the prying, partly because of the way Lero was being discussed. She has nothing to do with that, he said, more abruptly than he'd intended. It's something else on my mind, something different. But even if she is foreign, life is tough for her in Castith. I'm not going to make it worse by keeping away like every other bigot. But as he thought about it, he realized it was not generosity behind his loyalty as his words implied, it was that he cherished her company. Liru never made him feel ashamed. He drew as much from her friendship as she from his. Well, whatever, said Hadley. I thought I'd just mention that she's very foreign and strange. And stern. Weirdly stern. Maybe someone more lively would be good company now. Aiden clamped his teeth. So what if she was different? It was time to change the subject. Well, it's not like Peashot's been any brighter since he twisted his stupid ankle, he said. Vale made an explosive sound from his alcove, but said nothing more. And anyway, Aiden continued, with all the time you spend with Roulette, soon you're going to start agreeing with all that talk about storms bringing monsters and death and the end of the world. Roulette's not stupid. And how do you know that the talk isn't true? I passed through Denilin, remember? That's where all the rumours point. I never saw anything like what the people are saying. Aidan wasn't entirely sure he believed his own words, 
but it felt a lot safer to mock strange claims than support them. As a cynic, he couldn't be pulled down. A cynic was already down. Well, said Hadley, I think we are heading for some eerie changes. A few weeks back, this group of people from a hamlet called Eastridge saw something fly overhead that was too big for a bird, and no, it wasn't a cloud. Whatever's happening, it's coming closer. Is this the point when you usually put your arm around roulette? Aidan asked. Peashot laughed. Hadley grinned and took it with his usual good humour. Oh, Hadley! Peashot squeaked in his most roulette-like voice. You make me feel so safe the way you pretend to believe all my rubbish so you can hold me in those enormous, muscly arms with your sleeves rolled so high and your chin stuck out fearlessly at the dragons and ghouls and... Ouch! Hadley landed a few more good blows that stopped the mockery, but he was unable to silence the laughter. She's never mentioned anything about dragons or ghouls, he said, trying in vain to present a serious defence to his laughing opponent. The other stuff is real. Even Lorimer agrees. What do you mean, even Lorimer? Pishot cried. He still believes in that nursery rhyme about footbiter fairies. That's why he always puts his boots on when he has to make a dark trip to the privy. There was no retort from Lorimer. What's he doing? What do you think? Hadley said. His eyes rolled with the words. But then they focused and glinted with that familiar, headlong enthusiasm. You two hold him down. I'll snatch the page. Hadley had been trying without success to get Lorimer to read one of his many poems, the first thing to which he had turned his fledgling literacy skills, and Hadley was not one to be put off for long. Aidan and Peashot sauntered past. Lorimer ignored them until they spun and pounced. By the time he had fought them off, Hadley held the page. It took all three of them to keep the tall boy down, while Hadley read in snatches. Aidan managed to peek at the writing, curious as to why Hadley was struggling over the simpler words. The problem was visible at a glance. Oi, daffodils are disgusting warts compared to you. People are blind and stupid if they can't see it's true. Everything else has grown ugly, now even food, even when it's mutton stew, because none of these are as pretty as you. Eshot had begun to snigger at the first line, Aidan at the second, and by the time the poem was finished, Hadley could read no more. The laughter was so loud that several boys appeared at the door wanting to know its meaning. Hadley was about to read for all, but Aidan seized the page and gave it back to Lorimer. The look on Lorimer's face had told him that the joke had gone far enough. Just something Lorimer wrote, Hadley informed the visitors. It was very good. Ah, said Kean, who is he being in love with this month? That sent another wave of laughter through the room. When they had the dorm to themselves again, Peashot began singing softly, Oh, the daffodil, such a disgusting wart. I've changed my mind about something, Vale announced over the chuckles. 
I think it's only fair to Lorimer that the truth of Peashot's sprained ankle be known. The singing stopped. Curious heads appeared from the alcoves, all except Peashot's. Come on, said Hadley. Enough suspense, tell us. Hadley, if you could push time along the way you push everything else, you'd be an old man before the month is up. Adley tapped his foot. The others grinned. It begins not in the training hall, as you all assume, but in Mistress Gilda's class. Those prize quills of hers became too much of a temptation to our friend, and I saw him filch one and slip it into his pocket. I think you can imagine that it would have been too long, so he must have pushed it through the material at the bottom of the pocket to keep anything from sticking out the top. It should have worked, but I noticed that in the next class, while Dunn was speaking, Peashot began gripping the left side of his trousers and getting into the strangest positions. I think the quill had begun to slip down behind his leg. That was when Dunn caught him fidgeting and yelled, setting him off on the blue circuit. Vale paused for effect. Peashot had not emerged. Well, guess what happens when there's a quill with two sharp ends held against the back of your leg? and you bend your knee to run. Another pause. Lights were beginning to show in the listeners' faces. Everyone else was so focused on his sprained ankle lie that they didn't see the little patches of blood higher up. He skewered himself. Lorimer's laughter outdid the rest of them this time. When the fit passed, it would start up again. He lay on his back, knees drawn up, feet pounding the mattress. Peashot, surly in his corner, was unable to do anything but wait. And the best part, Vale spluttered, is that he now has a fat cast on a perfectly good ankle and has to hobble around for two weeks and then attend reconditioning classes with Sister Edith for another two. Winter will be here by the time he's able to stop faking the limp. This time, twice the number of boys jostled at the door, begging to know the reason for the mirth rocking the building. But the little secret remained within the dorm. Only Kean would be told, but later. Lorimer was so tickled that, after the oil lamps had been snuffed, he continued to chortle to himself. And that's when it happened. Hick! Oh, no! There was a brief silence. Hick! Ouch! Lost, that was sore. Lorimer, that you again? Silence. Hick. Yep, it's Lorimer, again. Someone snorted. These blasted hiccups. If I could throttle them and smash them against the hick out wall. You know how embarrassing it was at the dance? Shut up, it's not funny. Silence. Hick. It was too much. There was a thump as Peashot actually rolled off his bed with hilarity. An assortment of remedies began to roll out from the various points in the dorm. Balance on your head or counting backwards from a hundred. No, hiccups are already backwards. You have to be upright and counting forwards. But it only works if you are standing in a tub of rotten sheep intestines. The smell chases the hiccups away. Fill your mouth with water and block your nose. You'll be too frightened to hiccup. Of course, if you still do, it's going to be bad. Inhale the smoke of a burning goat hoof. Has to be left four. Just do it outside, please. I tried all those, 
Larimer complained. Almost drowned with the water one. The sheep intestines made my boots stink for the rest of the summer. There was a brief pause. You mean you didn't take your boots off first? And stand in that stinking tub barefoot? No, hick, way. Another pause. Are those the same boots that are lying somewhere near your bed? Yick, oh, yes. The bellows and complaints that filled the air were enough to draw the night guard. Silence, he barked from the door. The next sound I hear will have to be explained before the disciplinary committee. Chapter 36 All subjects passed, student promoted to second year. Not all the results listed were exemplary, especially not foreign relations, but Aidan was satisfied. He folded the report and sped back across the lawn, through the passages, and into his dorm. He got no further than the entrance. The others were gathered around Lorimer, who was crumpled on the floor face in his hands, crying. He failed, Peashot whispered, and the excitement of the morning dissolved. They would all be entering their second year after the break, all except Lorimer, who would be put back with the new group of first-year apprentices. They watched him in silence. Hadley turned away and marched to the door. Don't let him out till I get back, he said. He was gone a long time, and when he returned, he closed the door before speaking. Master Giddard says it was only in languages and history where you failed, both difficult subjects for someone who has only just learned to read. He said, because of your behavior, he would let you try those subjects again in two weeks. Hadley looked around at the others. So, we have two weeks to get Lorimer ready. If we take turns, someone can be here all the time. They began immediately by collecting Lorimer's books from the various points in the room where he had flung them and tried to brighten them up. Lorimer was never quick to a mood, but when one took him, it carried him deep, and he had a long way to climb from his desolation. Peashot insisted on having the first shift. Aidan wondered how much good it would do. Peashot, though sharper perhaps than any of them except Vale, had lounged through those classes and stuffed most of his knowledge in right at the end. Aidan suspected his little friend had scraped over the bar tightly enough to leave skin behind, but he held his tongue and booked a later slot. A walk to the stables, he decided, would be just the thing to pass the time. Wildemar had recently begun their horsemanship training. They'd mucked out, fed, groomed, and learned how and when to shoe. It was only after several weeks that they had been allowed to tack and ride, and by this time they were quite familiar with the animals. The master was a stickler for horsey terminology and pounced on anyone who used the word horse for an animal under fourteen and a half hands. The animals that had been assigned to the boys were most certainly ponies. Aidan's was a young chestnut gelding that showed itself a ready worker with a gentle temperament. All the ponies they rode were small enough for boys to mount without assistance, though some of the boys looked every bit as uncomfortable as Aidan had once. But he was a little taller now, and his pony was a hand shorter than old Bluster, so he was among the more proficient riders. 
They had gone through the basics of the strides, and then learned to dismount, run alongside, and spring into the saddle again while the pony was trotting. There had been a few accidents, but nothing serious. With the growing confidence in horsemanship, Aidan had begun to spend snatches of free time at the stables, where he had recently made an interesting discovery. It was still mid-morning, and the whitewashed stable walls were dazzling in the young light. Aidan heard them before he saw them. Osric and Skeet were engaged in what might have sounded like a dangerous argument, but he knew Osric well enough to recognize the tone of earnestness rather than anger. Royal carriage or not, seeing any fine horse tied to an overgrown, dandified cart heats my blood. But what is a fine horse? Skeet retorted. No marshal will sit a Ruthrek. These animals are three parts fire and one part mischief. They offer us twenty gold carrick for this little beast. I would be robbing them at twenty carrick less. What could you have against him? He's the most perfectly formed colt I've seen in years. Nothing, nothing at all except that he sank his perfectly formed teeth into my arm twice and put his perfectly formed hoof through the door, and none of the grooms want to go anywhere near him. Well, if you let him bite your arm twice, then— Oi, Aiden, back away! He's more dangerous than he— The jet-black colt was straining his neck and twisting his head in a blissful trance as the boy scratched inside his ear. Looks. Or maybe he isn't. Aidan had been visiting the colt for the past few weeks, winning its trust with carrots and apples and anything else he could beg off Enna, who was always happy to oblige. Though he had never been the best rider at Badgerfields, he had always been comfortable around the animals, especially the difficult ones. Winning their affection had never failed to give him extraordinary pleasure. Osric and Skeet watched the interaction between the two. The colt was cheeky, no mistake but it showed no malice. It almost looked as if it were making a fuss over someone it had been missing as it nuzzled Aidan's neck, mouthed and licked his ear, then tried to dig in his pockets where the smell of apple lingered. Put a halter on him and lead him into the field, said Osric, folding his arms and leaning against the fence. Skeet looked worried, but Aidan obeyed, eventually. The colt fighting the halter as if it were the object of some new game. He led the tall animal out into the field and tied up the lead rope so it would not catch under the hooves, then let go. The colt looked around briefly, tossed its head, and shot away at a speed that shamed every other occupant of the paddock. It galloped a wide circle, bucking and kicking and spraying out clods of earth, a young whirlwind of unleashed horse. After another two or three laps, it charged up to Aidan and came to a skidding stop just in front of him. He gave it a good scratch on its tufty forehead whorl, and then walked across to a nearby pony and brushed its mane. The colt had been following, and pricked its ears at this display of rival affection. Ears went flat, teeth appeared, and the long neck stretched out and delivered a solid nip to unsuspecting hindquarters. The pony squealed and raced away to the music of laughter from the fence. When Aidan returned, Osric spoke. Skeeter's agreed that if you take responsibility for the colt, 
He'll end the negotiations with the royal stabler and sell him to me instead. He'll be yours, if you want him. Aidan gaped. He knew how rare these horses were, and he had some idea of the breed's uncanny intelligence and legendary speed. Also, the sheer impossibility of training them. But a Ruthrek, if it could be trained, would be worth more than a small house, perhaps even a large one. He thanked Osric with all the warmth of his excitement, and proceeded to thank Skeet, too, until the colt got tired of being ignored and nipped his shoulder, sending him diving away with a yell of pain. Skeet laughed, all the way back to the main buildings. For the next few days, Aidan read everything he could on the training of horses. Though the Academy's trainer was wholly unwilling to take on the responsibility, he said he would be prepared to assist, in a limited capacity. Initial results were utterly discouraging. To the cult, everything was a game. The lunging cord was a rope for tug-of-war, and the training switch something to be attacked rather than avoided. Bridling him was like trying to bridle the north wind during a hailstorm, and by the time Aidan finally managed to get the girth strap fastened, the saddle had been bucked off and trampled a hundred times. The leather was gouged and torn, but he could not afford a replacement. For the time being, it made little difference. The purpose of this exercise was to get the horse used to the feeling of carrying a weighted saddle. Along with his roguishness, the colt's intelligence was becoming quickly apparent. He avoided many of the stupid things that other horses did, like wind-sucking, incessant head-tossing, and kicking his stall to tatters during storms. He only kicked when he tired of being cooped up. Within days, he took charge of the fields. All of them. Fences were only another game, and he hopped them back and forth for the sheer pleasure of it. He even crossed over to the academy grounds, wandered into a classroom, and scattered the occupants while rearranging a few desks. He would suffer none but his master to handle him, so Aidan had to be called to fetch the renegade colt. The episode landed Aidan with the job of raising the fences. One morning, Aidan was busy being dragged around the paddock when he spotted Liru and Delwyn sitting on the fence near the stables, faces split with smiles and shoulders bobbing. He dropped the lunging rope and walked over. The colt, now interested in whatever Aidan was doing, trotted across too, dragging the rope between his hooves and watching so as to avoid stepping on it. Very unhorselike. He gave Delwyn a brief inspection, but Liru fascinated him. Her arm was still in a cast and sling, but there was something else about her that piqued his interest. He brought his nose up against her forehead and took a few long, deep breaths, then tried to get his lips around the hair, which, though finer, was as dark as his, gleaming with a hint of blue in the sunlight. Aidan saw what was happening and intervened quickly. I think you should tie your hair back, he said. I'm still working on his manners. The girls both tied their hair in buns while pouring out compliments for the sleek animal. What is his name? Liru asked. I was thinking of something that would describe him, and the best I could come up with was Midnight Hurricane. He looks like Midnight and acts like a hurricane, but it's too long. Liru pursed her lips and looked at the colt. 
Why do you not use the letters from that and shorten it to Mern? Aidan tried it out. Mern. Yes, I like that. What do you think, Delwyn? It's a lot better than the names I've heard the janitors calling him, she laughed. Oh, and the girl who tried to stroke him and got picked up by the hair. Aidan gave the colt a dirty look. Sometimes I think he deserves a name like Keep Well Away, painted all over him in stark white. Do you think he would stand still and let anyone paint him? Lero asked. No, it'll have to be Mern. Where is Lorimer? she asked. I have seen the rest of you, but it is like he is hiding in his room. In a way, he is. He didn't make it through the exams. Hadley got permission for him to redo the ones he failed, so he's going to be locked away for a while. We're all taking turns helping him with history and languages. Why did you not tell me? she asked, annoyed. I can help. I don't think it would do any good. If you remember, we had to learn two foreign languages this year. A few of us have a decent hold on Arunian, but then the other one we could use help with. You wouldn't be able to offer anything. It's really difficult. She snapped. Delwyn laughed, and Aidan smiled uncertainly. Loosely translated, Delwyn explained, it means you blithering, self-assured males. Lyra is almost fluent in Fen. She seems to have an ear for languages. She's better than me, even though I have a two-year start in her. Oh. And by this, said Liru, I hope that you mean sorry for making stupid assumptions and not asking your help for a mutual friend. Well, isn't that what O oh translates to in Fen? Loosely. Now, will you tell him to meet me at the tables under the plane trees, or do I need to risk punishment by finding him in his dorm? Aidan unclipped the lunging rope, climbed through the fence, and sped away. Mern cantered beside him until he reached the now higher fence, where he stopped, looked, and tossed his head. Then he headed for an adjacent field, sprang the lower fence, and set about persecuting the other horses. Lorimer was gushing with appreciation when he came out to meet Liru, but she swept the thanks away and set to work immediately, determining his level of proficiency and engaging him in the kinds of basic discussions that would be examined. Delwyn also asked for a turn, but Lorimer's blushes were accompanied by a complete lack of concentration. When discussing it with Aidan, she decided it might be best if she left the instruction to the others. Over the next few days, Lorimer was given all the attention he could endure. He was up early and studied late, absorbing as much as he was able. Aidan, when he was off duty, continued to spend his time skidding around the paddocks, clutching the end of a lead rope. Liru and Delwyn joined him often. They spent several afternoons attempting to train Mern, the girls providing commentary and laughter. Aidan was beginning to understand Skeet's original reluctance, but Mern was also beginning to see a determination in his young master that could possibly rival his own. They were gaining almost no ground in training, it generally being unclear who was in charge, but they were forging a fascinating bond that was becoming the talk of those who remained on campus during the recess. The big day arrived, and with the good wishes and backclaps of the five boys and two girls, Lorimer headed for his re-examination, 
The whole group waited on the lawn, fidgeting, pacing, making comments that nobody heard. Peashot was the worst affected. He began throwing stones with uncharacteristically bad aim, then paced, lay down, paced, climbed and fell from a tree, and finally took himself for a walk. He was back to check, perhaps, before Lorimer had even begun his exams. The rest tried to make small talk, but it all seemed too small in comparison to the answer they awaited. It was the longest morning of the year. In Peashot's estimation, about two and a half weeks. Finally, Lorimer emerged, looking haggard. All eyes fastened on his, all asking the same question. He strode quietly towards them, put on a shy smile, and nodded. The lawn erupted in whoops and cheers and congratulations. They all clapped his back, Liru hugged him, and Delwyn planted a kiss on his cheek that produced a dramatic change of color. The princess, it appeared, was losing her hold. The girls arranged a party at Liru's house. Her wealthy parents had a mansion large enough to accommodate them all. Another four of her friends would be there, so there would be dancing partners for all. And this time you will dance, she informed Peashot. The small boy was so happy over Lorimer's success, which he saw as largely due to his own coaching, that he was prepared to suffer a dance or two. As long as I don't have to dance with someone taller than me. Well, I'm shorter than you, so you can dance with me. Peashot considered this, stood next to her, and had Aidan measure to confirm the assertion, then nodded his approval. The party was an explosion of colour and music, and Madre hospitality left them all somewhat overwhelmed. Liru's father, a dark-skinned man with strong arms and piercing eyes, spoke to them individually, expressing his pleasure at being able to host them. He knew the names of everyone who had been involved in the fight, and before leaving them to their celebrations, thanked them for defending, among others, his daughter. Even Hadley, though he remained aloof, seemed impressed by the man. There was more food than they had ever seen at a private party, and it was all for them. Using a basic sign language Wildemar had taught, Peashot tried to convey cryptic instructions to Lorimer about stealing some food. He was furious when Liru raised her hands and signed, Wait! Wait! Go! Just as the butler turned his back. Lorimer acted like he had never seen a sight as beautiful as that heavily laden table. Until Delwyn entered the room, tall, graceful, smiling gently, and then he almost forgot to eat at all. Peashot found that, with Liru showing him the steps and matching his stroppiness with steel of her own, dancing was actually not so bad. Lorimer had clearly been practicing. He was now able to execute a few of the more complicated moves with a surprising level of control over his gangly legs. Delwyn was enchanted. No one felt inclined to sleep when the musicians left. The whole group took pillows and blankets and went up onto the roof where they watched stars and told stories and jokes that got progressively thinner. But the foggier the brains and the worse the jokes, the more the laughter. When the sun rose, it warmed them enough to nudge the whole party down to the dorms, where they slept until lunch. It was then that Aidan met Liru's mother. 
Even from across the room, he saw the pain of loss etched into her face. Deep gullies divided her brows, and shadows lurked beneath hollow eyes. It was a slaver attack, many years ago, in which her eldest daughter had been taken. He had not forgotten what Lero had told him. But in the mother's eyes, the grief was still fresh. Already I am in your debt, Aiden, she said, and more of you I will not ask. But my Lero has told me that we share wounds from the slavers, and word of your growing skill, it has reached my ears from many mouths. I want you to know that if it ever happens that you are able to strike against the flesh of Lekrau, you will be acting not only for yourself and for Theona, but for Madreel too. You will strike for the thousands who have lost and the thousands who fear to lose the ones that they love? Though I have no place to ask it, if you ever find my Eula for me, you will have the rights of a son in my house. She was the gentlest of souls. The last thing I heard from them as they dragged her away, it was that I should not worry, or she would be sold to a respectable brothel. Though her eyes had looked drained of every last tear, they flooded again. She turned and hurried from the room. Aidan slipped away and climbed the stairs to the roof, where he sat and gazed out over the rooftops and the distant plains, somber and still, under a deep and endless sky. Did she upset you? It was Hadley. He shot on Lero, arrived too. They sat down beside Aidan, looking out over the western grassland to the Palamine Ridge. Yes, said Aidan, but it was a good reminder. His eyes searched the vast space for a while before he continued. One day, I'm going to find Calorie's grave, and I'll plant flowers on it. Blue rainbells, those were her favorite. If I can, I'll find Leroux's sister, and then... He took a deep breath. Then I'm going to give Lekrow something to fear. I know you are, said Pishot. Just don't think you're going alone. Chapter 37 It had become known as the Lakeside Terror. Unlike most of the rumors circulating through Castith, this one seemed to have a measure of credibility. Though there were no confirmed sightings of the creature itself, many had seen the remains of men and livestock, and the remains told much. The bodies had been torn and mostly devoured. The discarded bones were crushed, and the ground was covered by prints too big for anything inhabiting those areas. Then two foresters reported hearing trees fall, where no loggers had been at work. The sounds preceding both falls had been the loud cracks of strained timber giving way, as if the trees had been pushed over. For the apprentices, this was of no small interest, and it completely overshadowed the talk reaching them from other areas. The reason was simple. Part of the year's training would send them in the direction of Lake Falundal, and its rumored terror. The academy reopened after the recess, 
and Aidan began his second year with a level of determination none of the masters had seen before. Turning fourteen didn't make him as tall as he wanted, but it certainly helped to raise his self-confidence. The classes were more difficult, the material more extensive, and the new languages, Vinthian and Sulis, were challenging, but he ate through it all like fire in the brushwood. Several more incursion reports only served to raise his sense of urgency. The Fen scouting forays were escalating both in frequency and size, and to the west, a Lecran raid near Port Breckley had shaken the locals badly. Over thirty families were taken from an undefended inland town, only weeks after their soldiers had been reassigned to fortify patrols around Castith. Aidan was growing convinced that he would be called to action well before his training was done. As he saw the walls rising up around the city, and listened to the ringing of steel from forges that did not sleep, he knew that war was no longer a question of if, but when. Dunn introduced them to the heavier weaponry, war hammers, maces, and flails. As before, he spent a lot of time on footwork and balance, ensuring that missed swings did not turn the apprentices around and expose their backs. He spent no less time on breathing, as heavy weapons tended to result in clamped lungs and rapid exhaustion. He began to work with siege weapons, too. Catapults, ballistae, battering rams, and even assault towers, studying the use as well as the construction and inherent weaknesses of various designs. While most of the boys thought primarily of the Fen, Aidan imagined a Lecran soldier in front of him every time he lifted a mace, and a Lecran ship whenever he aimed the ballista. There were many practical exercises now. The boys regularly accompanied rangers, senior apprentices and marshals on scouting expeditions. During these, they were heavily armed and took every precaution always searching for potential fen ambushes and never approaching from an exposed position. When spring arrived, the undergrowth became thicker, and they had to show even greater care. Everyone knew what Dunn was about to announce as he stepped in front of them at an unusually early breakfast. It was the long-awaited expedition to Drumley, the great city that stood on the banks of Lake Falundal. They had been talking and dreaming about it for weeks. It wasn't clear which held the most excitement. The lure of Drumley, the three-month suspension of normal classes, or the growing legend of the lakeside terror. Two saddlebags each, Dunn said without preamble. You are to wear your hauberks at all times, and carry sword, bow, quiver of thirty arrows, and at least one knife. I expect to see you saddled and ready to move out in an hour. Those who hadn't finished their porridge gulped it down like water as the rest clambered over the benches and rushed away to pack. The last one packed and saddled cleans pots tonight, Hadley shouted from the far end of the dorm. Nobody replied, but the sounds of packing and clinks, scrapes and clatter of weapons being strapped on became a lot more frantic. Peashot was the first out. His bags were spilling over and weapons projected at odd angles as if they had been poured over him. Aidan was next out. He looked no better, but didn't care. 
there were few things he hated as deeply as scouring pots. Before they reached the end of the corridor, they heard the others jingling behind them. It was dark, but they knew the grounds well enough to be able to nose their way down to the paddock fence without lanterns, and from there it was easy. They could hear the other apprentices running and shouting to each other behind them. It sounded like someone was lost and the others were laughing at him. Hadley caught up to Aidan and Peashot before they reached the dim lantern light of the stables and shoved them both out of the way as he charged towards his pony. It worked against him. His pony reared and began turning circles, making saddling a near impossibility. Vale and Lorimer ran in together. By the time they began saddling, Peashot was finished. But then he noticed he'd somehow managed to reverse the bridle and had to take it off and try again. Nobody was entirely sure who lost. It was between Hadley and Lorimer. So they voted, and Hadley was given scouring duty and a long face. The other boys weren't far behind, and soon all were mounted and ready. Dunn appeared on a large and powerfully built Rowan mare and called for silence. It's a seven-day journey. We will make camp together, but you will travel in groups of four separated by a hundred yards. You will stay in these groups for the duration of this outing and be responsible for each other. If you have personal disputes, leave them behind, unless you want to dispute with the cane. One marshal and one ranger will travel with each group. Learn everything you can from them. He squinted at a piece of paper. Groups are as follows. Bede, Kean, Hadley, Cade. Next, Wharton, Malik, Lorimer, Aidan. Aidan winced. None of the others in his group seemed pleased about it either. They moved to the side and were joined by a tall marshal in a long grey cloak who introduced himself as Cedric. He had all the refinements of a courtier, and everything about him was neat and clipped. Beside him was a ranger who looked as if he had slept under a bush. There were leaves tangled in his knotty hair, and several tones of earth staining a cloak that might originally have been any colour. He didn't introduce himself, didn't even make eye contact, but Cedric informed them that his name was Haywood. Dunn made a final count, moved to the front of the group, and led the way from the academy, past the guards, and into the waking streets of Castith. There was a short stop at the main gates, and then they were out of the city. At the second intersection, they took the northeast road to Drumley, and separated into their groups, as Dunn had instructed. Aidan found something dreamy about the experience of being on a walking horse early in the morning. It was like sitting on a branch, high in the air, as the wind quietly rocks it this way and that. The silence was restful, even a little mysterious, and he felt no need to disturb it with questions. As the day grew lighter, wooded hills began to appear ahead of them. Master Cedric, Lorimer said, why are we travelling in split groups? Malik and Wharton laughed, and Eden Aiden grinned. This had been explained more than once, but Lorimer had apparently managed to daydream through all the explanations. 
Just call me Cedric, the marshal replied. No need for master. The reason for the split traveling is because of the terrain ahead of us. Those tree-clad hills provide excellent placements for archers. If we travel in a single group, one volley from a few dozen bows could finish us all. But when split up, enemy scouts would only be able to attack one group and, in doing so, give away their position to the rest of us. A split force is a very unappealing target. Do you think we'll see Fen scouts? Not likely, but if you mean, will we be seen by Fen scouts, then I'd have to say, probably yes. Where we'll be traveling, it's not that difficult to watch while remaining unseen. It goes both ways, though. We have many of our own people watching all over Fenlaw. Surely you've been taught about that. A little, said Lorimer, but it seems much more real out here. He wasn't the only one feeling that. Aidan's eyes were now fixed on the hills. He noticed that Malik's and Wharton's were too. By midday, they had left the plains. The road began to weave between gentle slopes covered in natural forest. In most places, it kept to whatever open ground there was, but often it was swallowed by trees. They continued to talk, but quietly, their eyes questioning every shadow, searching out any hint of movement. Haywood remained as aloof as he had shown himself at first. He rode slightly ahead, ignoring their conversation for that of the forest. It was late afternoon when he drew to a halt, his attention fixed on the road ahead. The groups in front of them stopped as well. What is it? Lorimer asked. Listen, said Aidan. The drumming of hooves grew louder, and they saw a lone rider take the corner. He came to a stop when Dunn raised his hand and blocked the way. After a brief conversation, Dunn whipped around in his saddle and made a gesture the marshals caught and passed down to the last group. Even the apprentices knew that signal. Speed. They set off as the rider, who was dressed like an official courier, passed them in the other direction. When the horses looked tired enough to drop, Dunn allowed them to walk for a mile or two, and then pushed ahead again. They slowed the pace as the light faded, but Dunn kept them moving until it was too dark to see the road. Because the groups maintained their separation, there was no way to ask what had caused this sudden change. Lorimer was sure it was a rescue. Wharton and Malik thought a Fen base had been captured. Aidan couldn't choose from the dozens of possibilities that surged into his mind. When they made camp, Dunn called the marshals and rangers to him for a brief conference. Then he walked over and addressed the boys. We rest until midnight, he said. When the half-moon rises, we set out. The horses will be tired, but we have no choice. If we push hard, we may just reach Drumley on the third day. The boys were silent. There was no need to ask the question. It's another sighting of their so-called terror, Dunn said. This time it was a forester that was killed and mostly eaten. And we are riding towards it, Vale asked. Dunn put his hands on his hips. We believe it is the work of a specialized group of Fen spies. We think they learned about local rumors 
and are mimicking those rumors, fabricating evidence for the legend, convincing people that there is a real monster. The talk of this so-called lakeside terror has now taken such deep root that it is keeping local watchmen out of the forests. I think you can guess why the Fen would want that. To stage an invasion, said Malik. Exactly. In those forests, they could build and hide enough catapults to flatten the walls of Drumley in a matter of hours. Well, that won't happen for months, if not years, Malik said. Why are we rushing? The sightings of this terror are rare. So far, nobody has been able to track it. Partly because the evidence is always too old, and mostly, I believe, because they are looking for the wrong kinds of tracks. The rider told me that the spore at this latest sighting is fresh. It is my hope to get there before it rains. I'm going to raise a small regiment at Drumley and go hunting. It's high time to expose this subterfuge and get the foresters and rangers back where they belong. There were no fires that night, and no cooking, which suited Hadley just fine. Dried meat and biscuits weren't entirely satisfying, but nothing to complain about for boys who had missed lunch and were hungry enough to eat their saddles. They would be up in only a few hours, so they wasted no time spreading blankets on the ground and rolling up. After getting up twice to find and brush acorns out from under him, Aidan finally began to slip away, just as he heard his name being whispered. Huh? he replied. Do you think Dunn is right? It was Lorimer. He hasn't even considered that this terror could be real. What if we are riding straight towards something much worse than Fen spies? When you went through Dunelan, can you say for sure that there was nothing out of the ordinary? Aidan thought of the curious three-toed prints and the deep, bellowing call that not even his father had been able to identify, and of the experience at Kultum that still gave him nightmares. He always shied away from saying it openly, but there was something frightening about Dunelan, something unnatural, and Drumley was not far from its outskirts. There were some things that we couldn't explain, Aidan whispered, but everyone's imagination goes wild in that region. I'm sure Dunn is right. I need to sleep. But Lorimer had planted something in his mind that interfered with sleep in no small way. At midnight they rose, saddled, and set out again in the pale light that, under the thicker branches, was hardly light at all. On the third day of travelling in this manner, they entered the area where the Fen were suspected to be working. Dunn made them ride with their bows strung, and held at the ready, quivers open. Aidan was only too eager to comply. They had been allowed to choose new weapons at the beginning of the year, and for mounted archery, he had selected an unusual three-quarter-length flatbow made from mountain juniper. It was broader than his old hickory riding bow, and with a sinew backing, the draw weight was greater, and the recoil deadly. He was longing to put it to the test. Most of the rangers and marshals, Aidan noticed, kept an arrow on the string. The talk came to an end. 
Everyone watched the forest on either side of the road. It was early afternoon when a distant cracking of branches caused Haywood to rein in and face a high bank to the left, drawing and sighting down his arrow between the trees. The others did likewise. After a few tense breaths, there was another crack, closer, louder. The horses began to sidestep and back away. With a sudden eruption of snapping and crunching, a large speckled forest deer burst out through a section of dense foliage, charged down the bank, leapt over the road not ten feet away, and disappeared into the trees on the right. In his fright, Lorimer had released his arrow. It still quivered in the mossy trunk of a dead hawthorn. Well, that was, he began, but Haywood cut him off with a sharp hiss. The ranger's eyes were still fixed on the bank where the deer had emerged. As Lorimer understood, he pulled another arrow from his quiver with such haste that he fumbled, dropped it, and barely managed to catch it against his saddle. Aidan had ignored the deer and, like Haywood, had not taken his eyes from the bank. Whatever had frightened that deer was intimidating enough to make the threat of their party insignificant. The deer had barely noticed them. Another two groups cantered up from front and back. Cedric whispered what he had seen, and twelve more arrowheads swung towards the top of the bank. It was little more than a suggestion, but Aidan knew he wasn't the only one to have noticed it. The sound was so deep, it was barely audible. It was like the distant thud of a falling boulder. He was almost sure the leaves trembled. They waited for a long time. The rest of the groups joined them and took up similar defensive postures when they were filled in, but they neither saw nor heard anything more. Haywood and another ranger dismounted and ran fifty paces to either side of the bank, where they crawled to the top. When they returned, they shook their heads. Permission to search in the forest, Haywood asked Dunn. Aidan was half surprised that the silent ranger was actually capable of speech. The stocky master scratched his chin in thought. It interests me, he said at last, but I suspect it's nothing. I don't think the fen would bother working this far out. If we dig around here too long, we may lose our chance to find real evidence at that last attack site. We must get there before it rains. Groups, separate as before. With that, he rode to the front, and they resumed their journey. But now nobody watched the trees on the right. There was a visible relaxing of shoulders as they descended a long hill, and finally broke out into a wide, grassy strip that fronted Drumley. It was only after they had travelled some distance into the groups of people at work that Aidan stopped looking behind him and began to turn his attention to their destination. Drumley didn't sprawl like Castiff. It was as well-proportioned and neatly built as a child's model castle. The walls were high, and sturdy towers rose behind it. With its many spires, each trailing pennants long and multicolored, it looked as if the travellers had arrived in time for a festival. On either side, walls and towers extended into the water of Lake Volundal, obviously protecting the famous harbour 
the source of Drumley's wealth. The local fleet traded with fishing and farming villages all the way up the east coast, and a large harbour at the north end of the lake allowed the Arunian trade to flourish. But there was a very big difference between this Drumley and the one that graced so many paintings and sketches. In front of the picturesque main wall, a second wall was beginning to rise from the ground. It was already twenty feet high. Engineers, stonemasons, and common labourers swarmed over it while soldiers stood guard. Like Castith, this was a city under threat, a city fortifying itself against the dreaded tide of flesh and steel. Dunn presented the necessary documents at two checkpoints before reaching the main gate. Here, he left his horse with the guards who knew him, and hurried away to the military headquarters. Entering Drumley was a different kind of experience to entering Casteth. There was a large courtyard behind the main gate, which opened into streets that were narrower but neater and cleaner than Casteth's, lined by buildings that were taller, three stories on average. The people seemed less rowdy, better dressed and more refined. Aidan was surprised to recognize some of the clothes as Arunian, lace shirts, billowing skirts and feathered hats. He hadn't seen these since the last trader's market he had visited at Crossroads. They dropped their bags in a small guest dormitory not far from the harbor. The day was spent, but a glimmer of sunlight still lingered so Cedric led them all down a neatly cobbled street to the harbour. It was the first time Aidan had seen a harbour, and without a doubt the sense to make its report in the loudest voice was the sense of smell. While walking along the wharf, where quiet waters lapped against the piers, and boats swayed and creaked at their moorings, he caught the look on several faces as a particularly thick pocket of late afternoon air unloaded its breath on them. Peashot covered his mouth and tried to conceal his laughter from the supervising marshals. Drumley's beauty, it seemed, came at a price. In their groups, they climbed the stairs of a lighthouse to the lantern room and walked out onto the balcony. Here they leaned against the iron railing and stared. Lake Falundal was even bigger than they had imagined. Distant ships were specks drifting with the wind, gradually sinking into the shadows of a bronze horizon. It seemed impossible that they could cross such an expanse. I would attack from the water, said Lorimer. Much easier access to the city. You would have to build ships on the lakeshore in order to do it, said Malik with a snort. It takes years to build a navy. Could build rafts. That's quick. You know how easy it is to sink rafts with catapults? They move too slowly on still water. Rafts are for rivers. Well then, I'd wait for a windy day. Lorimer, how ignorant are you? Have you learned nothing of sail? Rafts don't have keel, so they can't beat into the wind. If you wait until you have a wind that blows into the harbour, you'll have to launch a raft somewhere along this coast, paddle into the wind and then across it, which is just as difficult, and then when you're finally able to sail in for the assault, your troops will be cold, wet, and exhausted, 
then the catapults will still get most of them. Have you seen how many catapults face the lake? They looked now. Every tower was crowned with at least five, and there were many towers. With their height, the range would be impressive. Aiden knew it wouldn't just be rocks. Oil and fire would rain down in abundance. He understood little of sail, but decided that Malik, though less than polite with his views, was probably correct. A harbour attack was not likely unless the Fen stole all the fishing vessels along the coast beforehand. A familiar voice struck them from somewhere down below. There he is, said Wharton, pointing. It was growing dark, but small as he was from this height, Dunn was hard to miss. The way his arms were moving, he did not look happy. They hurried down just as he finished speaking to the assembled boys. What did we miss? Aidan asked Peashot. The local commander refused to let any of his men go out tonight, not even the foresters. No one is going to show us the attack site until morning. I'm not complaining. Don't think I can ride another yard today. All I want to do now is sleep. You obviously haven't heard who's here. You'd better clean yourself up. We're dining in the governor's second hall, and we have company. Chapter 38 So why did you not follow it? Lero's eyes were bigger than usual. Ilona, Lillette, the tall ginger-haired girl that still held Hadley's interest, and Beatrice, the small mousy one at the table, were spellbound. Don was in a hurry, said Wharton. You sure your master Don wasn't just scared? Ilona asked with a knowing smile. Anything that could frighten a deer so that it didn't even notice you must have got him thinking. Don wouldn't have been scared, said Malik, with a hint of pride for his weapons master and a tone of scolding for his cousin. He just doesn't want to lose the chance to uncover spies. So is he going to head out and hunt for them tomorrow? Actually, said Aiden, I have a feeling we are all heading out with him tomorrow. Why do you think they joined our groups like this? And look at the way Dunn is talking with your guardian. What's her name? Mistress Kern, Ilona said with a sigh that held no affection. She looks tough, said Lorimer. Does she frighten you, ladder boy? Ilona asked with mock sincerity. Malik and Wharton grinned. Seems to be frightening that forester, said Aiden, indicating. It looks like he had a fight with his wife, Liru said. That face is more unhappy than scared. Well, Ilona mused, if he's married to someone like Mistress Kern, it would be both. The girls nodded. Aiden wouldn't have thought them friends back at Castith, but they had apparently drawn together under the shadow of this common enemy. Lorimer was done with all the talk. Food was calling his name. He took up his plate and joined a queue. The others followed. The hall's oak tables were arranged around a longer central table that was loaded with steaming fish, duck, sausages, potatoes, and trays of breads, cheese, preserves, and fruit. Over a coal pit alongside, haunches of venison sizzled and dripped, filling the hall with an aroma that almost had Lorimer whimpering. 
He took something of everything and ended up with more than any mortal could devour in one sitting. Aidan was curious about the fish, but the smoke of roasting venison drifted across to him and the fish lost its appeal. They got back to their table and Malik was the first to speak. If you lot are going with us tomorrow, he said, I hope you know how to keep the noise down on the trail. All four girls raised their eyebrows. So you think you're more capable than us outdoors, do you? Ilona asked. Would you even try to challenge that? She fixed an icy look on her cousin. Aidan was very glad not to be on the receiving end. It was surprising how such pretty eyes could look so dangerous. Let's have a little challenge, she said. When these two foresters leave, you follow one, we'll follow the other. The winners are the ones who find out where their man lives without being seen. What's to stop us from lying? Nothing will stop you from lying, Malik. The others in your group aren't as good at it, so we'll ask them. Speak for yourself. Ilona glared. It wasn't hatred that passed between them, more like the species of contempt found acceptable between some close relatives. Aidan pretended not to notice, and gave his attention to the meal. A group of musicians entered the hall, took their seats, and began filling the air with the magic of flute and fiddle, and something that looked like an oversized lyre. The range of melodies was impressive. Obviously, the songs had been collected from various points all along Volundal's shore. When the meal was over, Dunn made a brief announcement. There was no curfew, but they should expect to be woken before sunrise, and were to travel in the groups they were now sitting in. Looks like the foresters are leaving, said Wharton. Ladies, do you want to choose one? Think we need some advantage, do you? Ilona snapped. Yes said Malik. She sneered at him. We'll take the smaller one. The other, the grumpy one, will be easier to track, and if we choose him, you'll bring it up later. With that, she stood, and the other girls with her. They acted it well, seeming to pay no attention to the forester that they were pursuing out of the building. Wharton took the lead as the boys got up and followed the other man. There were more groups starting to leave, so they blended in well. When they got outside, it was different. The girls were standing nearby in conversation. One of them would be watching the retreating forester and would give the signal as soon as he took a corner. The boys were about to adopt a similar tactic when they saw how fast their man was walking away. He was supposed to be grumpy and slow, said Wharton. If we let him get too far ahead at that pace, We'll lose him after one turn. So they pretended to take a walk in the same direction. The forester was clearly in a hurry. He chose a street leading to the harbour, and when he reached the wharf, he turned left and headed along the water's edge. The boys had to run to catch up. They stopped at the corner, overlooking the docks, and peered around. He's running! Aidan exclaimed. They hurried after him at a brisk walk, weaving from one side to the other, avoiding lamps. We're going to lose him, said Wharton. We need to run. Lorimer, please try to keep your feet quiet. The wharf had several boathouses 
that constantly blocked the view of their quarry, whose pace seemed to be increasing. He was now a very small and indistinct shadow. No need to run anymore, said Aiden. He's reached the wall. Can't go anywhere after that. And it's going to look strange if we run up to him. Let's walk from here. They slowed and gradually closed the remaining two hundred yards. Can anyone see him? Lorimer asked. Can't you? said Malik. In the shadow of the wall. Aidan squinted but saw nothing. As they approached, it began to look more and more like nothing. Where, Malik? he asked. Malik ignored him and increased his pace, walking ahead of the others. They reached the wall. There was no Forrester. Wharton turned around a few times, then kicked the stonework. Is he a ghost? How does anyone get through a wall? He must have spotted us, Aiden said. Great, Malik sighed. Nice work, you lot, especially Lorimer Thunderfoot over there. So what are we going to tell the girls? The truth, Lorimer ventured, and dropped his eyes at the look Malik gave him. Hey! Aiden was inspecting the stones. It looks like this section of the wall could be climbed. Aiden was already off the ground, but Lorimer and then Malik called him back. Malik had the most to say. Get down from there, you uncivilized northerner. If you get caught climbing the city wall at night during these times, you'll put us all in jail. Anyway, why would a forester climb the wall? He must have slipped away into one of these buildings, or maybe onto a boat. That water is dark as ink. They spent a while looking here and there without much hope, before giving it up and returning to the dorm, where they crawled into their beds. The others were already fast asleep. The mystery might have kept them up longer if they hadn't been so tired. The room was filled with lantern light when Aidan felt himself being shaken from his dreams. If you want breakfast, you'd better hurry, said Lorimer. They were the last to leave. At the dining hall, the tables were the same, and the girls were already seated, steaming bowls of porridge before them. Aidan and Lorimer filled their bowls from one of the three large copper pots on the food table, spooned out cream and honey, and then collected the last two mugs of steaming goat's milk before joining the others. So? Ilona asked, her voice charged with a confidence that told the boys what they feared. Malik looked at his bowl. He got away, Wharton mumbled. Alona said nothing for a while, just smiled. Ours lives eight blocks to the west, in a little apartment on the fourth floor. He had no idea that he was being followed. Well, yours wasn't running, Wharton complained. Running? Lero asked. Why would a man run home? Did he see you? I don't think he saw us, said Aiden. Must have had some other reason. There he is now. It doesn't look like he slept much. Serves him right for making us lose, said Wharton. It looks like he feels bad about it, too, said Lero. He seems even more unhappy than last night. Maybe he is married to Mistress Kern. It was a large party that rode out through the main gate but even though day had broken, it was impossible to see more than thirty yards in any direction.
Drumley was known for foggy mornings, and this was proving to be one of its finest. The miserable-looking senior forester rode up front with Master Dunn and Mistress Kern, both of whom appeared undaunted by the weather. The rest of the Queen's envoys that had accompanied the girls from Castith were apparently giving this outing a miss, and perhaps for good reason. Aidan had no doubt that Dunn was going to do all he could to turn the fascinating mystery of the lakeside terror into a lecture. They rode about five miles east, crossed a stone bridge, then took a narrow farm track that cut inland between the hills. After another two miles, the trees disappeared as they passed into a shallow basin that, by the almost sweet yet still pungent smell of cow flops, was used to graze cattle. Here they met a mounted group of about ten foresters and forty soldiers. We're not taking any risks, Aidan overheard the senior forester explain to Dunn. If you and these students are hot on our watch, we'll have to answer to Castith for it. The escort formed a shield around them, and in this way they continued to ride into the fog. Aidan was growing bored and began to look around. His eyes fell on the forester to his right. The man's clothes were mostly of a dark green, similar to the material he remembered seeing in his father's wardrobe. The cloth was old and soiled, but what caught his attention was a dark stain on the back of the jerkin, around a small tear. It almost looked like the forester had recently been hit by an arrow. It was when he noticed something similar on the leather chest piece of one of the soldiers that his dreamy mind awoke. Clues began to slip into place, and suddenly his stomach was in his throat. Wharton, he called under his breath. Wharton looked over with an unfriendly expression. He had been talking to Ilona. Have you noticed the damage on the clothes of our escorts? Why would I care about that? It looks like they've been attacked. Well, they look fine to me. What if they were killed, and the men wearing their clothes are the ones that kill them? Wharton took a deep breath to answer, and then held it as he looked at Aidan. Ask Ilona if they were told about the killings in the area. How many from Drumley have disappeared? Wharton turned around and passed the question on. The answer came back quickly. She said about a dozen foresters have been taken, and maybe forty-five soldiers over the past year. Aidan tried to keep his voice low and steady. Without being obvious about it, look around you and count. After a few glances around him, Wharton turned back to Aidan, and his face was pale. Liru moved her pony up alongside Aiden. What is it? she asked. Aiden explained what he had just said to Wharton, and then he interrupted himself as he realized something. It was guilt. That's why our forester looked so upset. I'll bet that the Fen spies caught someone he loves and are forcing him to give them information. That's where he went last night. He did climb the wall. He probably went to warn the spies about Dunn. That's why the soldiers met us outside the city, because they were never inside it. We are being escorted by our enemy. Liru's face showed no emotion. Her voice was less controlled. I think you are right. But what are they waiting for? Probably leading us to their main force before they turn on us. Aiden, you need to tell Dunn. 
I will. But you start spreading the word. Try to make it look like a joke. Tell them to laugh and pass it on. She nodded and turned to Wharton and Delona as Aidan broke ranks and cantered to the front. Aidan, Don said. What are you doing out of formation? Get back. Sir, there's something very important. Did you not hear your master? Mistress Kern snapped, her voice icy. The forester, who was riding alongside, was looking at Aidan as well now. Whatever he said would be heard by many pairs of ears. At the point of giving it up, he had an idea. Sir, it's Lorimer. He keeps saying Stavlos over and over. I think it's the illness returned. Please take a look at him. Stavlos was the Vinthian word for trap, and Lorimer had never had a recurring illness. Dunn looked at Aidan without saying anything, but there was no doubt that the message had been received. Very well, he said. I'll take a look. He told the forester to lead on and directed his horse to the side of the column where he brought it to a stop and asked Aidan in a weary tone to tell him more. While gesticulating, as if describing belly aches, Aidan dropped the facts in between references to an illness that he had described in detail whenever a soldier passed by. Hadley had just finished telling Vale a joke, and they laughed as they rode past, though their faces showed little amusement. That's the news being passed forward, sir. Dunn nodded. I thought something was odd when the soldiers met us out here. I wish you'd told me about the forester last night, but we can discuss that later. Right now, we need to have a look at Larimer before he infects everyone with his sickness. The soldier passing by looked across at Dunn and turned his horse a little further away from the column. Dunn rode up to Lorimer, tested his pulse, prodded his belly, and gave a few words of medical advice, which Aidan guessed had something to do with not fumbling his arrows. Then the weapons master nodded to Aidan and rode back to the front of the column. What did he say? Aidan asked. String our bows, pass on the message, and get ready. Chapter 39 The fog was causing droplets to form on everything. Bowstrings would not do well in this weather, and any soldier would know. Fortunately, the escort seemed mostly concerned with the trees that were just beginning to show on either side. It was a brief lifting of the fog that allowed them to see the forest closing in as the basin constricted to a funnel up ahead. Aidan had no doubt that the ambush point was approaching. He planted one end of his bow in a stirrup, pushed the handle out, and pulled the other end down. He wished now that he had chosen a bow with a lighter draw weight. At last he managed to slip the loop into the string grooves. He was surprised to see that Liru was ready. Her hands were clearly skilled at a good deal more than tying bandages. Dunn was going to use hand signals to coordinate an attack on the escort, but as the fog thickened, Aidan lost sight of Dunn altogether. The message would have to be passed down, or maybe everyone would just have to copy those in front of them. It was going to be a mess. They rode on, the tension increasing as they glanced at each other, their eyes all asking the same question. How long? Trees on each side were now probably within bowshot. 
Dunn should have given the signal, and everyone knew it. Aidan dropped back to where Cedric rode at the tail of the column. Something is wrong, he said. He's waiting too long. Dunn knows how to judge an encounter better than any of us, said Cedric. He must have a reason. What if he's unable to give the signal? He was riding up front with Kern and the Forester. If the Forester is false, maybe she is too. Maybe when he told her what was happening, she slipped a dagger under his ribs, and maybe there are soldiers riding behind them so no one can see. Cedric strained his eyes against the fog. I'll go and check, he said. If you hear any shouting at all, even if you can't understand it, take it as an order to attack. Spread the word. Fast. The marshal rode ahead, into the whiteness. Aidan returned to his position and, in a voice shaking with nervous strain, gave the new instruction to those around him. He hoped it would reach everyone in time. I think we should get arrows on strings, Malik whispered. Aidan nodded. The others saw them and copied. Keep together, Aidan said, raising his voice just enough for the group to hear. Remember how they have been torturing and killing. Whatever happens, we can't surrender. We escape or we fight. If they capture us, we die. He could see that the others understood all too well. Aiden, Liru said. Good luck. Good luck, Liru. The trees were less than forty paces away when there was a furious yell from somewhere up front. Aiden felt every muscle tense, and his tongue wanted to freeze in his mouth, but he yelled, or rather shrieked the word they had been waiting for all this time. Attack! Several more voices took up the cry. All along the column, bows sprang up, arched and released as strings thumped. It was a disorganized volley. Several arrows struck home, and a few of the impostors fell. The rest, taken by surprise, let out shouts that were very clearly in Fen, and galloped out of range, pursued by arrows. Some of them managed to send a few arrows of their own back. Aidan saw a ranger jolt and shudder beside him as a shaft sank into his neck. He choked once, then fell from his horse. Reverse column! It sounded like Cedric's voice. Back to Drumley! They spun around and were about to urge their mounts forward when a line of horsemen appeared in front of them. The retreat was cut off. This time Aidan didn't wait for instructions. The forest, he yelled. Follow me. He turned to the side and galloped away, up the slope of the basin to the trees. It wasn't that he wanted to be in charge. It was simply that hesitation would have meant death. He could hear the others behind him, but when he reached the top of the bank, he glanced over his shoulder and was surprised to see that only his group had followed. He could hear noises, shouting and galloping and the occasional slap of a bowstring but it was too foggy to see anything. Three soldiers appeared from the mist about seventy yards behind, then another two after them. They were about to reach the bank. Aidan wheeled and drew to a stop. Shoot! he yelled, knocking and drawing an arrow. His aim was a little off, but the shot was close enough, catching a soldier in the leg. Around him, another seven arrows zipped away, one after the other. Two more pursuers were hit. One fell, and the rest swerved into the cover of mist. Before the men reappeared, Aidan urged his pony into the trees and immediately turned to the left, 
cantering just inside the tree line, keeping an eye on anything that might be revealed in the basin. We need to get back to Drumley and alert the troops, he said to the others. And leave the rest of them behind, Wharton exclaimed, riding alongside. We need help, Wharton. You know it's the right decision to go back. If everyone stays to fight, the news might never get back. What if there are two hundred fen out there? There was a brief pause. Well, how are we going to find our way back? In this fog, we'll just get lost. If we keep the clearing on our left, and then do the same with the road, eventually we'll get to the lake. Then all we have to do is ride along the water's edge, and we'll get to the city. Enough talk, said Malik. We need to be fast and quiet. He moved to the front. Aidan looked at the others. Relette and Bernice were trembling, their faces white. Lorimer was glancing all around him with jittery movements that suggested he was not seeing much. At least the others seemed to be less shaken. As he turned around, Aidan's eye snagged on a section of the forest exposed through a narrow rift in the fog. Something was out of place. A movement. But it had been at the very edge of his glance, and he wasn't sure what he had seen. The motion of the horse made it difficult. He stood in the stirrups and bent his knees with the stride to keep his head level, then looked again. Far away, hidden by layers of crisscrossing branches and passing trunks, he thought he saw leaves move as if a tree was leaning, which made no sense on this windless morning. But it was so far away that it was difficult to be sure. Then the fog closed in again, and it was gone. He didn't want to risk saying anything for fear of being ridiculed, but he was beginning to wonder if there was more to worry about in this forest than men. He urged his pony forward to catch up. The undergrowth became thicker, and they had to slow to a walk. Leaves were heavy with damp, and branches hung low, drenching heads and shoulders as the party moved under them. After a mile, the ground became uneven and their path was repeatedly crossed by shallow gullies and large rocks. Shouts cut through the mist on the left. The language was Fen. There were answering shouts from behind, and then someone called from directly ahead. Malik reined in. What do we do now? Roulette moaned. Deeper into the forest, said Aiden. We'll have to go around. But we'll get lost. I don't care what your master done said. The stories I heard about this creature seemed real to me. The only lakeside terror that ever existed, Malik scoffed, is this gang of fen spies. Let's go. He urged his pony to the right, heading away from the basin and into a darker section of the forest. Fallen sticks produced muffled crunches, but the dampness of the morning had softened the ground, and the progress was relatively quiet. They travelled about two hundred paces when Aidan whispered for Malik to stop. What is it? Malik asked. I think I heard a noise like a hoof stomping. Direction? I'm not sure. Let's get in between those rocks. That will hide us from most angles while we listen. They moved carefully over into the shelter. Thick pine fronds helped to conceal them further. They waited and listened. The next time, everyone heard it. Two stomps and a snort. Further away, a branch broke. It was not the thin snap of a twig, 
but a deep, throaty crack that echoed between the pillars of trunks. It was a sound that told of considerable strength. A man spoke. He was too far away for the words to be clear, but the intonation was Fen. It seemed like a question or a challenge. For a long time there was silence, but it came to an end as horses began to stamp and snort. It was obvious that they had sensed something dangerous, and their riders were not heeding the warning. Then there was a sound that none had expected. It was a growl, but deeper than anything Aiden had ever heard. A man screamed, and several more began yelling, their voices shrill and terrified. Crashing undergrowth and drumming hooves began to fill the air. The sounds grew louder, until it seemed as if the horses were going to gallop right over the rocks. Half a dozen riders, clad in forest colors, shot past the gap. Then the ground began to tremble. Ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum. They could feel it more than hear it, and it grew nearer and nearer. Aiden was already frightened. He knew of no animal that could shake the earth like that. But then something passed in front of the gap, and he went completely numb. It was too quick a glimpse to make out details, but there was no missing the size. It was easily twice the height of a horse, three or four times as long, and obviously many times heavier. But its movement, apart from the dull thudding, was nearly silent, and the speed was simply staggering. It was a flash of dark fur, a tearing of wind, and then it was gone. Rillette gave a muffled shriek, and Lorimer dropped both bow and arrow. The yells and the pounding receded into the darkness of the trees, and silence gradually returned. They listened, but there was nothing more than the distant call of a lark and the dripping of water from pine needles around them. What? What? Ilona gasped, unable to find more words. That must be it, Roulette whimpered. This time, nobody opposed her. Aidan was battling to comprehend what he had just seen. He edged out from the pines, glanced about him, and looked at the ground. The debris of old branches and leaves made prints difficult to spot, but he saw depressions that could have been left by hooves, and then something that looked like a paw print, only that it was bigger than the lid of a barrel. There was no creature in Therna that should be able to leave a print like that, and this one had not been faked. As he watched, he saw pine needles unbending inside it, and water oozing into the lowest part of the depression. We need to get away from here, he whispered, as fast as possible. He led the way out from their shelter, and picked a section of the forest where the undergrowth was sparse, allowing them to canter. Everyone kept looking back, dreading the sight of a towering shape, or the shivering of trees as something brushed against their trunks. After a few miles, Aiden was beginning to think he might have the direction wrong. In this fog, it would be easy to travel in a large circle, and head right back to everything they were fleeing. They pushed on for another mile, when the trees ahead began to thin. As they drew nearer, they saw that it was only a narrow break ahead of them, like a road 
This is the road we took, said Lero. I remember that silver birch tree with the broken limb. The lake is to the right. Let's get on to the road then, said Lorimer. We need to get over this forest. I'd rather keep to the trees as long as possible, said Aidan. There's a chance some of the fen have come back this way to set up another ambush. Aidan's right, said Alona. Most of them probably won't know about that creature we just saw. Their only concern will be to prevent any of us getting to Drumley. They would definitely block the road. They retreated, and, once over a ridge, trotted another two miles through denser undergrowth until the trees thinned again. This time it was a broad, grassy expanse that appeared ahead of them. The lake would be hidden by the mist, but everyone was sure it was straight ahead. They hurried down a bank and broke into a canter. There was still a chance here of turning circles in the fog, but the gradual downward slope was enough to guide them to the lapping water. There was no need to tell anyone to turn left. Malik and Wharton rode up front. This time, Aidan brought up the rear. His worry now was that their ponies' hooves would draw any fen that might have been stationed out here. He was not wrong. The noise of his own pony masked the sounds of pursuit. But there was no mistaking the purr of an arrow that flew over his head from behind. Malik! he yelled. Faster! They're behind us! The cautious canter became a gallop. They had to stay near to the water's edge in order to keep their direction, but that did not make for the best ground. There were channels to be jumped and buildings to be avoided. As yet they had reached no fences, and Aidan hoped furiously that they wouldn't. The ground was uneven, and his pony landed badly after the second jump. Both Aidan's feet slipped out of the stirrups, and he slumped forward, almost falling over the pony's head. He lost some ground while regaining his seat and stirrups. Keeping a bow in hand was making this difficult. That reminded him that he already had an arrow clamped in the same hand as the bow. Steadying himself, he turned in his saddle and sent a wild shot into the fog behind him. As he released it, he wished that he had looked first. A group of riders was just beginning to appear a little to the left of where he had aimed. Another arrow hissed over him. Shooting from a moving horse was difficult, but sooner or later something was bound to hit. Sure enough, a third arrow sped past Aidan and sank into Lorimer's arm, just beneath the short sleeve of the hauberk. He screamed and dropped his bow for the last time, and put his head down and urged his pony to greater speed. The ground dropped away. River! Malik shouted. They slowed just enough for the ponies to crash through the water that was above their knees. Then they charged up the far bank and set off at a gallop again. Lero and Ilona both turned in their saddles and released arrows. There was a cry from behind. Malik spun around and tried to shoot, but Roulette was in his way. There's Drumley, Wharton yelled from the front. But he had turned to shout at a bad time. His ponies stumbled in a ditch hidden by long grass and he vaulted from the saddle, turned over in the air, and hit the ground on his back. It was clear by the looseness of his tumbling body that he had been knocked unconscious. Aidan hauled in his reins and leapt to the ground. Don't stop, he yelled to the others as he noticed some of them were slowing. Get word to Drumley! Go! 
There was no time to drag Wharton's heavy frame onto the saddle, so he whipped his pony's hindquarters with his bow, sending it dashing away. He'd seen a low hedge nearby, and he dragged Wharton by the arm over the grass as the earth began to pound. A small figure appeared silently alongside him and took Wharton's other arm. They sped over the grass, behind the hedge, and dropped down as hooves tore up the grass beside them and vanished into the mist. Leru, Aidan said, I told you to get to the city. And I chose to ignore you. I saw a building in the mist about a hundred yards back. We should take him there. They each wrapped one of Wharton's arms over their shoulders and half carried, half dragged him down the slope. Leru was right. It was a large mill on the shore of the lake. They climbed the stairs and tried the double doors. They were locked. Knocking produced no response. Here, said Leru. She let go of Wharton's arm, picked up an axe from a nearby woodpile, and swung it at the center of the doors. Aidan considered offering to help, but he had a feeling this would not be taken well. In any case, Leru seemed to be quite capable. The way she managed the axe revealed that she was considerably stronger than she looked. On the third swing, the lock gave way. They dragged Wharton inside and closed the doors behind them. We need to barricade this, Aidan said. His eyes scanned the dark interior. It was a wide but shallow room where he imagined farmers would deliver sacks of grain to be milled. He couldn't see anything to use as a barricade, but several pots gave him the next best thing. He piled them up in front of the doors until they balanced in a four-foot-high column. At least no one would be able to enter unnoticed. Lero hadn't stayed to help. Aidan, leave the door. She called from somewhere deeper in the building. I've got an idea. Aidan grabbed Wharton's arm and gave it a tug just as the large boy woke up. Hey, let go of me. He swung at Aidan, skimming his chin. Steady, Wharton, it's me. Lero is here too. Keep your voice down. We don't know how far away those fen spies are. Wharton hung for a moment in a blank stare and then recognition displaced the vacancy in his eyes. He staggered to his feet and, after a few groggy steps, found he was able to walk. They moved into a large, dark room where three millstones stood idle amid a white dusting of flour. The sluice to the water channel outside was obviously closed, because the axle of the water wheel that passed through the wall was still, along with all the gears and shafts that would turn the heavy stones. In spite of this, the room was not quiet. The tumbling of water from the mill pond outside was almost loud enough to cover their footsteps. Leaving the room, they entered a large storage area filled with sacks, where Leroux was uncoiling a rope ladder and lowering it through a trapdoor. Loading bay, she said. There are rowboats underneath us. It must be how they transport the flour into the city, and it is how we are going to get into the city. She stepped onto the rope ladder and climbed down through the trapdoor. Aidan turned to Wharton. Your head clear enough for this? He asked. I'm fine, said Wharton. They looked down. Leroux was settling into a large, flat-bottomed rowboat moored at the base of the rope ladder. 
Wharton gripped the ropes on the sides, stepped onto the rungs, and began lowering himself. Aidan wished he would hurry. The whole ladder was shaking. Wharton was beginning to freeze up. Wharton, this is not the time to go blank. They could be here any moment. Try to... A loud crash of pottery echoed up from the far end of the building. Chapter 40 Wharton, Aidan whispered. Move it! Wharton looked back, uncomprehending. Clearly he was not as lucid as Aidan had thought. Leru, Aidan called down. Get into the water and push the boat out of the way. We're jumping. As soon as he saw the path was clear, he drew his sword, aimed at the ropes above Wharton, and swung for all he was worth. The edge was keen, and it sliced through the coarse fibers, dropping the incredulous Wharton down through the air and into the water with a loud splash. Aidan sheathed his sword and followed, crashing into the dark water just as Wharton surfaced. The large boy looked fully aware now, and ready for a fight. But there was no time to apologize. They hurried over to the rowboat that Lyra was holding as the sound of voices reached them. It was a near thing. The boat was just sliding out from under the loading floor and into the lake when footsteps began to thump on the boards. Four soldiers looked down through the trapdoor. One of them lowered himself and dropped into the waist-high water. It didn't take him long to spot the rowboat escaping into the fog. He shouted to his companions and splashed across to another boat moored nearby. Three more soldiers dropped into the water and scrambled on board while the first began to row. The others unslung their bows and took aim. Arrows zipped away as they surged forward in pursuit. In the darkest shadows, behind a large structural beam, three heads rose from the water. Let's move, said Aidan. Climbing the beams to the trapdoor was difficult, but easier than it would have been to wade through the dark water and scramble up the muddy bank of the lake. Aidan was the first back on the loading floor. He turned to help Liru, and then Wharton, who, though clear-headed, seemed to be in considerable pain. They sloshed over the planks, through the building, and into the entrance room where they stopped dead. A fifth soldier was here, his back to them, sword held ready. Standing in the doorway, with leaves still clinging to his hair and clothes, was Haywood, the ranger. He held a short sword and a knife. The two men were clearly sizing each other up. It was the soldier who moved first. He stepped forward with a short, powerful swing at neck height. Haywood deflected the bow with the short sword and tried to slip in with his knife, but the soldier reversed his swing and nicked Haywood's ear. The three apprentices yelled and drew their swords together. Haywood had already seen them, but the soldier had not and he spun around. Haywood darted in and knocked the man on the head with the back of his knife. It wasn't enough. The soldier turned and almost ran his blade through Haywood, but the ranger deflected the thrust and struck again and again until the sword dropped to the ground and the soldier fell. Don't kill him, Haywood said. He must talk, and we must get away from here. There is something nearby that is not man or horse. The others exchanged nervous glances. 
Did you see it? Aidan asked. Heard it, said Haywood. It's heavy. Broke a footbridge after I crossed over. That was a few miles back, and I think I left it behind. But in this fog, there's no knowing for sure. Aidan looked out from the open doorway. It reveals little more than grass and mist. If it weren't for the Fen spies that were bound to return, Aidan might have opted to wait until the weather cleared. Let's go, Haywood said. Next Fen party that searches this mill could be twenty men strong. He threw the unconscious spy over his shoulder and led the way outside. They discovered six horses tugging at reins that were fastened to a hitching rail. They weren't this nervous before, said Haywood, looking around. Quickly now. Aidan felt his skin prickle as his eyes began to dart all over. He was caught between the urge to escape and the need to know where the threat was. Haywood approached his horse, and it calmed slightly at its master's presence. The others dashed across to the remaining horses and did what they could to bring three of them under control. But their own fear, betrayed by constant terrified glances, undermined their efforts. They knew that as soon as the reins were untied, the horses would take off. Haywards was the only one that was manageable. Mount, the ranger said. I'll untie and throw you the reins. There was a heavy splash not too far away. Was that from the soldiers at the lake? Lero asked. I don't think so, said Aidan. Wrong direction. I can't see the river that we crossed, but I'm sure that's where the sound came from. He gripped the leather pommel and leapt off the ground, half pulling himself up into the saddle. Having to manage the horse without reins distracted him for an instant, but the deep thud was just loud enough to catch his attention. He glanced at Liru. She was also in the saddle now, and the way she was looking out into the mist told him that she had heard it too. Hurry, Wharton, Aidan called. A slight break in the fog showed him something he hadn't expected, an enormous hayrick about a hundred yards away. His mind lurched, disorientated. I don't remember riding past a hayrick, he said, suddenly unsure about his sense of direction. Was the river behind him? Which way was danger and which way was safety? The ranger had been walking across to the hitching rail, but he went completely rigid and followed Aidan's eyes just as the fog closed in. They don't make hayricks here, he whispered, pulling the bow from over his shoulder. Get back to the mill. At least there you have a chance. But nobody moved. They were frozen in their saddles. And then it was too late. There was a deep, unearthly growl, and everything began to shake with a dull pounding. The ranger's hand flew to his quiver, and he started shooting arrow after arrow into the fog as he backed away. His horse pulled the reins from him and bolted. The remaining horses reared as one. It was too much for the wooden hitching rail. The beam snapped, reins came free, and the horses shot away with screams and snorts. Aidan tried to look back at Haywood, but he almost lost his seat and had to grip the mane in order to right himself. He reached twice for the reins that were alternately slapping against the horse's flanks and skidding along the ground. If they got caught under a hoof, it would be equally bad for horse and rider. There was a shout from somewhere far behind, 
a thump like a falling rock, and a shriek of pain. Then the pounding resumed, and it did not seem to be fading with distance. Realization struck like a hammer. It's following us, Aiden screamed. The horses were already galloping for their lives. Aiden gripped the saddle and leaned forward, trying again to snatch his reins as they twisted like mad snakes. Finally he caught them, but they gave him no control, seeing as they ran along the left of the horse's head. He attempted to flick one side over the ears, but at this speed it was hopeless, and if he fell... A slight thinning of the fog revealed walls and spires. Apparently these horses had once belonged to the city stables, and they knew the way to safety. They sped by the perimeter turrets, along the moats in front of the new outer wall, and dashed between sentries to the main gate. It was only here that Aiden realized the sounds of pursuit were gone. The horses didn't stop until they reached the portcullis, where they almost collided with a large mounted regiment heading out. It took several guards to get the panicking beasts under control and make it safe for the riders to dismount. Aiden leapt from the saddle and ran to the front of the departing regiment. He noticed that each soldier was wearing a red band around his helm. He guessed the reason was to be able to identify the impostors. Whoever commanded this regiment was thinking clearly. Sir, he called out, addressing the captain at the front of the column. The man looked at him. Sir, we've just come from the mill. There's a large animal in the fog that attacked us. I think our ranger is hurt, and there are four fen spies that are probably in the building. There's another one that should be lying somewhere outside. We took their horses. The captain's look had changed at the mention of a hostile animal, but he controlled it. He turned to his soldiers, ordered them to ready their spears, and lead a charge down to the mill. Aidan waited just outside the gate with Wharton and Liru for some time, before part of the regiment returned. The red-banded soldiers were carrying the Fen imposters, and Haywood. When they reached the guards, they lowered Haywood with gentle hands. There was a lot of blood. His left arm was bent in strange ways, and there was a red froth coming from his mouth. Crushed, said Liru softly. I've seen this before. Can... Wharton looked away before trying again. Can he survive that? It looks bad, she said, but these rangers are tough. Maybe. The soldiers that had brought Haywood and the Fen captives or corpses in didn't seem to have been unsettled much. Aidan guessed that the rumble of approaching horses had caused the animal to retreat into the forest. Look, said Liru, pointing into the courtyard behind the main gate. Our group! They hurried over to where four of their original numbers stood in a huddle. You made it, Ilona and Roulette cried together, and Ilona actually embraced Liru. Malik gripped Wharton by the arm. Where's Lorimer? Aidan asked, suddenly worried. They took him to the infirmary, Ilona replied. He'll be fine. The courtyard was filling with all manner of people who wanted the news. Officers were beginning to chase the crowds off to make space for soldiers that were tramping in and forming patrol squads. I want a better view, said Aiden. He pushed his way over to a long flight of stairs that reached the allure of the main wall. The others followed, and the guard on duty, after hearing who they were, let them pass. 
They spread out behind the battlements and looked away into the fog for a long time. It was clearing slightly, but little was visible beyond two hundred yards. There, said Malik, pointing directly ahead. A very large group that must have emerged from the trees was moving down to the main gate. That looks like everyone, said Ilona. I wonder how they managed to stay together. The mystery was soon cleared up. They met Cedric in the courtyard below, amidst a general commotion. I'm sorry I couldn't stay with you, he said. Did Lorimer fall? Arrow in the arm, Malik replied. He's just resting at the infirmary. That is a great relief. Cedric mopped his brow with a wet sleeve. How did you manage to escape? We lost you right at the beginning. We broke to the east, said Malik. Went through the forest to the lake and then along the water to the city. The marshal nodded. Impressive. Did you all break west? Aiden asked. Yes, and after that we didn't see a single spy. I think they decided that, once we were prepared, we were too big a number to take on. I suspect they saw you heading in the other direction and pulled all their efforts into finding you. If it hadn't been for this fog, you would have had no chance. A regiment has been sent out to hunt them, said Aiden. Think they'll have a chance? Doubt it. They may find one or two, but nobody enjoys hunting in the fog. Too easy to run into your enemy. What happened to Dunn? Wharton asked. Why didn't he give the signal? Poison dart. I think it was the Forester's work. It's not deadly. They would have wanted him alive. But I expect he's going to sleep for most of the day. There's one more thing, said Aiden. We saw something in the forest and again down by the lake. It was big, and left prints that— Aidan, there's no lakeside terror. We came across the Fen camp and found the moles they'd been using to make those prints. They had tools there to mimic the work of giant fangs and claws, large hammers to crush bones, even ropes and pulleys for hauling trees down. It was ingenious, but Dunn was right. All a very clever hoax. But, Cedric— we actually saw something. In this fog? How clearly could you see it? It was just a flash, but I'm not making it up. I didn't say you were, but patches in the fog can take on strange shapes. It left a print. I could see pine needles uncurling inside it. And it attacked us later and got Haywood. Cedric looked at him for a time, then at the others in the group. There is no lakeside terror, he said. And if you spread a story that says otherwise, you will either find yourselves ridiculed or in serious trouble. I hope there is nothing foggy in my meaning. Aidan wanted to argue, but after a brief inner battle, he looked away. No, sir. I think we understand you very well. Cedric frowned. I hate speaking like this, he said but I'm also under orders. Getting regular patrols back into this forest is a crucial step for the defense of this region. He sighed, then turned and left. I'm pretty sure he believes us, Ilona said. Believes us about what? Malik asked. Didn't you hear him? That kind of talk is going to lead to trouble. 
Aiden, I hope you are planning on keeping your tongue still. I'll say what I want, Malik. I know what I saw. No, you don't. None of us saw anything but a shadow in the fog, and if you say otherwise, you're on your own. He walked away, and everyone but Liru followed him. Wharton stopped, glanced at Aiden, then Liru, and hesitated for an instant before turning around again and leaving. Is that his way of saying thank you? Liru asked. It's more than I expected. You should have seen what he was like a year ago. Wharton's not comfortable with things like thank you and sorry, and he probably doesn't want to look weak in front of Ilona, as if he needed us. He'll probably look out for you from now on, though, in his own way. It's not all bad. It's Malek who annoys me, as usual. I thought he was changing, but he's still the same two-faced weasel. Malik is scared, Liru said. Cedric was not bluffing, and Malik knows it. He has a lot of the politician in him. He will act as if he did not see anything. If you speak of it, Malik will make you look superstitious and frightened. I know, said Aiden, and we all understand the reason for Cedric's orders. It just makes me wonder how many more people have been told to keep quiet. What I am wondering is why the Fen would remain in the same forest with that animal. Aidan considered the question. Maybe it wanders a lot. Maybe for months at a time, and it only just came back to this area. Maybe the Fen heard the rumours, but never actually believed it was real, until today. That sounds like a good theory, but it is wrong because there is no lakeside terror, remember? Liru was starting to shiver. I'm going to the dining hall. I'm wet and cold, and if there is no fire, I'm going to light the curtains and blame it on you while I warm myself. Aiden sighed. The sad thing is that everyone would probably believe you. The group avoided talking openly about the creature they had seen, but they fielded a host of questions concerning their movements. Apparently the other groups had enjoyed a rather boring trip through the forest after the first volley of arrows. Malik and Wharton did most of the talking, but when someone asked Malik if he had considered turning possum again, he went completely silent and left the table shortly afterwards. Dunn recovered during the afternoon and was brimming with his usual energy by evening. The following day he gave the apprentices the updates. Only seven of the Fen spies had been caught and, no doubt, interrogated. Nine had been found dead on the battlefield, the treacherous forester was never seen again. Inquiries revealed that his family had been missing for a fortnight, and they, too, were never found. After the first foggy morning, the rest of the week was hot and dry. The shallow film of moisture that had coated everything was lost in the day, and by the end of the week the woods were dry as tinder. On the ranger's recommendation, the governor ordered that the forest be set alight. The official reason was to clear the undergrowth and lessen the number of hiding places. Aidan was fairly certain that the more immediate purpose was to drive an unwelcome denizen from the area and hopefully back to Denilan. Most of the trees survived the blaze, but the dry undergrowth with its collection of dead sticks and leaves was ready to burn, and burn it did. Crimson flames and a wall of smoke 
advanced through the forest and far into the distance for three days before rain brought it all to an end. There were no more sightings of the lakeside terror, either real or engineered. Patrols were sent out on regular sweeps of the forest to keep it clear. They uncovered the charred remains of a few more fen camps, but there were no signs that any foreigners had remained in the area. For the next two and a half months, the apprentices learned all they could of Drumley, from its culture and commerce to the strength of its walls and the range of its catapults, which they were permitted to test under strict supervision. Sailors taught them the essentials of oar and wind, and took them to some of the East Shore villages, where farmers were ready with sacks of grain, barrels of preserves, and bales of wool. To Aden, the hills behind these villages looked as fertile and verdant as the northern countryside, and they gave him a twinge of longing. But he found himself looking down into the lake as much as over it. The limpid water revealed rock shelves that dropped away into sapphire depths, where enormous carp glided over waving water ferns that looked just like trees swaying in the wind. More than once, the boys begged permission to jump overboard and splash around in the water. But Aidan always dived under the surface and drifted over this submerged world, his imagination leading him as he sensed the thrill that a bird must feel at being able to defy the pull of the earth and simply glide. There was one place near the shore, an inviting cove, where they were not permitted to swim. The sailors called it the Dragon's Moor. Even from half a mile out they could see the vortex of swirling water. It was thought that an underground river escaped the lake at this point. The Moor was said to be responsible for the loss of several fishing vessels that had been lured by the sheltered aspect and deep water during stormy nights. The secluded cove, with its inviting grassy shore, suddenly took on an entirely new character. Everyone was only too happy to see it dwindle over the stern rail. One of the sailing trips ended at a low island where Don led the way over sharp black rocks to an ancient wreck. Most of the ship had collapsed and disintegrated, but the basic form of its hull and the solid ironwood keel told of a large, well-built vessel. Aidan guessed what Dunn was going to say. The wreck was thought to have belonged to the lost Gellerac fleet that once dominated the waters of the lake. They walked around the dry, flaked timbers for a while, silent, imagining the lives that had surrounded it. Dunn and Kern, along with the other senior marshals and queen's envoys, divided themselves among the groups and used every opportunity to broaden the apprentice's knowledge. Aidan found that as his knowledge of the lakeside populace grew, so did his appreciation for this part of Thirna. Three months came to an end. There wasn't a single apprentice that hadn't fallen in love with the quaint streets, busy harbour, and magnificent lake, but fond as they'd become of Drumley, they were ready to go home. As they rode out the main gate, with the spires and pennants now behind them, everyone was looking forward to seeing Casteth again. Though Aidan had heard nothing about the creature he had seen, he didn't fail to notice that the marshals and rangers 
now carried long spears in addition to their other weapons. The trip, however, was peaceful. Haywood had survived. They were all relieved to see it, but he had not been left unscathed. One arm hung limp and shriveled in a sling, completely useless, and he sat hunched in his saddle, looking weak and broken. This return trip would likely be his last official commission. On the first morning, Aidan rode up alongside and thanked the ranger for his selfless bravery. Hayward only nodded and turned his eyes back to the forest. Shouts rose up from the front group as their city came into view. If it hadn't been for the busy roads, the boys would have raced each other to the gate. When they arrived back at the academy, it was still early, and they were given the day off. At the lunch break, Lorimer took the first opportunity to talk about the creature to anyone who would listen. When it leaked, Malik took the first opportunity to openly contradict Lorimer and mock him. Aidan looked up to see Wharton frowning at Malik's words, but they both knew that if they sided with Lorimer, the news would spread, and it would be worse for all of them. Aidan pulled his friend aside afterwards. Lorimer, don't you remember the way Ganavant threatened us after that meeting at the palace? It's the same here. They don't want this talk spreading. Lorimer wasn't really listening. He threw a book against the wall with his uninjured arm. I told the truth, and Malik made them laugh at me. I thought we had become friends. That's just Malik. Back here he's got more people watching again. He doesn't want them thinking we are his friends. We're not his class. Anyway, by making everyone laugh at you, he actually helped you. Not intentionally, though. If people believed what you said, the trouble would start. You'd get another invitation to the palace. The dark underground part. And this time you might not get out again. Lorimer was silent for a while but eventually he nodded. I'll keep it to myself from now. But Aidan, what was it? Today I went through all the charts in the library that have all the animals known in Thirna. Nothing matched. You grew up in forests. Surely you have some idea of what it could have been. Aidan shook his head. It was something from a dream. And that's where it's going to stay. At least I hope it stays there. He frowned. What is it? Aidan scratched his head. I keep getting this feeling we'll be sent even further east before too long. Maybe even into Denelan. I'm sure that's where this animal came from. And whatever it is, I don't think it's the worst thing out there. Not even close. Chapter 41 After a few quiet weeks at the academy, the boys began a series of shorter outings that took them to various locations in the area. They also went to see investigations and arrests within and around the city, where they could observe the grey-cloaked marshals exercising some of the skills that had made them legendary. The real work of the grey marshals, the watching of surrounding nations and preempting of danger, was something the young apprentices would not observe for many years. It was during one of the local patrol outings 
that Aidan decided to ask a favour. Over the past weeks, suspicion had been growing to a horrible certainty. His father's threat was turning out to be real. Twice he had caught glimpses of coordinated movement around him. The first time, he had doubled back, sprinted at his supposed follower, and dodged past. The second time, it walked right into the trap. Men rose up from dirty corners ahead and flooded in from behind. They almost caught his feet as he scrambled up a blocky wall and escaped over the roofs. It had been very close. He was patrolling the same area now with two marshals when the sensation of being tailed crept up on him. After glancing behind, he asked the marshals if they would help him. They agreed and took another route while Aiden headed on, shadows closing around him. He appeared at the top of an alleyway a short while later, bolting like a rabbit with a pack of half a dozen club-wielding men close behind. The pursuers were gaining on him. He put on a burst of speed, took the corner, dashed past the two heavily armed marshals, and turned around to watch the collision. The gang might as well have tried to run through the city gate. Closed. With iron-capped quarter-staves, the marshals struck clubs from numbed hands with beguiling ease. Aidan marveled. The blows fell with speed and precision, making short work of the six men who were summarily arrested and packed away behind bars for a long respite from their labours. The gang would provide no information, but Aidan was fairly certain it was his father trying to bring him in. His teeth ground as he considered what he would have done to the man. While walking back from the prison, a comment Lero had recently made came to mind. It wasn't the first time it had returned to haunt him. She had said that the hate that sometimes looked out of his eyes was worrying her, that it would not be good for him. But who was she to criticize? Of all people, she should have been the one to understand. He tried to push her words from his mind. In order to improve their communication skills, the boys dined out four nights a week with families that were native speakers of Arunian, Fen, Vinthian, and Sulis. There were many such families associated with the academy. At these dinners, the apprentices spoke only the language of the hosts, learned their manners, grew familiar with the national foods which they learned to prepare, and paid attention to the more subtle aspects, such as humor. Every second class of each subject was now presented in a foreign language. Environment, Aidan was beginning to understand, was foundational to their training, and it underpinned a great deal more than language studies. They were required not only to learn from, but to live in a wide range of environments. The first was the wild, where they continued to develop their survival skills, trapping, fishing, hunting, and, when necessary, scavenging for food. Locusts, slugs, worms, and even certain roots were among the last choices. They were taught to recognize the rocks like flint and chert, sharp and hard enough to strike a spark from steel. Then Wildemar took away their steel and taught them to make fire with wood, friction, and blisters. The next environment was a little easier. 
Each boy had to study at least two trades, common jobs that would be found in any town or city, jobs where it would be possible to find employment and slip into the working ranks of any society. They were allowed to apprentice to farmers, butchers, masons, blacksmiths, tailors, cobblers, and several more. Aidan chose livestock, farm labor, and carpentry. He showed himself a natural hand with the animals, and within weeks proved himself the most useless carpenter's apprentice in all of Castith. Whether it was a lack of patience or just the wrong kind of head for angles and planes, he produced consistently unsellable work. His chairs never balanced until he'd sawn so much from one leg and then another that the seat was halfway to the ground. His tables were never flat, the wobbly joins never flush. Even Kean, whose positive enthusiasm knew no clouds, seemed to despair of Aidan's prospects. For Aidan, the smells and feel of woodwork were nostalgic, and he did not regret his choice, though he stood alone in this. The training environment that followed was something unexpected. For many, it proved to be the most trying aspect of their preparation. They were clothed in rags and sent for three weeks to work beside the poorest and lowest. Fullers, street cleaners, lime burners, gong farmers, and worst of all, the tanners, whose days were spent in the heavy fumes rising from concoctions of urine, dung water, and animal skins that slowly rotted until the hair could be removed and leather produced. The boys would then spend their evenings in the worst alleys, where their sleeping bays had been arranged and paid for by the academy. The streets were territorial, and newcomers were not smiled on if they did not show the proper monetary respect to the alley lords. The program had been running for years, and the boys were expected and tolerated as the outsiders they were. Here they discovered a world that many of them had happily consigned to ignorance. For those from wealthy families, the shock was beyond words. It was not just the matter of hygiene. On the narrow back roads of the seeps, the veneer of civil society was missing. The brutality of selfishness and the rule of might wore no genteel cloak and stood behind no formal niceties. Here, in full view, was that which was swept under the carpets of the rich. Aidan's worries about his father's thugs subsided a little after a few days. Perhaps, he thought, they had lost interest in him. Still, he found it difficult to sleep and jolted awake at every sound. Like the rest of the apprentices, he was distressed by the roughness of street ways when there was no law or money walking past. But soon he began to notice kindness and generosity, too, though there was little to be generous with. Old men gave their bread to a sick friend. A woman defended another's baby from a drunk. Children without parents took care of their siblings, shouldering responsibilities no child should have. At first, Aidan was not accepted into any of the surprisingly close-knit spheres. But one evening, he gained the friendship of two old men, Garold and Hayes, when he stood up to a young, truncheon-swinging thief who wanted their small meal. After a long, hushed discussion, the men called Aidan over to sit with them, instead of, 
retreating so lonesome-like. There was no trouble finding a topic of conversation, for they were deep in the streams of rumour that continued to flow in from the eastern towns. The ideas on which they wanted Aidan's opinion made roulettes seem tame, and it was not only talk from the east. These be strange times, Garold said in a raspy voice, cracked with wear and age. Since that unnatural storm with its lightning strike, looking like gold and fire pouring into the earth, there's something changed here. At nights, sometimes I'm feeling things in the ground under these old bones. Shakes and shiverings that don't belong in rock. You mark my words, boy. There's something been disturbed under this city. You be sure to tell them folks back at the academy. When the three weeks were up, the ragged apprentices made their way back to the academy. A few of them were in bad shape. Seeing as the program was under Collis's supervision, they complained bitterly to him about the exercise. Collis let them speak. After several had told their stories, he explained. There are few things that can be properly understood without experience. If you learned weapons from a book, how useful do you think you would be? There were a few murmured replies. Not very useful. Understanding a society means understanding the whole society, not just the part that dresses well. As marshals, you will need to understand a city's structure from one end of the social ladder to the other. Circumstances on an operation might require you to adapt, to hide for long times where you were not expected to, or to seek information where you would rather not. But more importantly, the exercise was to move you to empathy and broaden your understanding of what it is to be human. Much as he struggled to accept anything from Colis, Aidan had to admit that there was sense here. The experience had not been the most enjoyable, but it had brought a new depth to what he saw when he looked out over the city. For the first time, some of the apprentices were beginning to understand the plight of the lower classes, not as an idea, but as hunger and thirst. Peashot remained silent and morose through all of it. Aidan had once visited him in his alley. The little foxy-eyed boy had grunted at the attempts to spark conversation and remained facing the wall, hacking and scratching gravestones into the bricks with his knife. His mood lingered through the following week, when Colas began a series of classes on religion. Colas's introduction was a relatively cynical description of the old faith, the belief in the ancient, the creator who was said to be before all and above all. He then moved on, with far greater enthusiasm, to the rich tapestry of faiths now accessible. Eklanism, Telresh, Khorism, Shendra, and several more. Peashot raised his hand and said, without emotion, that he thought all religion was stupid and wanted to know how a tapestry of lies was a good thing. Colas, trying to control his voice, asked how anyone could dare make such a statement. Peashot replied that he was surprised anyone could do otherwise. In the argument that followed, 
he managed to offend almost everyone in the room with his forthright and tactless evaluations of their beliefs. Colas, while he believed in many obscure things, did not believe in the cane. Before the class was done, he shot succeeded in converting him. As the apprentices were required to take partners to the dinners and learn how to conduct themselves in different cultures, they saw the girls from the medical class regularly. Delwyn caused something of a stir when she partnered Lorimer for the first time. But it was Ilona who made them stumble and stutter and knock their tongues when asking her to partner them. She was growing prettier by the day. The boys were all noticing, and not just the boys from their class. Heads were turning wherever she went. It gave Aidan an oddly protective feeling. He had wanted to walk with her several times, but the words always got stuck when she smiled at him. And she had begun smiling at him often. By the end of the year, Man had grown so big that Aidan had to stand on the fence to saddle him. His coal coat rippled with eager young muscle, and though he still had the slender form of a growing horse, he was already the most impressive occupant of the stables. The only other person who dared enter the paddock with Aidan was Liru, so Aidan asked if she would be prepared to take the lead rope on his first attempt to ride. He waited until midday when Mern was normally a shade less spirited, tacked him, gave the lead rope to Liru, and climbed gingerly up, up, and onto the saddle. Mern bent his neck around and gave Aiden a good inspection. His ears flicked slightly, and he looked back at Liru. Aiden gulped. But these were two people Mern liked, so he allowed himself to be guided in a circle his long steps requiring Liru to move very fast to avoid having her heels trod on. The plan fell apart when Mern caught the scent of something that belonged to him in one of Liru's pockets. She had been nervous to begin with, and when the huge muzzle pushed against her and began to dig, her self-confidence fled. Mern discovered the pocket, his efforts doubled, and Liru sped up until she was running for the fence. Aiden had to endure a high-speed trot. It ended at the gate with an abrupt halt that spat him from the saddle and dropped him a long, long way down to the ground. Mern seemed confused and nosed him until he got up laughing and rubbing his bruised hip. You've got something edible in your pocket, haven't you? He said to Liru. Liru found the carrot and looked very embarrassed. Mern eased her embarrassment by snatching it away and making it disappear. Things began to improve, but very slowly. It wasn't that Mern was a slow learner. It was that he was still very much a young storm of an animal, a very big, fast, and powerful storm. Aiden knew he was not rider enough for such a horse. Not yet. Lorimer had worked hard on his literacy. His lantern usually burned as long as Aidan's, and the two of them often studied after the rest of the dorm had sunk into darkness. As the examinations approached, his dedication infected all around him, except Aidan, who was already driven, and Vale, who had no need to be. Information apparently attached itself to this boy's mind like burrs to expensive clothing. 
The new languages, Sulis in particular, provided some good entertainment owing to its unusual structure. It was a vastly different language to any of the others learned thus far. Towards the end of the year, Giddard presented them with a collection of Sully's memorabilia and commentaries. Loosely translated, some of them would have read, The grass sparkled with dew droppings. Watson, I am not sure if that is intended as a beautiful or a horrible image. I was taught to extinguish right from a wrong. Speed, apparently not. Sulis are always inviting you to go for dinner to get murdered. Ian, it would seem from this that Sulis are enthusiastically hospitable, transparent of motive, and not very good at committing murder. All are grave errors. Sulis food on heads with never eat hats. Cade, Sulis order word important very is. It must learn you. The year's final practical assessment took them on a one-month journey to Harrenville. Here they were required to assess the level of war readiness and obtain information and instructions using each of the four languages they had been taught. On their return, they were to complete a series of tests which included making weapons, hunting for food, building shelters, tracking and covering tracks, memorizing a map, and finally— the aspect on which the assessment hinged, present a full report translated into all of the foreign languages studied and an accurately drawn map indicating their movements. Aidan was put in a group with Hadley, Kean, and Cade. They travelled with a ranger and a guard of six soldiers. Harrenville was not a city, it was more of a large village between forested hills. For defence, it had only stockades of sharpened tree trunks, but the locals had dug a moat and embankments that would slow an attack, hopefully long enough for aid to arrive from Castith. Huge signal pyres, of course, stood ready. Aidan was both impressed and concerned by the preparations he saw. Though the spiked wall told of immense labor by few, in the back of his mind it was a hard reality. The Fen army was not a rabble of bandits that could be thwarted by a wooden stockade. It was a colossal and efficient machine of destruction, and these defences would be torn apart within three hours. But even if the defences could hold for three days, he knew that Burkhart would not risk his city by sending aid. Harrenville, if attacked, would make it stand alone, and it would fall alone. The others agreed with his observations. Though their report was anything but reassuring, their assessments were considered excellent. And with this, their second year was complete. Aidan's dedication had yielded impressive results. It was no secret that he was doing well. By the beginning of his third year, his reputation was beginning to glow a little, but nothing like his flushed cheeks when the most dazzling pair of eyes began locking with his. Those few held glances had given him a new perspective on things. Previously, the Academy had been an august monument to invaluable knowledge, founded on ancient and immovable rock. Now all that was a cloudy insignificance, floating in a dizzy orbit around an epicentre that was Ilona.
Everything had been redefined, and everything had grown beautiful. Birds sang of this budding love, and flowers grew only to be plucked for her, though he hadn't the nerve to do any more than pluck them, and so he left a colourful trail of discarded petals wherever he walked. He found himself thinking of her, imagining shining moments like her adoring laughter in response to one of his many witty remarks. Her ringing voice would cause the robins to faint and topple from their branches, and butterflies to explode with happiness, joyful little puffs that would sprinkle the air with a soft haze as she leaned forward and... Aiden! The vision vanished with a sudden ethereal rip. He found himself sitting near the front of a tense and silent class. Skeet looked dangerous. He always looked dangerous, but this time the danger was focused. When one of my students grins like a lovesick gargoyle at the calculations required to balance fulcrum sheer with lever arm length, I am moved to suspicion. Were you paying attention at all? Yes. Uh, yes, Master Skeet. Aiden stammered. Good. Then you can complete the design of our improvised catapult. He handed Aiden the chalk and walked to the back of the class. Aiden shuffled to the board, sensing the weight of forty eyes on his back. The rough catapult design had been sketched, the materials listed, but all of them were poor choices. Why don't we just use steel for the axle? he asked and immediately wished he had not spoken the thought as the class erupted in laughter. The poor materials were probably the whole point of the exercise. He looked back at the sketch, stared with deepening incomprehension, made some burbling noises, and turned red. After an age of infamy, Skeet sent him to his chair with an icy warning. This episode was quite out of character for Aiden. His friends could get no straight answer from him, but the mystery was solved quickly enough. Later that day, a few of the boys were seated on the tiered benches that faced one of the twenty-foot crindo boards. Six of their classmates had just finished a game and were dragging the enormous pieces back to their starting arrangement before leaving. Aidan and his friends remained, drinking in the last of the afternoon before their evening training session. Ilona and three of her friends settled down across from them on the other side of the board. Aidan found himself laughing the loudest, interjecting the most often, and glancing constantly over to the other side of the Crindo Square. At one point, his glance was rewarded. His face flushed. He heard only bits of the next joke and burst into uproarious laughter a beat before Vale arrived at the punchline. There were a few curious glances. Peashot frowned openly, but Hadley had followed Aidan's darting eyes and was now nursing a half-grin. The air cooled and began to nip. The girls left, all but Ilona, who remained on the bench, writing something on a sheet of paper. Soon Lorimer declared it was time to head in. The boys rose and turned towards their wing. Hadley stood in Aidan's way. You think she's sitting there by herself because she likes the cold? She doesn't talk to Wharton much anymore, and I've seen you two exchanging looks. 
Aidan was too surprised by Hadley's words and too terrified by their glorious implication to react. Go talk to her, Hadley said. No, Hadley, no, I, I can't. Fine, then I'm going to tell her that you would rather be early for Dunn than spend time with her. He turned to Ilona, but Aidan caught his arm in a ferocious grip. I can't, Hadley. His voice was a frantic whisper. It doesn't just work like that. I have to think about things. Get it all sorted out first. You know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. It's the same as Lorimer standing all morning at the jumping platform over the dam. Remember how we helped him? No, Hadley, don't do it. Please don't. Hey, Alona, Hadley called. We're heading in. Do you mind taking care of Aiden for a bit? See that he's safe and all that? Ilona looked up from her writing and laughed. Aidan's vision swam. Sparrows and crickets burst into chorus, and a few stars fell from the sky. She patted the bench beside her and glanced at him. The bench was twenty yards away. He wished it were twenty miles. Oh, help. He looked up, tried to swallow, but the dryness caught in his throat, and he almost gagged as Alona smiled. He staggered forward through something between a fog of bliss and a gauntlet of terror, knees all but collapsing as he dropped down beside her. A glance revealed that Hadley had gone. Ilona shifted in her seat, put her elbow on the backrest and faced him. A confident grin toyed with the edges of her mouth. I wrote you something, she said reaching forward and slipping a folded note into Aidan's shirt pocket. Don't read it until lights are out and everyone else is asleep. It's our secret. She stood and Aidan did likewise, lifting his heels a little to reduce the disparity in height. You don't need to be frightened, she said, smiling. I'm mm, not, he managed with a voice that quivered its way out between rattling teeth. Ilona laughed, twirled around, and sprang away with graceful strides. Our secret, remember? She called back over her shoulder. Aidan was still too overcome with volcanic emotions to be angry with himself over a lack of self-possession. Anyway, he must have done rather well, considering she smiled and laughed and gave him a letter. A letter? His pocket caught fire as he remembered. He snatched the folded page out, but then remembered what she had said. Only once lights were out, and reverently put it back. Then he set off at a moderate sprint, leaping over benches and tables and skidding across dew-wet grass until he caught up with the others. The murderous thoughts he had raised against Hadley were as distant a reality as last winter's snow. Why are you dawdling? he nagged. We'll be late. What's stinging your rump? said Peashot. We're almost an hour early. And why were you talking to Ilona, anyway? Aidan did his best to parry the question, but Hadley, exhibiting his habitual discreetness, announced the answer to all. The name of Ilona was soon being bounced around in the air like a ball in some game. Aidan could do no more than grin and blush. The ragging carried on until lights were out and then for a while in the darkness until everyone was exhausted.
When Aidan was convinced that the others were asleep, he unshutted his dark lantern and withdrew the letter. Oh, the fire that coursed through his veins as he saw his name in that most perfect script, the script that had flowed from that most perfect hand. The letter began, Dear Aidan, his smile reached across his face, and the thudding in his chest was surely enough to wake the others, but a quick glance assured him that none had stirred. Dear, she had called him dear. He clutched the page, and his eyes rushed on. There's something I've been meaning to say to you for some time. Here it was, then. He curled his toes and tucked into the pillow. You're such a silly boy. Aidan frowned, read it again. There it was, just like before. Silly boy. His mouth was slightly twisted as he pushed on. You say such awkward things sometimes, but Roulette says all boys are like that at first. So maybe we should spend some time talking when we don't have all our friends looking at us and making it uncomfortable. Would you like to walk with me when it's my turn to do the delivery and collection at the beginning of next week? I know you are training during the first hours, but I'm sure you can think of a way to get out of it. Meet me outside the marble archway at sunrise. Don't let me down. I'm depending on you. There were three kisses above the name of Ilona, and Aidan almost dropped the lantern. He made a desperate grab for it, singeing his fingers on the hot cover. After nursing the burns for a while, he settled back down and read the letter seven or eight times over. When he could say it all by heart, except the peppery bits, he blew out the lantern and turned in for the night. It wasn't long before the lantern was relit, and he was gloating over his prize once more. In such a manner, he whittled away the hours. The week that stood between him and this great appointment passed in a delirium of emotional overload and physical exhaustion, sleep being a near impossibility. Yet it did not make him bad-tempered. Instead, he found it the most natural thing to be amiable to everyone, responding even to rudeness with a deep, benign smile. He discovered himself to be the most magnanimous creature in the whole world, simply overstocked with goodness that could not be held in. When he considered his plan for escaping classes, there was the gentlest tug of conscience, but it was easily soothed and put away. He had wanted for a long time to stand beside her, and tomorrow she would need him. Some things were more important than others. It was late when sleep arrived. It carried him into a wasteland of poorly designed broken catapults, where he battled great monsters with his bare hands, holding them back from a softly crying Ilona, whose eyes were locked on his fearless kicks and mighty punches. And when the monsters were sent running, she flew into his arms and wept over his wounds, breathless with admiration and undying love. When he awoke, it was dark. He smiled, stretched, and began preparations for the morning's escape. Chapter 42 I think he's sick. The voice was Peashot.
Dunn looked at Aidan, sweaty, his sheets soaked, skin icy. He was obviously fevered. The empty water jar was tucked well away under the bed. Dunn excused him from the morning session. Under the worried glances and encouraging words, Aidan was made to burn with a real fever. Guilt. As soon as the corridors were quiet, he slipped out and stole through the dim light towards the archway. It looked like he was the only one here, but as he passed under the shadow of the marble edifice, a shape sprang out from the darkness. He gave a muffled shout and leapt back, dropping into a fighting stance. Ilona walked forward, hands on her hips, laughing. It was not the greeting he had anticipated, no clinging or weeping. It put him somewhat off balance. He tried to wipe the scare from his face and managed a silly grin as Ilona nudged him with her shoulder, nodded to the guard who didn't even look at Aiden, and led the way from the academy into the waking streets. She held two baskets which Aiden offered to carry. Usually Roulette makes these trips with me, she said, but she's hurt her foot. I could have asked one of the other girls, but I decided it would be nicer to go with you. Aidan was surprised. He was risking big trouble for this outing, and he had expected something more serious. Suspicious watchers and dark alleys, at the very least. But as he glanced across at the graceful and slender form, the streamers of soft golden hair flowing behind a flawless profile, long forehead, fine nose, delicate chin, and those huge emerald eyes he decided any punishment would be a small thing. How did a girl get to be so, so utterly perfect? And how did he get to be walking beside her? Desperate to engage in some kind of conversation, but unsure how to begin, he was relieved when she broke the silence. I hear you have done well recently. Top of the class, they say. How did you manage it? For the next mile, Aidan basked in the pleasure of telling a beautiful girl all about himself. Conversation, it seemed, wasn't so difficult after all. He began with his methods of study and led quickly on to his techniques and weapons, infusing as much false modesty as he could bear. He placed before her some of his deepest secrets, and some of his friends' secrets too and was about to get started with a new design he'd been considering for a war machine when they arrived at the apothecary store. Elona put a finger to her lips, cutting Aidan off in mid-flow, asked him to wait out of sight, and walked inside. When she returned, the baskets were heaped with bottles. They were considerably heavier, and Aidan saw an opportunity to demonstrate some of his strength— something he had been compelled to mention a little earlier, so he insisted again on carrying both. Elona made no argument. It left her free to twirl and dance beside him, causing her bright red kirtle to swish around her ankles. She drew more than a little attention, especially from the boys and young men, but it didn't seem to worry her. Aidan took up the conversation where they, or rather he, had left off. The now-heavy baskets and a problem he was experiencing with his shoe 
The half-inch paper lifts he'd wedged under his heels to bring him nearer to Elona's height were causing the left shoe to slip off with each step, made the description of the war machine challenging. Nevertheless, as he finished off, he felt he had provided a fairly compelling picture, especially with the design's culmination, the groundbreaking secondary torsional spring system. For the past fifty paces or so, Ilona had been gazing up at a steep angle, obviously trying to get an idea of the machine's size by comparing it to buildings. It was time to know her opinion. Aidan took a deep breath. Well, he said, pulse racing. What do you think? Elona was quiet for a spell, considering. Then she turned to him with a dreamy look. Aren't these such pretty houses? Aidan had been ready to field a range of questions, but that one slipped him. He had to do a bit of mental scrambling before he was able to reply. Uh, the houses? Well, yes, I suppose they are. Now that's where I'd like to live, she said, and for the next half mile she enthused about cherry wood floors, satin curtains, gold-edged porcelain vases, and the kind of high company that could be found in those surrounds. Aidan's disappointment did not last long. He soon forgot about the war machine and gazed at Ilona with the deepest interest, captivated by the movement of her eyes and mouth, and hearing not a word. They conversed, in this manner, down the affluent high street. Aidan was beginning to feel more comfortable. Things were going along nicely. As they turned a corner, the invisible arms of the bakery reached through the breeze and took hold of them. Elona suddenly lost interest in cherry wood and satin. Let's drop in at Corey's, she said. I'm starved. They walked through the doors just in time to see a heap of barley loaves totter out from the kitchen and collapse into a large basket revealing a young man, slightly flushed, holding a tray. He had carefully arranged flaxen hair, quick eyes, and a feathery peach fuzz moustache that was impossibly dark, far darker than his hair. It was almost as if he'd used some kind of boot polish. Aidan looked down to the boots, and when he looked up again, he was grinning. No sooner had Moustache Boy's eyes fallen on Ilona than they detected Aidan, and the look of delight shriveled into something nearer hate. It was a kind of hungry hate. Aidan recognized it immediately. He had seen it more than once on the morning's walk. In his companion's company, he was finding much opportunity to study the face of envy. Hello there, Linford. Ilona said with a flash of perfect teeth and tilt of her head. Linford's smile found him again, just as his father, the renowned Corey, entered the room. Ilona! he called in a deep voice, drawn from the vast chasms of an even deeper belly. The Rose of Castith, as my blushing son here so rightly calls you. And Aidan... What a delight to see two of my most loyal together. The moustache flinched at the last word, 
and the smile beneath it shriveled again. What are the latest Fen rumors down at the Academy? The baker asked. It was Aidan's turn to flinch as the mention of the Academy woke his conscience, which delivered a good bite. Fortunately, Ilona took up the conversation and, after passing on the gossip, ordered two small cheese-coated loaves while the boys exchanged dangerous looks. A wave of customers poured into the bakery, bringing an end to their chat. Aidan paid for the loaves, and they made their way out, but not before Ilona turned and gave the miserable baker's son a parting smile. Aidan tensed. He knew exactly what route to take the conversation. It would require subtlety and tact. He could see the way forward. Can't say I think much of Linford, he began as they got onto the road. Looks like he must spend half the morning fixing his hair. And his moustache is painted. Any girl who kissed him would get a moustache herself. And, and he'll probably end up fat like his father. He glanced at Ilona, hopeful. She laughed at him over her loaf. Is that jealousy speaking? Aidan tried to deny the charge. He bumbled and stuttered until Ilona plugged his mouth with a hunk of bread. Aidan, his hands occupied by the baskets, could do nothing but chew. There, Ilona said. If you aren't going to be honest with me, then don't talk. Aidan tried to look as contrite as bulging chipmunk cheeks would allow. Don't worry, said Ilona, reading his pinched brows. I'm not cross with you, silly boy. She stopped walking, looked at Aidan as if considering something, then led him to the whitewashed door of a modest apartment. She knocked. After a while, the door was opened by a short woman with striking angular features drawn into tired lines. Hello, Mum, Ilona said, leaning forward to kiss her surprised mother. Then she dashed into the house, calling something over her shoulder about entertaining Aidan for a bit while she fetched a hat. The woman turned her sad look on Aidan and smiled faintly. Come in, then. Have a seat, she said, and led him to a small kitchen table. Aidan, knowing all about Malik's family wealth, was surprised at the modesty of the home. But then he remembered what Corin had said about his in-laws obviously Malik's parents, having no interest in charity even among their own relatives. Ilona's mother sat down, facing him. So you're the one who saved my daughter a while back? She took Aidan's hand in both of hers and smiled at him. I'm very grateful, Aidan. We are all very grateful. Ilona speaks of you often. Aidan snatched at the words and buried them in his personal vault of treasures. He smiled, and Ilona's mother continued. Look after her down at the campus, Aidan. She's not as tough as she seems. Six years later, and I still hear her weeping at night for the father that walked out. There's a tender heart under that shell. He could not have been more deeply moved. Ilona danced back into the room. Aidan noticed a loose, floral bonnet thing strapped to her head.
He didn't see how it would help with sun, rain, or wind, but the light material made her eyes appear even more arresting, and he gawped in mute approval. She kissed her mother again and led the way back onto the road. Aidan said a clumsy goodbye. As he stepped out, he realized that he still didn't know the little woman's name. Mum certainly wouldn't do. Although, perhaps one day... The thought gave him a sudden flush of exultant joy, and a deep smile spread over his face. Why are you smiling like that? Ilona asked. Me? Uh, oh, <laughs> no, it's... it's nothing. At least, well, not nothing. Um, just not really, you know, explainable, or like that. He swallowed, choked, and after a bout of coughing in which he finally lost his shoe and had to go back for it, hoping Elona had not noticed the paper lifts, he managed to calm himself down and recover his breath. Elona was watching him. Her head tilted slightly, a curious expression lurking under the dappled shade of the bonnet. You're blushing, she said. If he hadn't been blushing before, he did so now, challenging her for the title of Rose of Castith. They wended their way through the crowds to the arching bridge that overlooked Regent Street's open market. Here they leaned on the stone railing and watched for a while. Aidan, his hands free at last, nibbled at his loaf, but his stomach was too full of flutters to accept much. The scene beneath them was almost like a large, colourful river, a great living painting that formed but never settled. Dabs of earthy tones, farmers and labourers mostly, in their rough trues and tunics, drifted in and settled behind the booths and tables, while glittering ripples of patrons from higher ranks, coloured with an array of vibrant surcoats, cloaks and gowns, eddied around each other and attached themselves to the booths for a time before being drawn away back into the current. The growing waterfall of voices was spiced with the soft bubbling of pigeons and the tireless honk and screech of a frustrated donkey tethered a maddening five yards from a crate of cabbages. From further off, where the livestock were permitted, grunts, squeals, bleats, and gentle lowing drew customers more effectively than any banner could have done. See the man with the red hat and tunic, Ilona said, pointing down into the crowd. When Aidan had located him, she continued, He's the richest landowner in the city. He owns more than a dozen inns. His son is at the academy in the law wing. On his sixteenth birthday, his father gave him a carriage with copper-tinted velvet seats and a team of six horses. A dreamy look crossed her face, and Aidan had the strangest, empty feeling. He was in her company, but somehow not. On the walk back, he tried to start a conversation around things in which they shared some knowledge, Mistress Gilder, the Academy, and as a final bid, Rillette's injured foot. But it was like striking sparks into a puddle. Ilona's thoughts were clearly elsewhere, and Aidan tried every angle without success. By the time they reached the Academy, he was spent. 
Outside the gate, Ilona stopped him. Aiden, she said, do you think I'm beautiful? She arched her brows and smiled playfully. A wave of delight rushed over him. No wonder she had been so quiet. It was all he could do to keep up with the torrent of adjectives that poured forth. I think you're the most, it began, and ran through an assortment of wonderful things, some of which he wasn't too sure about, but it felt so good to say them that he couldn't stop until he ran out of breath. She laughed and rewarded him with a smile that almost had him stepping forward with arms outstretched, but she danced away through the academy gate. Thank you, Aidan, she said, when he caught up. It's nice having someone I can depend on. She took the baskets, then looked into his eyes and let the moment linger. As Aidan gazed, the bleak homeward walk and the rich boy and Linford were forgotten. Then she was gone. If he could have made the morning last forever, he would have. Yet the sigh he breathed was as much one of regret as exhaustion. It wasn't just the lack of sleep, though that contributed. He felt utterly drained. Thoughts of her nagged at his worn-out mind, keeping it from rest, like the smell of those cabbages was doing for the donkey. After Ilona was well away, he pulled the annoying paper lifts from his shoes and took a roundabout route to his dorm. He had planned to slip in unnoticed, but it was not to be. Man had prepared something special. The dark Ruthrek had continued to grow at an alarming rate. Muscle now coiled through powerful limbs and chest in a way that caused people to stare. It also kept them at a distance while staring because Man was not a horse to gaze back with vacant cow eyes. He was intelligent and restless, and tended to play with anyone who came within range. It normally resulted in screams. With his increasing strength, he had discovered, only a few hours earlier, that he could jump the raised outer fence. As Aidan made his furtive way behind hedges and walls, he began to sense that something was amiss. Nobody was lounging on the lawns. Instead, Tight clusters of jabbering students were gathered in and around the buildings. Taking a corner, Aidan almost ran into one of the groundsmen who recognized him and delivered a fuming summary of the day. Apparently, after clearing the fence, Mern had thundered up from the paddocks and made circuit of the grounds, confiscating and devouring all manner of interesting meals that would probably give him colic later. After scattering the students, even sending one or two up the trees, he made a light lunch of some rare boutique plant that had held tenure within the forbidden central precinct for two hundred years. When he was chased off, he left hoof-sized craters in the manicured lawn as a testament to his visit. He had last been seen rolling in a clover patch, part of a decorative section of the Chancellor's Boulevard. Aidan snatched the halter from the shaking groundsman and raced off to find his unruly beast. When Mern was safely stabled, Aidan was made to feel the full weight of the various desecrations. He had to labor through the night to raise the fence yet again. Kean got wind of it 
and helped. He ensured that the barrier was not just high, but also robust. It would need to withstand experimental prods from a horse that now looked capable of charging through a stone parapet. After testing the beams Aiden had nailed in place, Kean pronounced them useless, pulled them down, and made Aiden hold while he bound and dovetailed with the precision of an artist. Long into the night, the echoes of the lonely hammer fluttered through empty acres of darkened lawns and hooded trees, lingering in the porticos and colonnades, now shadow-filled and mysterious. Roosting doves cocked their heads and puzzled over these odd creatures, toiling, talking, and sometimes laughing, in the soft glow of their lantern. By the time the last fence was raised, the eastern skyline had begun to change moods, and the sleepy boys ambled off to a well-earned breakfast. As soon as the meal was over, Dunn called Aidan aside. He wanted the full story. He had seen him running after Mern. He knew the fever had been a hoax. Aidan hadn't slept for a while. He was too drained to construct any story but the truth, and it toppled out. Dunn laughed before assigning three weeks of that most dreaded latrine duty. It was a cunning punishment. No matter how much Aiden washed, he was unable to rid himself of the smell, real or imagined, that hummed around him like flies. His friends helped things along by continually sniffing the air and frowning. The result was that he kept as far away from Elona as possible, but the weeks passed until there was only one sleep left. Aiden woke long before sunrise. Unable to get back to sleep, he stared into the darkness and marveled at how he had found a glittering diamond where everyone else had seen a stone. Or maybe not everyone, but most had seen a stone. Or maybe not most, but at least some had failed to notice her. Still, none of that mattered, really. What was important was that the two of them had found each other, and they were devoted to each other. At least he was. That much was certain. He let out a huff and stared at the ceiling. There was a certain symmetry lacking. Tomorrow he would have to resolve this, move things along. This was not a girl to lose, and... The next thought made him grip the pillow with some violence. There were one or two rivals. Or maybe not just one or two. Are we talking about the same, Elona? said Peashot, as they ambled across the lawn. What do you mean? Aidan asked. Kindest and sweetest, you said. Have you seen the way she treats me? Flat out ignores me if I say anything to her. Kind and sweet people are kind and sweet to everyone, not just the people they like. Maybe you just haven't gotten to know her yet, said Aiden. Maybe you haven't. You're too drunk in your feelings to actually do any real thinking. I've been thinking about her for a month, and she is the most wonderful— Yes, yes, I got it all the first time. But tell me honestly, would you really think she was that wonderful if she wasn't so pretty? How can you ask that? People aren't like tools you can take apart and study in order to understand them. She's not the easiest person to get to know, I'll admit that. But then, gold is not the easiest treasure to collect. Her mother told me a bit about her painful background, and maybe that gives her some sharp edges. But I'm looking past all that, 
to the wonderful person that she really is. It was a fine speech. Aidan felt pleased with how he'd put it across. It had even steadied his own confidence. Well, I can't comment on her background, but I can say that she treats me and Lorimer like vermin. Aidan decided he would have to talk to her about this sometime, but for now it was not too much to accept that she didn't get on with everyone. He didn't. Neither did Pisha. For someone with a sharp mind, it was only natural that she should be quick with her tongue. She had once referred to Lorimer as a bat-eared pole, but in jest. Everyone had laughed, even Lorimer, though he was quiet for a long time afterwards. They turned down one of the leafy walkways, and Aidan's eyes fastened onto something under a nearby tree. All thoughts of Peashot, who was instantly forgiven, and bat-eared poles vanished with a pop, leaving only a soft vision of flowing golden locks and glittering emerald eyes. He excused himself and bounded to her like a puppy to its master. Hi, Alona, he began. She smiled, and he immediately forgot what he was going to say. There were two older boys and several girls in the group. He had all their attention. Nice. Um. Weather. It was one of those days when the curtains were drawn across the heavens and someone had left all the doors open. She looked uncomfortable. Everyone else smiled. Aidan wasn't exactly sure whether it was him, or her, or the crowd, but he wasn't getting that have-a-seat-why-don't-you feeling. He considered sitting anyway, but another look around the group put an end to the idea, so he made an excuse and went for a long, blustery walk, explaining to himself that this was how things went, and that he couldn't expect to be at her side all the time, that she needed her own space too. He kicked a pile of leaves into the wind, thinking what rotten weather they were having. The next day, after class, Ilona called him over and asked if he would have lunch with her, seeing as her group was split apart for a while by differing schedules. He leapt at the invitation without even pretending to consider. Later he found her waiting for him at a little table in the shade, and was it little? The table was delightfully small, and Aidan blessed it under his breath as he sat down. You've been distant for a while, she said. I... He stopped. He wasn't sure he wanted to tell her about being punished. It would make him look younger and smaller, and he certainly didn't want her knowing what form the punishment had taken. I had to do some extra work for Dunn, so I... You silly boy. You forget I have a cousin who doesn't mind telling me about your reeking punishment duty. Oh, um, he really doesn't like you, she said. Or Liru. Sometimes Malik actually frightens me the way he hurls a grudge. But please don't think I'm like that. I've got lots of other friends, so why would I be cross with you if you were kept away? A slight furrow sank into Aidan's brow. He wasn't sure how being cross came into it. He had hoped that she would speak of missing him, not being cross with him. 
Don't be disappointed with yourself, she said. I can't expect you to be perfect. Now he was starting to get cross. Oh, there's something else I should tell you, she continued. It's not really a good idea for you to join my usual group. I don't think you'll fit in very well. Let's just spend time together like this, when it's only you and me. What do you say? As she leaned forward on her elbows and raised one of those arched eyebrows at him, the wild churning that took hold of his insides displaced whatever else he was feeling, and everything he was thinking. But for the remainder of lunch they talked, perhaps not easily, but at least amicably, and with frequent lingering looks, eyes locking and darting away to the music of deep sighs. She loved him. Boys could not pass the table without turning and gaping. They simply bled envy. How could they not? Ilona was one who leapt from a crowd. It was the most exciting meal Aidan had ever eaten, and he didn't taste a single mouthful. That was perhaps what enabled him to swallow the waxy rind of the cheese and a charcoal crust of burned rye. Now that he considered it, he could recall some uninspiring flavors that had reminded him strongly of Harriet's cooking, and which had been accompanied by quizzical looks from Ilona. For a week they met and shared lunches. To Aidan, the rest of the world was forgotten, a pale, unexciting thing out there on the edges of this numbing, exhausting perfection. They talked in the way toddlers might throw playthings around the room. There was seldom any catching of an idea and sharing it. When the lunches were over, individual opinions lay scattered about in a delicious jumble, only ever one layer deep. If Aidan had allowed himself to be searchingly honest, which he did not, he would have realized that there was a voice somewhere between his belly and his brain that was telling him the most absurd thing. He was lonely in her company. No matter how small the table or how she leaned forward and drowned him with her smile, they were far, far apart. But this indeed was absurd. Then her friends returned, and Aidan tried to join their group. He had somehow thought that what Ilona had said about staying away from the group had been a passing thought, obliterated by their closeness. Apparently, it was not. She greeted him with a flicker of a frown, and turned away to resume her conversation when he sat. From then on, he may as well have been a dead log quietly rotting beside her. It was as if she hadn't even noticed his arrival. In order to cover his awkwardness, he tried to join the conversations of the others in the group, and they certainly noticed him. They made him feel like a horsefly. He could not remember being so uncomfortable or unwelcome since that evening at the marshal's trials. His hand kept going to the hair over his left ear, pulling it down, covering that patch in which others found such interest. Afterwards, he stamped his way back to class, kicking leaves again like someone visiting vengeance on a sworn foe. It was a lonely week that followed. He avoided pea shots, I told you so, presents, 
and spent a lot of time hanging on the paddock fences, watching Mern go through his restless antics, wishing he could have been a horse without the cares and woes of the broken-hearted. You come here often, do you? Aiden jumped. It was Alona. She placed her elbows and chin on the rail, only inches from Aiden, then turned and gave him a long, tender look. Surely she adored him. How could anyone that beautiful, who made him feel like this, not imply devotion when she looked at him? I like it here, he said. Always feel welcome. It was a risk, but he wanted to see what she would say. She turned to the paddock, where Mern cropped, tossed, and stomped a few yards away, glistening in the sun. I like this horse, she said. What's its name? Aidan sighed. Mern, short for Midnight Hurricane. Liru helped me name him. Ilona pulled her face. That will have to change, she said, half to herself. Can you ride him yet? No, won't be riding him for a long time. He's still too difficult to handle. So, shouldn't you sell him? I'd like to train him. We're covering ground slowly. I think you are wasting your time, she said. That horse is going to need an experienced trainer. You'll never manage to tame such a huge animal. Maybe we can make a deal that's better for both of us. I've finally managed to convince my aunt to buy me a horse, though it was really Malik who did the convincing. He's probably the only one that she listens to. I have a friend who says... I can keep my horse at his father's stable. If you sell this Mern, you can visit with me. We can go often. We'll get to be together lots. She turned on a gleaming smile, and Aidan's chest shuddered. Then that niggling voice managed to get a few words through the fog of his thoughts, something to the effect that he didn't want to sell Mern and another voice wanted to know who the mysterious friend was. Who is this friend of yours? There's no need for that look. You've nothing to worry about. He's only a friend. It was indirect and only just implied, but it was there. She was suggesting, perhaps even inviting, Aidan to be more than just a friend. He gulped. Gosh, she was beautiful. So I'll get my aunt to settle a price with you, then. I've no interest in such matters. Thinking up a name is where my energy will go. The words were taking time to sink in, but slowly Aidan was digesting her meaning. I... I... Yes, Aidan? I don't really want to sell him. What? Her voice sounded almost sharp. Mern was a gift to me from Osric. I've got no right to sell him. Oh, don't be so starchy. He won't mind. You'll see. It would be wrong, Alona. I can't. You didn't have a problem with wrong before, when you skipped classes to walk me through town. Her tone had now definitely changed. Aidan stared. 
The soft edges of this vision beside him were settling into some hard lines. Why can't she buy you another horse? Aiden tried, in a placating tone. There are lots of others to choose from. Stormy shapes were gathering over those delicate brows. Fine, she snapped. Be like that. She turned to leave. Aiden was stunned by the quick anger in her eyes. But there was more to come. She stopped and spun around. The next words struck like hailstones. Do you know what it cost me to be seen with someone my friends call a northern peasant? She said. And do you think they have forgotten about your scar? Do you know what I put aside? The richest boys in the academy want my company. After all I've given up, after all the time we spend together, I thought you would be more of a friend than this. Aiden was too shocked to realize he had thought the same. She whirled and strode away, leaving him dumbstruck. A bit of coldness was one thing, but he had never foreseen hostility, or what now felt like treachery. And it had sunk into the flesh of his bared heart. She hated him, and he was beginning to return the feeling. Could she really be so callous as to think that he owed her for her interest in him? He spent the next hour throwing and breaking anything that wouldn't get him into too much trouble. Liru spied him from a distance and came over. After getting the story, she offered, with a deadpan face, to cut Ilona's hair off and turn it into a fly swatter. Stupid, manipulating brat, she said. I pity the fool who marries her. I thought she liked me. We had such nice times together. You should have seen the way she looked at me. And you should see the way that she looks at all the other boys stumbling around her. She is a spider, Aiden. One web catches many. Have you not noticed? She wants you all to belong to her, but she will never belong to any of you. The sooner you get away, the better. Do you think I'll ever find anyone who actually wants me, Scar and all? Probably not. Aiden looked up, taken aback, just as she landed a solid punch on his shoulder. Your scar is settling well now, she said, and the longer hair, it mostly covers the damage. A person would have to look carefully to notice it. In time, you will find her, the right one. You will see. But we have a proverb that, in your language, will say, a man too soon is a man deprived. It sounds blunt in Thernish. It rhymes in Madre. It is the last line of a poem telling us how we must enjoy our youth, not wish to escape it early. Let her go, Aidan. You have much time and better things to spend it on. Aidan smiled. You know, he said, you can be rather wise sometimes. Meaning that at other times I am a fool? He glanced at her. He was faster, surely. It was time to find out. Yes, he said, and ran, darting around trees, 
between idling students who yelled for him to grow up, and twice over tables, all with his nimble pursuer streaking after him. The chase ended at the entrance to the marshal's wing, where Aiden darted in and Liru could pursue no further. Given a few more days of reflection, Aiden allowed himself to recognize that what Peashot and Liru had said of Ilona was probably true. When Ilona tried another angle on Mern, most of the mist had cleared from his vision. Ilona's fiery eruption cleared the rest. Much as Aiden pitied her for her difficult childhood, he had to disagree with her mother's assessment. That tender heart was well provided with tools and armor, and it had no qualms about using them to its own advantage. Eventually, Elona found another horse, and the anger left her. She became friendly with Aiden again, smiling and charming him with lingering glances, as if nothing had happened. But Aiden's swimmy eyes had been opened, like those of the pup that yawns and settles down for the first and last time on an ant nest. He had thought it impossible that beneath an appearance so lovely there could be anything disagreeable. It was a lesson that would not soon be forgotten. Peashot had been right. Aidan's blindness had been in exact proportion to her looks. Stepping back from the hazy, sentimental marshes, he had intended to straighten his thoughts out by climbing deep into his studies. But what really did the job was far better. If Liru could have foreseen what her advice would inspire, she might never have uttered it. Chapter 43 The first of them began like this. One of the boys would ask the master to come to his desk and explain something on a page. As soon as the master's back was turned to a portion of the class, a plum-sized lead weight would be tossed silently from one boy to another across the room. They never tried it with Wildemar. Nothing escaped his notice, and he was far too edgy, apt to swing around at any instant. But the other masters were considered fair game. The apprentices had been engaged with this for a week, when Skeet happened to spin around just as Cade lobbed the weight across to Lorimer. You! Skeet bellowed. When uttered with just the right tone, this is the universal name for any boy. Accordingly, all heads snapped towards the angry master, including Lorimer's. The weight took him just above the ear with a soft thunk that laid him out flat. Though it provided some amusement, it was too tame for Aidan. He hatched another idea from their exercises in balance and stealth. For this particular challenge, Rodwell was chosen, as he was given to lengthy explanations while drawing out complex political pyramids and relational tensions, and during these explanations he would not turn from the chalkboard until he was done. Aidan asked him for more background on a particularly complex issue— limited autonomy of remotely governed cities under circumstances that could recommend breaching those limits, a situation that Castith and its prince could soon face. Rodwell was delighted by the breadth of the question. He would have done better to be suspicious, especially considering Aidan's generally muted interest in the subject. 
Rodwell turned to the board with gusty purpose, drawing and pointing to various diagrams of governance structures while unloading in his shrill, excited tones. Behind him, silent as ghosts, the boys rose from their seats, which had already been pushed back for the purpose, drifted down the class, and filed out the door. Twenty pairs of eyes appeared over the outer windows, just in time to see Rodwell turn around with a concluding flourish of his finger. He stood, finger raised. He looked, blinked, looked again, and glanced around as if to assure himself he was in the right place. When he began stumping down the room and bending his portly frame to search under the desks, it was too much for the boys, who could hold the snorts and squeals back no longer. Not even the liberal caning could entirely silence them. During the year, a junior master by the name of Braddock had begun taking some of the history classes. This strange young man made it his prime object to overcome an all-too-obvious nervousness by being impressive and intimidating. Whenever a boy asked a question, he would stride up to the desk and lean his hands on it while he answered, making the boy look up at a steep angle. If anyone asked a question that struck him as foolish, he would rush over, slam his fist on a page, and bark something like, Open your ears and let the information in the first time. Keyshot managed to get some iron shavings from the floor of the smithy and hid them in his book. Then he paid attention during the class until he could put together a question that would be sure to induce wrath. It worked. Braddock flew up to him, slammed his fist on the thin pages covering the razor-sharp iron shavings, and, with a shriek of pain, swore like no master had ever done within the halls of learning. Heshot might have got away with lesser punishment, had he not asked if that was Sulee's and could Master Braddock please spell it out for him, because he needed to learn some more words. Aidan's natural restlessness was finding some outlet in the pranks and schemes, but he still pined for the forests and overgrown hills of the Misty Vales, and the many animals that had been as neighbours. A short walk had always put him among deer, wild hogs, and foxes. In Casteth he found mostly rats. So when he discovered a mildly poisonous grass snake, trying to escape by climbing the corner between two walls, he caught it and bagged it, intending to play with it later. The medical class took forever, and Mistress Gilda put him on display again to demonstrate how scars continue to heal over years. From where she was exhibiting him, he glimpsed the lithe green shape pour out from a corner of his bag and slide into the assortment of models, skeletons, and instruments. For an instant, he worried, remembering how she had last expressed her feelings on serpents. But the mortification she was once again causing him quickly reversed that feeling, and he saw something beautiful, something poetically complete in the circumstance. The loss of the snake was soon eased when he found a giant goblin spider. It was a hairy monster of a thing, nearly as big as a dinner plate. It looked capable of preying on small dogs. 
He managed to catch it by tossing his shirt and knocking it to the ground where Peashot dropped a water pail on top. They kept it in their dorm, named it Killer, and fed it bugs and worms, taking the lid off only to display it to awed visitors. Then one morning they woke up and the lid was on the ground, and the pail empty. They searched everywhere, under pillows, between sheets, inside shoes, though it would have more than filled a shoe, always expecting a hairy predator to leap out at them. The argument about who forgot to replace the lid lasted all day. For the next week, they slept fitfully, jolting awake in the darkness to frantically brush off the memory of an eight-legged nightmare crawling under a shirt or chewing on an ear. The distractions had shown Aiden that something was missing. Nothing in the predictable routine was meeting his appetite for adventure, his love of discovering things while letting his imagination lead. While focusing on his studies, it put his nightly explorations of the academy on hold. It was time to take them up again. The place was full of secrets. Forbidden corridors led to rooms that simply had to be investigated. The only place he dared not venture was the barred passage at the bottom of the collapsing stairs. He did not question Dunn's warning about prison. On these nightly forays, Hadley and Peashot were the only ones who agreed, on occasion, to accompany him. The others were kept in their beds by the fear of Dunn's cane, or of the Academy ghosts that were well known to drift down the dark hallways and attack any wandering student. Of course, it was always the same students who saw them and who gained considerable popularity by speaking of these harrowing encounters. One night, after Lorimer had made a series of spooked objections, Aidan wanted to know what it was about bedsheets that would keep anyone safe, and if Lorimer was so well protected by them, why not wrap himself up and come along? Then all the other ghosts might see this new giant apparition and float away screaming. Lorimer told him to shut up and go to sleep, saying those who looked for trouble always found it. The second part sounded acceptable to Aidan, and he slipped out, Peashot in tow. You scared? whispered Peashot. Nope. Oh. Uh, me neither. Peashot kept close, twice stepping on Aidan's heels as they padded down the dark corridor. He began whispering again. All those ghost stories are such nonsense. Don't know who would believe them. I completely don't. Not even for a moment. Never even... Wait! He grabbed Aidan's arm. What was that sound? Don't know. Can't hear anything over your constant talking. Oh. Sorry. Just letting off steam. I get really irritated with all those made-up stories. None of them true, all made up. All of them. For all his reckless, even fearless trouble-hunting, Peashot, like Lorimer, was hopelessly given over to superstition. Tonight was the night for Aidan's most defiant adventure so far. There was a sign on the outer wall of the main building that forbade climbing. It was as good as an invitation. The fangs of terrifying gargoyles would provide excellent grips, 
and the shoulders and noble heads of imposing statues seem to have been made for a climber's boots. You know we'll be in the rat cells if they catch us, Keyshot whispered. No different to the time we slipped into the Seniors Museum. Yes, it is. At least there we could hide. How are we going to hide on these walls? You tooking tail? You're not the one with three charges and a final warning. One sniff of trouble and... Shh! They slipped off the open corridor, hurried over the lawn, and crouched behind a large green soapstone carving of Olemris, a robed man missing most of his hair and part of his nose, hand outstretched, delivering a forceful lecture to the geraniums. The boys quieted their breathing. A lone student tottered along behind the colonnade, leaning forward as if the books under his arm had transferred their weight to his head. Probably fell asleep in one of the libraries, said Aidan. At least he knows how to get the best use from them. They waited until the grounds were deserted. Then Aidan led the way to a tall arch. He had spent days studying the possibilities. The dean's alcove provided the most interesting challenge. It was a deeply featured arching frame that led up to the knobbly face of the second floor. After wiping his hands on his trousers, Aidan placed his fingers in one of the several long vertical grooves, leaned back against his arms, and worked his feet up the opposing surface of the groove so that arms pulled while legs pushed, creating a kind of reverse clamping effect. By shifting one hand and one foot at a time, he worked his way up the pillar of the alcove until he reached the first gargoyle. He was puffing hard when he clutched at a feature, which turned out to be a wart-encrusted nose, and pulled himself up to a small ledge where he could rest. Peashot took a while longer to scale the pillar. When he reached for the gargoyle, there was something of desperation in the way he snatched. The climbing from then on was easier, but the height made up for that. When they reached the fourth floor, they pulled themselves over a railing and onto a little balcony, where they sat puffing and grinning at the view. In the light of a half-moon, the spectacle was enchanting. I've always wanted to know what's in here, Aidan said, turning around and pressing his forehead against a glass pane. These balcony doors are bigger than the museum's. Did you bring a candle? Candle, flint, steel, char cloth, all of it. But we'll have to be careful to hood the flame. The guards would see it from the far end of the campus. I'll hood, you light. The plan was not the best they had ever had. The candle produced a lot more light than Peashot was able to hood, even before he got distracted by the interior of the room and burned his thumb. With a muffled exclamation of pain, he pulled his hands away, revealing a bright flame to a guard who had been puzzling over the dull glow. Thieves! The voice rang out from far beneath. Don't worry, it'll take them ages to reach us, said Aiden. They will have to climb four stories worth of stairs. Shoot! the guard yelled. Even the dim candlelight was enough for the boys to see each other's faces pale. The balcony door turned out to be less solid than it had appeared. They kicked it open and dived inside, arrows plugging into the doorframe and wooden ceiling boards. The candle dropped but was not extinguished. Aiden picked it up, looked around, and groaned. 
It was the biggest, most important-looking office he had ever found, which meant more trouble than he had yet managed to harvest. And were those exam papers? He had seen enough. The inner door was wooden, but felt like iron. It took several swings with the marble bust to break the lock. As stone and wood sprinkled to the floor, Aiden understood that there would be no saving them if they were caught. A raucous chatter of heavy boots was growing, echoing up a nearby stairwell. The boys heaved the door open and fled. Fit and balanced from years of training, they darted at a giddy speed over the polished floors from one long corridor to the next, skidding around corners and vaulting down stairwells. They ran until their breathing was ragged. The darkness was only slightly relieved by moonlight spilling in through the windows. It made navigation tricky, but they were fairly certain that they were now on the opposite side of the academy. Though exactly what this section was, they weren't sure. Not even Aiden had been here. It might be best if we split up on the way back, he said. They will be looking for two. Peashot agreed. It was in the subsequent maze of passages that Aiden's sense of direction betrayed him. When he got out into the open, the moon had vanished behind cloud. He found what seemed to be the outside of his dorm. The wall looked right, the window looked right, and though he didn't remember the entry being such a squeeze, he climbed through and dropped to the boards inside. There was a light burning, which was strange. Heshot was probably telling the story. He ran to the bend and stopped with a sharp intake of breath. The layout was completely different. No line of desks, no alcoves, no pea shot. There were only three sections to this room. The wall lamps were brass, the furniture delicate and painted white, the books plentiful, and the occupants awake. Three young men and three young women lounged on the carpet with several bottles between them. Both the wine and the mixed company in dorms were expulsion offences. The alarm in their faces said as much, but the alarm was giving way to something else. Aidan backed towards the wall. He had to get away from here, away from them. The young men were beginning to move, and a hardness in one of their faces was tolling an alarm that Aidan knew he dared not ignore. He took another step back, and was just about to turn and scramble out the window when the hard-faced one stood. He was a large man with heavy arms, heavy brows, and eyes that were now dark with anger. Fists clenched and face seething, he strode forward. In just that glimpse, Aidan saw the terror that had stained his younger days. Though he fought it, he could not keep the talons from sinking in. With sickening realization, he felt every muscle go slack, and his legs dropped him to the floor. It was the same thing he saw in his father, the same monster. It had owned him before, and it owned him still. It towered, pressed against the roof and walls, and Aidan felt the last of his strength flee from under its giant presence. His thoughts were slow. But their muddy stickiness was not enough to block the dismay. He had told himself that this weakness was conquered at the festival, during the gang fight. 
But in an instant of realization, he understood that he would have crumpled had his father been there. And somehow, this man was his father in a different form. Maybe it was the size, maybe the raw hostility. Whatever it was, it had convinced that broken part of his mind which now betrayed him again, and paralyzed every muscle. The young man leaned down and gripped Aiden around the neck. Name, he said. Aiden was too shaken to think. His tongue was all but dead in his mouth, but he managed to mumble his name in a trembling whisper. Really? The apprentice marshal who supposedly took on a gang of thieves? He laughed, a hard cracking sound full of blades and stones, ridicule and contempt. Your spine is as hollow as chicken bones. The other men and two of the women laughed as well. One woman looked distraught but made no attempt to interfere. You're also the one who's been trespassing on our boulevard, aren't you? Yes, I recognize you now. I've been wanting to collar your insolent little neck for a long time, and here you are. Finally snooped right under the watchman's heel. What are you doing here? Aidan managed to stutter out something about getting lost and using the wrong window. The young man stared down at him for a long time. He grabbed the hair behind Aidan's head and turned his face up. My name is Eva, he said. And you are going to pay for your intrusion here? Don't try speaking of the girls or the wine. We'll have a version of the story that will keep us in the clear and muddy your name for good. He peered into Aidan's face for a long time before speaking. I would greatly enjoy exposing you. He raised his fist, and Aidan cringed, seeing not the man, but the dark, infinite terror, the sickening nightmares from his childhood. Eva smiled. But I have a more profitable idea, he said. You are going to work for me. Tomorrow, an hour after dark, you will knock at the window and wait for instructions. Fail to appear and I think you understand what I can do to you. Aidan understood all too well. The worst of it was that Eva understood him. Clawman had shaped this handle on his son and Eva had discovered it a perfect fit. Keyshot was waiting at the dorm, still grinning. Aiden mumbled something about being too exhausted for chatter, and crawled into bed, wishing he could explain, hoping Peashot would understand, knowing he wouldn't. His thoughts were black. As much as he wanted to avoid admitting it, what Eva had said was true. His spine had a secret hollowness to it. His father had done something to him, broken something in him that could be easily overlooked. He himself had been able to overlook it for years, but overlooking it had not made it go away. It was like a missing support in a bridge. He could take weight as easily as anyone, until that damaged section was tested, and then he buckled, no matter how he tried to brace himself and fight against it. As the helplessness swelled in him, so did the hate for his father. He was the cause of this.
For the next few days, Aiden wholeheartedly disobeyed Eva's last instruction and kept clear of any area where the barbaric senior might discover him. He had no intention to fawn, and was certainly not going to report to someone like that. He spent his breaks in a secluded garden, telling the others that he needed a bit of time to think. It lasted for a week. Then, one day, he looked up at the sound of footsteps to see the dreaded face. Aidan leapt up and raised his fists, but as Eva marched forward, his presence caused all Aidan's poisoned memories of his father to swell into a choking cloud. But before his knees gave way, he heard a muffled shriek at the back of his thoughts. Escape! He spun around, only to be faced with a stone wall, but the stones were large and provided easy grips. With the sight of Eva no longer filling his vision, his mind cleared a little. He gripped the stones in front of him, and as he pulled himself up, he felt strength explode into his limbs. It was like running on all fours the way he scuttled up the wall. There was a second-story window over to the left, not too far above him, its shutters open. He altered direction and aimed for it, now that he was out of reach from the ground. He sensed movement and heard a furious voice below him, but he blocked them out. Haste led him to commit unwisely to a sloping edge. His fingers slipped away, and then a foot, as he swung out from the wall. He almost fell, but grabbed at a sharp edge and pulled himself back. It was only a few feet to the windowsill. He found some deep grips, gained the projecting window ledge, and hauled his weight up and over, dropping into a class full of students, apparently writing an exam. The supervising master looked too surprised by this intrusion to speak. Aidan didn't give him a chance to get his tongue working. He rushed for the door at the far side of the room and bolted through it. Whether Eva had followed or not, he wasn't sure. He didn't think so, but dared not wait to find out. So he fled down the corridor, descended the first stairway, and took the second branching passage. He kept running until he reached the marshal's quarter. At least here he would be safe from any student from another quadrant. Not even someone as brazen as Eva would risk the punishment that was guaranteed for anyone found crossing the marshal's threshold. The dorm was empty. He sat on his bed, covered his eyes, and tried to stop shaking. By the time his breath had recovered, so had his thoughts. He remembered now that Eva had not been alone. Malik and Cade had followed. There could be little doubt that Malik and Eva had talked. Perhaps they were even friends. Aidan began to consider his options. He couldn't risk being surprised again. Hiding in an enclosed garden had been a foolish move. He needed to be in the open. He needed to preserve distance. Running was not the most valiant strategy, but even wolves circled and kept their distance until the time was right. Anything was better than allowing Eva to rush at him where friends could see. What choice did he have? A sudden flood of helpless anger took hold of him. He grabbed his old wooden training sword and hurled it across the room, smashing at least one lantern. He didn't bother to look where it ended up. What had he done to deserve this? Why 
After all these years, was its grip on him so complete? Callery had once told him that he would be able to beat this thing. She had said that it was a big forest that would take a long time to clear. But how long? Though Aidan managed to keep his distance from Eva, it brought him no peace. He lived in constant fear of being exposed. The days grew bitter indeed. He spied on his tormentor out of necessity and discovered that he already had a personal slave, a small first-year student from the officer's quadrant. Eva, it appeared, was a thirsty man who did not want to run the risk of sneaking his own wine into the buildings. Once, Aidan saw him beating the young boy. He could have reported it, or at least yelled. Instead, he ducked out of sight and ran away, trembling at the memories that had risen up, hating himself with every step. The next day he found the boy and spoke to him, asking why he didn't just keep away. I've heard about you, the boy scoffed. What right have you got to talk? Aren't you the coward? The combined fear and rage that took hold of Aiden led him to a place he despised with his whole being. But he did not hold back. He didn't know why. It was easier to yell and threaten and shove, like letting go, drifting with a fierce current. In that one decision to give in to his deep, hungry urge, the current dragged him a long way down. He told himself that the next time he would stand against it more easily. But he wondered. The shame that he felt afterwards only added to a flood of self-loathing in which he was already half-drowned. What did it matter? What did he care any more? If they were beginning to talk, wouldn't it spread to everyone he knew? Though his friends grew deeply concerned, Aidan would not speak of it. They urged him to just confront Eva, offering to back him up. But they did not understand. How could he explain this? Even when he visited his mother, he avoided answering questions about his darkening mood. Explaining would mean revealing what he would not have anyone know. So he withdrew into a cold inner silence that was rank with bitter thoughts. In his dreams, he took his revenge. Not against Eva, but against the one who had started it all. Clawman would approach him, eager, repentant. Aiden, Marson, he would say. I've been looking all over for you. I need to talk with you. To say sorry and... Aidan would turn his back and walk away, ignoring his father's hurt voice, swallowing the acrid draft of hate. It rushed through his veins, a surging fever of power. Yet it never strengthened him. When he woke in the morning, all that lingered was the sour memory of what he had done in his dream world. But instead of curbing his need to wander and discover, his misery drove him to recklessness, and to something he would never otherwise have considered or dared. It was time to find out why that forbidden corridor would send a student to jail. Chapter 44 This time Aidan told no one. 
When they were all asleep, he stole from the room, dragged one of the statues in the display hall to the central feature, climbed up to the platform, and descended the stairs. Once in the cold, subterranean darkness, he partly unshuttered his lantern so that only a sliver of light escaped. In the past, he'd always turned left. Now he looked to the right, beyond the chain, down the narrow passage. Dunn's warning rose up again. This was not like ignoring a sign that told him to keep off the grass. There was something down there that was not just forbidden, but secret. He thought about it. What did he care if the consequences were bad? Eva was turning his life to bile. What was trouble with rules in comparison? Well, that was only if he were caught. And he did not intend to be caught. He dropped down and crawled under the chain. With his head so close to the ground, he could see that the dust had been disturbed. People had passed here recently. He rose and started forward, padding cat-like on the balls of his feet, pointing the open end of the lantern down the passage. It cast the faintest yellow glow a few yards ahead to the boundary where light wrestled with shadow. With the wick trimmed to allow only the smallest flame, and the forward shutter open but a crack, it did little more than soften the darkness. But it was more than enough. Aidan had no fear of the dark. It wasn't a consequence of courage. He simply never had cause to fear it. Instead, he had often found security where he could not be seen, where he could hide and keep watch. A sound brushed his ear, light as the touch of a moth, yet he was able to feel it in the ground. When he held his breath and listened, there was nothing. He continued forward as the corridor plummeted down a long flight of stairs, so precipitous that he almost had to use his hands. The surfaces were narrow and the drops deep. He was all too aware that if his balance should carry him forward, there would be no recovery. A misstep here would hurt for a long time. The bottom, if there was one, remained lost, far below in the darkness. He tested every surface before committing his weight, so the progress was slow. It was almost an hour before he reached the level ground in front of an oak door, dry, split, and papery with age. The door was slightly ajar, so he pulled it open with the soft creak and cast the lantern light into what appeared to be a storeroom, though by the looks of it, one that had been forgotten for a very long time. The large room was filled with heaped sacks, ropes, rusted tools, and mildewed harnesses, so old that even the mildew had died and trickled to the ground, forming little heaps of grey powder. It was an odd assortment, and certainly a strange place to keep all these things, for the room appeared to terminate the passage. No doors led out from here. The stone walls were unbroken except by the door through which he had entered. Why anyone had built such an interminable stairway, only to provide access to a pointless storeroom, escaped Aiden. Yet here it was. Perhaps marshals were poor architects after all. But the thought did not rest well. He was missing something, and he knew it. Another brush of sound. 
It was like the air had shuddered. It came from everywhere and nowhere, as if the earth itself were sighing and the floor and walls whispered of it. What had Garald said? Shakes and shivers that don't belong in rock? Aidan waited a long time, but there was nothing more. Disappointed with this dull end to the night's exploration, he leaned against a pile of sacks that crumbled to produce a powdery cascade behind him. The dust and decay drew him back into his own thoughts, and the ruin his life had become. As he let his mind drift back through the years, flailing for something, anything that would give a flicker of relief, he remembered what was so close that he had almost forgotten it. Reaching beneath his shirt, he pulled out the little leather case, now old and worn, and looked at it for a long time, considering. Then, with a suddenness to counter the years of hesitation, he made the decision. It was time. He crossed back to the entrance. The sagging door ground over dusty flagstones as he pushed it closed. There was a corner at the far end of the room where he could tuck himself down between two piles of sacks, and after placing the lantern there, he sat and lifted the cord over his head. He held the little case in his palm where the light fell. Since Thomas had given it to him, he had carried it, fearing to look inside, fearing the pain it would cause. But after the past weeks, he no longer cared about the pain. Calorie was not here to take his arm anymore, but her words were here, and he suddenly needed them again. He untied the rawhide binding and, with a deep breath, slid the cover off to reveal a small walkabout diary painted with flowers, birds, and beasts all surprisingly well-proportioned for the creations of a young girl. The handwriting was as familiar as his own. It caused his breath to catch. Though the pages were tiny, there was a good deal in them owing to thin and probably expensive paper, and very small handwriting. He remembered how she had found that writing small was the only way to keep the letters neat. She had objected, however, to anyone calling her normal script messy. She insisted, with a half-grin, that it was a good thing if the letters wanted to be a little different every time. Aidan smiled at the memory. After a brief pause, he began to read. Dear Diary, I hope you don't mind, but I've decided not to write to you again. That's why I'm starting a new diary today and it's the last time I'll write Dear Diary unless you write me something back, which, of course, we know you won't. I'm not too sure who to write to. I was thinking about writing to the Ancient, but I'm worried about bothering him with silly things. Julia said it would be wrong. Daddy said I would be wasting ink. He said there are many gods who didn't care about Mommy when she was sick and don't care about us now but it was that angry and quick way of speaking he uses when he's just saying things because he wants to, and not because he knows they are true. Emroy, who was listening in, as usual, came up to me later and said, if there is a god, then why can't he see it? And then he gave one of those smiles like the sheriff does when he's thinking about something, and walked off 
as if he just said something cleverer than the sheriff himself. I wanted to tell him he can't see his own head, and that doesn't mean he doesn't have one. Aidan said in his case it did. I don't feel wicked for laughing because Emroy can be a real bully, even when I try to be nice to him. Anyway, what he said gave me an idea. If I thought like him, Emroy, I mean, not Aidan, I would always lose at hide-and-seek because I would always be saying there's no one there when I don't see them, and I'd always give up too soon. If you want to be any good at it, you need to look all over and search for trampled grass and footprints and startled birds and all those kinds of things that Aidan is always showing me. I got to wondering if maybe the Ancient is like that too. Maybe he wants to hide like he wants us to look for him instead of him just appearing in the middle of the field and saying, Here I am. Because maybe then we'd just say, You're in my field. Go away. So maybe he lets the people find him who really want to find him. I remember the one time I got lost in the fir woods on the south side of the town. It was Aidan's father who found me, and when he found me, he even let me hug him and cry against his shoulder. But when I go to visit Aidan at his house, his father is really rude, and he sometimes doesn't even say hello, because at those times he's not looking for me. That reminds me about something else. Today Aidan and I went questing for the castle of the Silver Dwarf. Aidan was so good at finding tracks in the forest, even when they weren't really there. But when he didn't know, I could see him. He got this deep, sad look in his face. I've seen it before and I also saw bruises that he didn't want to talk about. First I thought it was Emroy, but I overheard Dorothy saying something to Julia that made me wonder if his father is hurting him. Then I remembered that time I accidentally saw him hiding in the corner at his house when his father was standing in front of him and breathing like he'd been exercising. I still can't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I would give up all my collections and storybooks, even the ones I wrote, if I could just make it stop. I wish he was my real brother. Then he could come and live here and be safe. Aidan's vision was too blurred to see the page. He closed his eyes and his shoulders shook silently for a while. He knew that Callery had meant what she had written, and he knew how valuable those storybooks had been to her. When he had reined himself in, he rubbed his eyes and started the next entry. Dear Aidan, seeing as my diary didn't write to me, I'm going to write to you. But if I catch you reading it, I'll tell Dorothy that you stole those four slices of cake that made you sick on William's birthday. When I'm dead and buried, you can read it all, but only you. Don't tell Emroy about the part where I thought your missing head joke was funny. I want to write about something that I've been feeling a lot lately, and today it was particularly... I'm sure I spelt that wrong. Clear. I went walking really early in the morning, you know, when the stars are yawning and closing their eyes, and flowers and grass begin to stretch before the wind gets up from the valley and starts them dancing, and birds are worried about flying into things, so they sit in their trees and chatter to each other, telling stories about what they dreamed and what they planned to do with the day. And while I was standing there, in the middle of the west field, I heard something even more beautiful than the chorus of the birds. I think the best way to describe it is by calling it a song, 
and almost everything can feel it. I can't hear it with my ears. It's more inside, and it makes me tremble like it's trying to wake me up, and I'm saying, but I am awake, and it's smiling. I think this song can smile, and saying, no, you're not, because you're not singing. It seemed as young as the dew that was making my toes cold, but at the same time I knew that it was older than memory itself. I borrowed that line from one of your mum's books. It made me think of that poem by Thiel, where he mentions the echoes of the ancient. But that sounds too cold. To me this was like the song of the ancient. I think I'll call it that. I think it's a song that's always been there, but it's like it's getting louder now, like something magnificent and spectacular. That one doesn't look right either. Is going to happen. It made something spectac-wonderful happen in me. I was ready to burst with excitement, so I ran right over to the old tulip tree and hugged it. And I think it laughed. Thomas saw me, and he certainly laughed. I'm not mad with him anymore. I probably would have laughed if I'd seen him hugging a tree. I want to tell you about all of this soon. I know we have a lot of make-believe things, like the dwarf and the wandering willow and the fox with the golden tail, but this is different. It's as real as rain, but I think it can be ignored completely. I hope you know about it, too. It's lonely for me when we can't share things. This time the tears poured down his face, and he made no attempt to check them. How he missed her. He remembered her telling him about the song, and remembered how she had been disappointed in his subdued enthusiasm. He began to wonder about the storm that had revealed itself over Castith, if what she described was a more subtle form of what he had experienced when he had heard his name wrapped in thunder. It really had felt like he was being woken, though somehow that stirring, that excitement, had faded. In its place were Cole's chains and a cauldron spilling fumes of hatred that had pulled him back into a heavy sleep. A sharp click pierced the silence. Aidan blew out the flame and pushed himself against the wall between the mounds of sacks. The floor shook under a heavy grinding. He was momentarily confused when a shaft of light fell across the floor from the wrong side of the room. Then he understood. A door was opening in the stone wall. Aidan ground his teeth. He should have guessed it. From where he was hiding, only the wooden door was visible, so the two voices that reached him were faceless. I understand that well enough, but we must humor him. He has the respect of many thinking people occupying influential positions. If he were to be silenced too directly, it would breed suspicion. The voice was familiar, but Aidan could not yet place it. But what he proposes will only excite ideas that could lead to unrest. His theories are going to spread like poison. You have to admit, with the increasing reports of inexplicable sightings in the East, and now these tremors that even we have felt, he will have the ears of the whole city. His ideas have a credible tone. 
he could ruin everything you have been working towards. This thick, throaty voice Aidan recognised immediately. It was Ganavant, the prince's big bullfrog of a counsellor. The other voice, then, was Burkhart's. I am well aware of that, and I am glad that we are the first to be shown beyond the vaults. How he managed to open them I'll never understand. Kings have been defied by those locks for five hundred years. The stone door ground closed. Burkhart's voice was almost dreamy when he spoke again. I still can't quite accept what my eyes told me. It might have been a long way down, but there was no doubt. It moved. With supporting evidence like this, he could put an end to all my plans. That is why it must not be seen by anyone ever again. You often say that truth is not necessarily the best thing to throw at the masses. If people see what we just saw, it would cause panic like we have never imagined. It might even send them fleeing towards Fenlaw, perhaps even the Denelin of their wild stories, rather than remaining here. We must close the vaults again, and seal this door immediately. Yes, yes, Ganavant, you clutter the air with the obvious. This room will certainly be blocked off with enough stone to bury whatever is down there for good. But the dilemma of plugging the old windbag remains. How is he to be silenced without raising widespread questions? There was a brief pause. Allow him the quest, Ganavan said. Let him go and search for answers, but let it work for us, too. Accidents can happen, especially in a place unanimously rumoured to be under a curse. Men could be paid to go along and witness that his theories were shown groundless, shortly before he and those loyal to him met their unfortunate ends. What if— You speak of such things in the open. Your tongue is growing loose, Gallivant. You risk attaching soil to my name. Forgive me, Highness. Despite the apology, the Counselor's voice did not sound remorseful. It seemed to Aidan only a matter of form. This counsellor was not the bowing and scraping type. Aidan imagined him to listen to reprimands while smiling inside, calculating. The wooden door grated over the dirty stones as they pulled it open and the two men walked out of the room, but the light did not recede. What is it? Burkott asked. Did you not leave the door ajar? Aiden tensed. Fool. I do not clearly recall, said the prince, his voice betraying his annoyance. With your permission, I would like to make a quick search inside. The light grew stronger, and the door creaked again. Aiden held his breath and drew his feet as tightly against him as he could. Overhearing such talk, even if he only partly understood it, would not be punished by cane, but by iron, the very sharp iron of an executioner's axe. Heavy steps re-entered the room. I do not believe I gave my permission, Burkhart snapped, his voice edged now, even dangerous. 
I wonder if you're forgetting your place, Gunnivant. Sorry, Highness. Again, there was no sorrow in the apology. Let us be gone. The light withdrew, and Aiden was left in darkness. He tried to understand what he had heard, that the prince and his counselor were conspiring to assassinate an innocent man, Culver, by the description. And what lay behind that door that it should be sealed away forever? He decided to wait, in case anyone else emerged, but after what felt like hours, he could wait no more. He struck the flint until he raised a flame and lit his lantern, then crept out to inspect the wall. The concealed door had closed, leaving no trace of its whereabouts. He was sure there would be a way to open it by pressing on a stone or several stones, but he was also sure that there would be traps that could swallow him if he pressed the wrong ones. Holding the lantern close to the surface, he thought he could make out a slight shine on two of them, perhaps from the oily deposits left from years of being pressed. But then this could be a trick whereby the wrong stones were touched and the right ones pressed through a garment. He was considering anchoring himself with a rope to guard against an opening floor trap when the same sharp click cut through the wall. He blew out the lantern again, and dived behind a sack of perished leather harnesses as the door opened. From his vantage point, he was able to steal a glimpse. His jaw dropped. What he was looking at was nothing like the storeroom. It was a large chamber, and as imposing as a royal vestibule. The walls were covered with intricate murals that looked like maps of a city, but even in that glimpse, it was clear to him that these maps described something far bigger than Castith. Surely this was the entrance to a forgotten realm, an underground kingdom. The otherworldly feeling was strengthened by a curious light pouring through the doorway. It was not the glow of lanterns, but something brighter, warmer, and alive. It was as if red gold had been heated until it flowed over the ground and bathed the room with a shifting radiance. Every fibre of Aidan's adventurous soul strained forward. Then the view was blocked as someone passed through the doorway. It was Culver, no mistake. The tall Chancellor entered the storeroom and leaned his weight against the stone door, but before it closed, there was another of those earth-born sounds. Only now it was a roar, a hundred times louder and much clearer. Aidan almost leapt to his feet. As the door closed, the sound was cut off, leaving only a faint tremor in the air. That door, Aidan realized, led to the source of these disturbances and the answer to the mystery. He had to crouch and wait until the light had disappeared, but when it was dark again, he looked up and saw the robed, grey-haired figure striding away. He turned back to the door. Tonight would be his last chance to discover what lay beyond it, what had lain undisturbed for five hundred years and was now to be hidden for good. He checked the ropes, but they were impossibly old, crumbling at his touch. He would have to fetch another if he wanted an anchor capable of providing any security. There were several in the training hall that he could borrow. He headed off in that direction, his lantern unlit, 
staying well behind the Chancellor. Climbing that mountain of stairs in the darkness was far from comfortable. This time he did use his hands. When he reached the top, the robed man was gone. Aidan felt his way along the narrow passage, under the chain, past the collapsing stairs, down the broad passage, through the weapons hall, and finally into the training hall. He knew the dimensions of the space so well, after the years of exercises, that he did not need a light. He rummaged about until he located a coil of rope, then counted his paces back through the doors, across the weapons hall, only bumping against one stone pillar, and into the broad passage again. Safe now from observation, he lit the lantern, ran the rest of the way, and approached the forbidden corridor. He had put one foot under the chain when his dim light revealed what he had not expected, not so soon. Three uniformed soldiers were blocking the way. Halt! the foremost shouted and started forward. Aidan knew that they would not let him walk free. The soldiers were too far away to see his face, so he turned and ran. The man chasing him was no mean athlete. Heavy steps were drawing nearer. After only a few paces, Aidan reached the stairs and had to slow down as he climbed to avoid the traps. Behind him, the distance closed rapidly. He would not have enough of a lead to climb down from the central feature. A metallic clank was followed by a scrape of rock, a yell, and a whoosh of air. The yell became a scream that ended in a cavernous splash. Aidan looked behind him. A large portion of the stairway had hinged open, dropping the soldier into dark waters beneath. He hoped the man would not drown. Then it occurred to him that he was holding a rope, and that keeping it would only incriminate him. He slipped a quick loop around a pillar and dropped the end into the water. When he felt it tighten, he shinned up the rest of the stairs, replaced the cover, climbed down using the outraged statue, returned it to its place, and crept back to his bed. Nobody stirred. He lay awake until morning, curiosity scratching at the edges of his mind, whining, demanding, keeping slumber well away. Too many questions. What was down there that could drive a whole city to panic? What had Culver discovered about the storms? Was there truly something to fear? And beneath the very streets of Castith? Jump! Get off your beds, you lazy oxen! This time he really did jump, and grazed his fist against a beam. He hoped Dunn hadn't noticed. Chapter 45 We are looking for Aiden. The soldiers were from one of the special divisions that wore the white tunics over the chainmail, setting them apart for royal duties only. There was no hiding from these elite troops, not even in the marshal's quarter. Coldis pointed. Come with us, please, the senior officer said. Aidan's pale face spoke eloquently. He stood and followed the soldiers out of the classroom. They gave him no explanation and were silent in response to his questions. They knew. 
He considered running, but against such men he would have little chance. They led him down the stairs, which had been pulled up and reset during the night. The landing at the bottom was filled with carts of stone and mortar being wheeled towards the storeroom. Aidan understood now why the morning training session had taken place in the display room. He tried to think of some way to justify himself, how he might bargain for a softer penalty. They continued on down the broad passage, through the weapons hall, and into a section of the buildings Aidan had never been allowed to enter. They passed two doors and stopped outside the third, where they knocked. The door was opened by another soldier, and they entered a large office. Not an inch of any wall was visible. Packed bookshelves reached from corner to corner. The biggest desk Aidan had ever seen filled a good portion of the room. He began to tremble as he saw Prince Burkhart, Ganavant, and Culver, whose private office he assumed this was. What's the matter, Aidan? said the prince, smiling. You look rather shaken. Mm, eh, nothing, your highness, Aidan said, trying to keep his knees locked. Burkhart laughed easily. I suppose this was a somewhat disturbing way to bring you down here. Let me put your mind at rest. We need your assistance on a matter of great importance. Aidan relaxed slightly at the prince's easy tones, but he noticed that Ganavant was fixing him with a relentless stare. Aidan kept his attention on the prince. We need to send a party out to Kultum to investigate something. It has come to my attention that you actually entered this fortress. That would make you and your travelling companions the only living experts on the place. We can find nobody else alive who has set foot there. Aidan was not surprised at this. He wanted to point out that he had seen no more of the place than the entrance courtyard, but he did not yet trust his voice, and Ganavant was still looking at him with those bulging, fly-hunting eyes. So I have assembled a group, Burkhardt continued, to accompany Culver and his assistants. Mistress Gilder tells me that you are familiar with a dark-skinned foreign girl who can act as a nurse. Liru? She would have called her Lirunda. Yes, that was the one that was... recommended. She will accompany you. You leave at first light tomorrow. Do you have any questions? It sank in. This was not about being asked for information. He was actually being ordered to return to that dreaded place, that stronghold of unsleeping watchfulness and death. If they knew he had been there, then they would know the account. They would know that the ground even within the fortress was treacherous. Last time he had barely escaped with his life. How did they expect him to slip the noose again? Over the past four years, Kultum had haunted the worst of his nightmares. His only comfort on waking had been that he would never see the place again. Now they wanted to send him back. Aidan's jaw fell, and his face greyed. I think I can guess your worries, Barkat said. You are wondering, with the months lost on the journey, if you will pass the year. Aidan had been wondering if he would survive the year. Culver, Burkhart indicated the robed Chancellor standing on his left, 
holds the Academy's high seat. He is the most learned man I know. I hereby task him with the matter of your continued education. You shall not fail the year on account of your service. The austere man gave a stiff nod. Aidan, in spite of his fears, was embarrassed. The prince might as well have asked the Chancellor to do Aidan's laundry. Right then, said Barkard. I shall be on my way. I wish you all luck. Culver, may you find the answers you seek. The prince smiled as he left, but Aidan followed him with his eyes, and just before the door saw the slackening of the unguarded face, as if drained by inner conflict. Ganavan's parting glance, however, was little short of a smirk. Both worried him. Be ready by dawn, Culver said. He did not even look at Aidan as he gathered sheets of paper from his laden wheat field of a desk. Meet us at the stables with your belongings packed, saddlebags only. Dunn has been briefed and will provide you with equipment and light weapons. I expect you to be punctual. Captain Senberts and his men will be waiting for us at the city gates. Aidan spent the rest of the day in a flurry of preparation. Dunn provided a sleeping roll, weatherproof cloak, and a small hunting knife, but no more weapons, not even a sling or bow. Aidan was surprised that he was to be so lightly armed, especially in the context of the Fen crisis. It looked more like being disarmed. When he asked, Dunn's answer was quick and stiff. The knife would be sufficient for the purpose of a guide. Soldiers would deal with any threats. It sounded like Dunn was repeating what he had been told, rather than actually answering. Aidan sensed that argument would be futile. There was much excitement among Aidan's friends, and he was assailed with many questions he could not answer. But underneath all the well-wishing, a horrible fear was beginning to gnaw at him. If ever he had needed advice, it was now. But he was not sure whom he could trust other than Osric. Reaching Osric would require leaving the academy during class hours. He could sneak out. It wouldn't be the first time. But he decided under the circumstances to play by the rules and ask permission. Dunn refused him. Like before, his response was unusually quick, as if he had been primed. So Aidan asked Skeet and was allowed out. He found Osric at his house preparing a gruesome dinner that contained turnip, potato, and partridge, and that had somehow been transformed into axle grease, a sticky, opaque, black mass that glared up from the bottom of the pot like the dead eye of some giant fish. It smelled even worse than it looked. Aidan refused so much as a sample taste. Osric stormed and bothered about second-rate ingredients and partridges not fit for cockroaches, until Aidan was able to contain his frustration no longer. I've been sent to Kultum, he blurted. Osric dropped the spoon into the poisonous concoction with a thick plop. Oliver's quest. Yes, but it's not what you think. I overheard something last night, and I'm worried that we are being sent to our graves. He told Osric about the conversation he had overheard in the storeroom how Don had armed him with nothing but a midget knife that would be questionable protection against a block of cheese, 
and how nobody of importance was being included. Liru and I are both disposable. Culver and his assistant are the only two of any real standing, and the rest will be common soldiers. I think they are hoping that the fortress will be our end, and if it isn't, the soldiers will probably have orders to finish the job. Hmm. Osric sat down, causing the chair to screech with the strain, and folded his arms. I very much doubt the soldiers would actually take you as far as the fortress, if they had been given such orders. Our soldiers can be a superstitious lot, and Kultum is a name that some even fear to speak. They will probably travel a few days out, cut some throats, wait three months, and return with a well-honed story. Soldiers who have accepted orders to commit murder would not think twice about rearranging the orders to save themselves trouble and danger. Wouldn't they be worried the prince would learn the truth if he investigated? I think we both know that the prince's first concern right now is not with truth. Any soldiers given the orders you suspect would know it too. As long as the result and the story are expedient, Barkart would probably be satisfied. Of late, he has not been toasted for his integrity. Aidan let his head drop forward onto the table with a thump. How did I land myself with this? I suspect that the prince does not actually want you dead, but it is well known in our circles that you were at Kultum, and if he did not send you along it would raise questions. It is also necessary for a nurse to accompany the party considering the possible dangers. He probably felt that this foreign girl was the one he could most afford to lose. Did he look happy about the arrangement to you? I think he was trying to, trying really hard, but he looked like he was going to be sick when he walked out. I would have thought so. He wants to be a good man, but there are things he wants more. I doubt he enjoyed making that decision, and he'll be partly relieved when you all return. What do you mean, when we all return? How is that likely? Because I shall see that it happens. Aidan prepared to ask a string of questions, but the general held up his hand. Yes, I know the prince would intervene if he thought I intended to join the party, but in two days I'm heading out with a small patrol for a routine inspection of some of the outlying posts. Seeing as I decide where to patrol, I'm going to head east, and when I find your trail, and then your camp, I'll join the quest and assume command, having a strong desire to see the fortress for myself. I have often wanted to assess it as a prospective outpost. Will Burkhart not arrest you on your return? I'll send another officer to do the rounds. No duties will be left unattended. But even if they were, the prince would be bold to move against me. I have a unique position here. I answer to the king, to the crown in Tullinro. I am really just on loan to Castith. Aidan considered what Osric had said. What if they make a move before you get there? That is going to be your challenge, making sure that they don't. They will not risk thinning the party until they have travelled well beyond the last of the hamlets. That would take five days on horseback, going quick and steady, but it could be done in fewer. 
It is vital that you slow the pace somehow. He got up, fetched a small leather pouch from a cupboard, and handed it over. Browned frogweed. Five or six pinches of this will leave a horse very unhappy for a day or two. Won't get much more than a stiff walk and an evil wind. Aidan took the bag and smelled the contents. It reminded him of silage. There would be no difficulty getting a horse to swallow this. I'll try to send a message to Culver. Osric resumed. But chances are he's worked it out already. If you need to communicate without the soldiers' understanding, use Sulis. There are only a handful of them that know it, and they're all posted outside the city. Act as if you are practicing languages. Next best would be Fen. Some of the weights had lifted from Aidan's mind, but much remained. Without thinking about it, he buried his head in his hands while the thoughts tumbled. Gradually he became aware of Osric's voice. I'm sorry, he said. Could you repeat that? I said, there's something else, isn't there? You have the look of a beaten animal, a look that nobody gets overnight. Giddard tells me you've started acting strangely this year. You pay no attention in classes. You keep apart from your friends. And you're either lost in your own thoughts or snappish. It's nothing. Osric regarded him. Neither of us believes that, he said. It's my concern. I really don't want to talk about it. There's nothing you can do. Nothing anyone can do. Look, if it... Osric, please, I mean it. I'm grateful that you want to assist, but you can't. And thank you for being willing to help us with this quest, or sham of a quest, or whatever it is. Osric's granite features remained fixed as he searched Aidan's face for answers. But Aidan was locked down, tight as a hatch in a gale. Finally, the general sat back. It will be my pleasure, he said. Now you can repay me by cooking up something that a man can swallow without pain, while we go through as many contingencies as the time will allow, beginning with the possibility that no murderous orders have been given, that the prince considered Ganavan's suggestion we know, but whether he actually gave the order is not certain. By morning, he was the first at the stables, or at least he thought he was, until Leroux spoke from the shadows. You know what this is really about? Aidan managed not to jump. What do you mean? If it were the important quest they say it is, why am I here? I know why you are here. You have been to this Kultum. But why me? There are many nurses with more experience. It cannot be the honorable opportunity for training, they say, because then they would not have chosen a foreigner. I believe that I was chosen because they would not care much if I did not make it back. Her voice was heavy and cold as the morning. Liru, I'm sorry. Do not try to make me feel better, she cut in. I want facts. She stepped out from the shadow. Her face was rigid. I have only suspicions. She inclined her head. You've heard that Culver had his own ideas about the storm over Castith, that he thought there might be cause for real concern, not just a bad winter or something. No. It's not well known. I've had to piece it together. He found something underneath the city that he thinks might be related. 
I don't know what, but apparently it's very worrying. He also found a description that matched the unnatural storms in some ancient archive. It led him to believe the answers will be found at Kultum. That doesn't answer my question. Easy, Leru, I'm getting there. Biting me won't help either of us. She looked back without softening. He had never been on the other side of her annoyance, and he was not enjoying it. I think, he continued, that Culver has been sent on this trip believing that he will find answers, but the real purpose is to silence him. And witnesses will not return, she finished for him. Aidan nodded. I think so, but I have a plan. I spoke to Osric and... He trailed off. Lyra wasn't listening. She folded her arms and stared into the thinning darkness. I believe that I had escaped from tyranny when I came here, but now I see your people can be as wicked as Lecrans. Aidan felt the words strike him. He wanted to react, but what could he say? Look, it's just a hunch. Maybe there's another explanation. But not even he believed that. She turned and walked to her pony's stall, hung her lantern and began to tag. Before the others arrived, Aidan made arrangements to have Mern looked after by a stable boy who had overcome some of his fear of the horse, admiration driving him. As he turned away, something caught his eye. A figure slipping behind a tree. In an instant, the suspicion took shape. He dropped his saddle and ran out through the dim light, reaching the tree just as Malik's hard visage appeared on the other side. Aidan walked around and faced him. Why are you here? he asked. What makes you think my being here has anything to do with you? Malik sneered. I know it does. Malik raised his eyebrows, then leaned against the tree and relaxed. I'm not supposed to say anything, but who would you tell anyway? Tell what? He looked at Aidan for a while, clearly enjoying his control of the situation. It was my father who dropped a few words about who would go on this headless quest. Was it not enough to... to point that bully my way? Eva was not enough, Malik said, his voice rising. You and your savage have done more to insult me than anyone else. I'm no spineless worm that can bend and ignore it. I remember it all, and how you taught your friends to do the same. Then there was the festival. Malik's face was growing red, something Aiden had never seen before. You told the story as if you succeeded where I failed. But I only told what happened, and you were unconscious, so how would you know? Because I know you. Malik was breathing hard. I finally saw, thanks to Eva. You're a worm, a little shaking worm who climbs walls to get away from a real fight. For years I was fooled like everyone else, but it was Eva who told me, and then showed me the truth. You could never have done what you said you did. You talked yourself big at my expense, and then you called me a possum. In front of my friends. Do you have any idea how far that traveled? He paused, breathing hard. Do you know why I was unconscious at the festival? 
because I tried to defend the others against the whole gang. I didn't have my friends to back me up, and I never had any chance, but I went at them anyway. And you, you called me a possum. You polished your boots with my name. The last words were shouted in a voice that was hoarse with passion. It was the first time he had shown emotion like this. It actually looked as if there were tears in his eyes. Aiden was too stunned to reply. Malik gradually recovered himself and stepped forward. I never thought you belonged in martial training, but I was prepared to look the other way and let you be. Then, when you insulted me, you showed me that any respect I gave you would be thrown away. You never belonged here, North Boy. You should have left. You brought this on yourself. And her. You'll be gone for three months. And Culver's not going to trouble himself with your studies like you were promised. I saw to that as well. So you'll fail the year for sure. Both of you. But that only matters if you return. And I don't think the odds favor you. You want my advice? If you reach Kultum alive, keep heading north and don't stop until you're back where you belong. He turned and strode away, leaving Aidan to sort through his feelings, anger, embarrassment, and even a measure of guilt, as he returned to the stables. Culver arrived with the large, hairy man Aidan remembered from the final interview of the entrance examinations. Aidan tried to ask a question, but the Chancellor strode past and spoke without breaking step. You will deal with my assistant, Fergal. His tone was as dismissive as his words. Malik had spoken the truth, then. At least that part was true. Even if they made it back from this corrupted quest, he and Liru would be failed. At the very least, the year was being stolen from them, and along with it, their friends. He should have broken Malik's nose. The bulky assistant offered Aiden a kind smile beneath a glowing nose. We'll speak along the way, he said from within a black forest of beard, and lumbered off to find his horse. Aiden made no effort to conceal his dismay. He remembered now that he had seen the man more recently, with a mop. Aren't you a cleaner? he asked, coming up to him. The man looked at him, quiet humor in his eyes. He was obviously in no hurry to answer. Aidan began to wonder if this servant was hard of hearing. I do clean, yes, among other things, Fergal said. Are you above being taught by a cleaner? Aidan was not in a good mood, and lessons were the least of his concerns. He wanted to say something cutting, but he realized that this poor fellow was not his enemy, and the lessons would probably make no difference in the end anyway. No, he said, and left to finish saddling his pony. A light, wintry drizzle had come out to soak the first day of their quest. All had their hoods up, all but Fergal, whose mass of black hair acted like a thatch roof. 
He seemed quite content with the miserable weather. At the city gates, the party was met by a unit of a dozen soldiers and several pack mules loaded with bags, grains, beans, and other supplies for the journey. The soldiers were wearing leather armor suitable for traveling. They carried an assortment of weapons, all a lot bigger than cheese knives. They were also cloaked and hooded, so their faces were mostly hidden, but the eyes that Aiden saw were shifty and hard. These were not boys. There was no buzz of innocent enthusiasm here. He looked ahead at Liru, so small on her little pony, and he felt a thorn of worry begin to work at him. To the side, he glimpsed a soldier smiling at her. The man's look gave him more cause to shiver than the wind that now struck through the opening gates. He thought of how he and his friends had contributed to the design of the city's defences, to the safety of its people, and wondered how things had come to this. Could the prince he served really be sending him to die for some political convenience? He looked out at the sheets of drizzle. The men would not want to camp in the open tonight. They would push for one of the villages at a trot. He would have to slow them tomorrow. He blessed Osric quietly for the frogweed. Where was it now? He had put it under his bed, so that it wouldn't be found among his packed things during the night by a suspicious dun. He turned around with a gasp and felt through the saddlebags with mounting panic, almost spilling his clothes on the muddy road. He had left it. Chapter 46 Building on the outer wall was supposed to commence at first light every day, but there were no hands to be seen as the party approached the network of scaffolds and ramps. After passing a large mound of rock and stone, Aidan caught sight of a group of builders. They were huddled against the leeward shelter of the now twelve-foot wall, trying to kindle a fire. Captain Senbert shouted at them, but a sudden watery squall turned everything white and swept his words away, apparently along with any resolve to interfere. He put his head down and urged his horse forward, leaving the builders to themselves. The road lay empty, apart from a few unfortunates who hurried through the mud to or from the city. As soon as the party had descended the slope, the captain spurred his horse to a trot. Aidan glanced to his right, as they passed Boar and Harriet's home. His mother would be there. Thinking of her made him feel like turning his pony from this hateful procession and dashing away. But she could not protect him. Who could, if the prince had, in fact, ordered his death? Osric, perhaps, but even that was uncertain. The morning aged without changing, unable to outgrow its mood. It remained swamped in a dusky darkness, thick with drizzle and worried by restless wind. The belts of rain would often bring visibility down to a few yards, but in the breaks, when the clouds gathered for the next squall, the travellers were permitted brief glimpses of the surrounds. Buildings began to thin out until there were only scattered farmsteads on the plains. Here, Barns and homes crouched and dripped while smudges of blue smoke were pulled from their chimneys by the gusts. 
Only the bravest of the farmers could be spied in their fields. The rest were clearly content to bow out and let the weather do its work. The horses had been alternately trotting and walking for a few hours when the captain called a halt and dismounted, along with the sergeant. Aidan looked around. They were in a shallow depression. No buildings or people were visible. More to the point, their party was visible to none. With a rush of fear, he wondered if this could be it. Sounds would not carry. Graves could be easily dug in the softened earth. Tracks would wash away in the rain. He urged his horse forward and stopped beside Liru. We need to talk, he said. What good will talking do, Aiden? I have made peace with my fate. Let me be. It's not your fate. Are you going to make no effort to escape any of this? And then what would happen to my parents if I escape your prince? He will turn on them. I will not let that happen. But Liru, enough, Aiden, leave me. With that, she urged her horse away. The sergeant called out that they would stop briefly. The party dismounted. Aiden headed for the trees. On his way back, one of the soldiers stepped in front of him with a loose-lipped smirk. Not much luck with the girl, huh? Saw her give you the hoof. Bit dark for my usual taste, but definitely growing on me. I like a bit of pluck. Aidan stared back, furious but helpless. The soldier laughed and made a mock chop at Aidan's neck with an imaginary sword. Look at me like that too often, and I'll cut you down to size, little marshal. The captain had been within earshot, but he merely turned away. He carried his head as if his neck was tired, shoulders drawn in. He looked wilted. On the few occasions when Aidan had seen his face, it had reflected turmoil. The day continued as gloomily as it had begun. Sodden and cold, they pressed on until, in the failing light, they came to the gates of Morin. Once the horses were stabled, the riders hurried indoors, where they warmed themselves before the hearth, while stamping in pools of water that gathered at their feet. The inn, named the Rabbit's Burrow, was a warm and cheery place, though decidedly more rustic than anything Aidan had seen in Castith. Reeds covered the clay floor and smoky rushlights mounted against the walls put out a moody glow that barely reached the center of the room. Under better circumstances, Aidan would have found the place almost magical. The regulars looked, for the most part, to be farmers, laborers, and craftsmen. The carpenter and blacksmith were easily identified by wood shavings and soot. Between them, they set up a buzz and hum of relaxed conversation. Aidan caught a few strands. Caterpillars in the cabbages, a new hay wagon big enough to carry a house and that necessitated widening of all gates, predictions of rain and complaints about last month's predictions. There was talk of the latest eerie sighting at Eastridge, trees that had been devoured by something in the night, and then a story that spilled the banks of gentle murmuring. Apparently, one of the dairy cows had tried to jump a fence and only made it halfway, landed on the beam, and slid forward until her forelegs reached the ground. There she remained, half on and half off, 
until the laborers could wrestle her free. One of the men proceeded to reenact the performance by suspending himself over the back of a chair, buttocks hoisted, legs in the air, kicking uselessly. His companions were helpless with laughter. Aidan smiled, as much at the storytellers as at their tale. Though he had grown to love Castith and the Academy, he missed these quiet country ways. A whistle and lyre were produced, and two musicians, young, eager, and more than a little nervous, took their places in the corner and began to pour out a medley of folk songs. The notes did not always agree, but the result was, nevertheless, a pleasant ambiance, like the bubbling of a quiet brook. The innkeeper was a small man with bulging cheeks and a white downy beard under grey downy hair. With a carrot plugging his mouth, it would have taken little imagination to see that this was indeed his burrow. He was as polite and attentive as a grandfather hosting his nephew's birthday party. His wife, however, was a different prospect altogether. She was a big woman with a hard face and sharp ears. At any hint of disorder, she would march through from the kitchen to raise her eyebrows as a herder raises his staff, or as a stonemason raises his hammer. The locals sensed the weight of those brows and simmered down when she appeared, but the soldiers paid her little attention. As the evening progressed, they became louder, their talk cruder, their looks meaner. Locals began to grow quiet and started leaving, a few without finishing their meals. It was as Aidan had suspected. These soldiers were of the wrong kind. Unfortunately, the eager, bowing innkeeper could not oppose anyone's wish, so the ale flowed more freely than it ought to have done. The serving girls knew to retreat from the company of drinking soldiers, especially this kind, and the innkeeper was left to manage his own disaster. Aidan had hoped to speak to Culver. He needed to speak to him, and urgently, but the Chancellor and his assistant took their meals to a small table that would not accommodate a third. Aidan found another small table. Liru, instead of joining him, sat by herself until the soldier that had been watching her earlier joined her. She left him without a word and took the chair opposite Aidan. Roars of laughter rose from the soldiers who had been watching the performance. Even the captain, whose mood had been softened by a bottle of wine, was enjoying the spectacle. The rejected soldier's smile, however, was tight as a scar. Liru remained silent and ate little, though the duck pie was perfect, thick pastry and soft meat swimming in a spicy gravy. Fergal lingered to see that Aidan and Liru found their rooms. When he turned to leave, Aidan asked if he might have a word. Fergal replied in a voice that carried a long way, that there would be much time for talk during the journey, and that whatever he had to say could wait a few days. Aidan opened his mouth to say that there might not be a few days, but Fergal held up a hand and spoke one Sully's word, almost like a salutation, then lumbered away, his broad shape filling the passage from wall to wall. Legalio do. That was not a salutation. Aidan went to his room and racked his brain to dig up the meaning. It was familiar. If he had brought his books, he could have found it quickly. 
something told him that there was an importance attached to the word. Burgle's eyes had been intent when speaking it, as if driving some meaning home. Aidan paced. He leaned with his head against the wall and drummed his fingers, whispering the word to himself over and over. A creak distracted him, and he listened. Suddenly he forgot about the creak as his face lit up. Listen! That's what it meant. Although it should have been Vlegalio. Just a cleaner to make such a basic error. But he began to wonder if there was more to it. Then, from an almost forgotten class, he remembered the modifier do, signified people. In this case, it would be people who listen. Listeners. The creak from earlier now took on a meaning, and Aidan remembered that the body of soldiers in the common room had appeared a little thin. Burgle had given a warning that they were being listened to. That's why he had spoken so loudly of there being no need for haste. He must have been assuring an eavesdropper that he was not suspicious of anything. Which meant that he was. So Fergal and Culver also suspected treachery. Osric, then, had succeeded in getting a warning through. Aidan felt relieved, in part, but wondered what the old scholar and his large assistant would be able to do. A compelling lecture would be of little help. Liru would be no help. Aidan was unable to sleep. The carousing of the soldiers was enough to keep anyone awake. He hoped Liru had barricaded her door. By the time the inn fell silent, he was still gazing up at the ceiling. The heavens that had already delivered more than a week's quota of drizzle now showed themselves capable of far greater things as they truly opened up. Through the pounding of heavy drops, he could not even hear his own steps when he got up from the bed and walked to the window. The drowning noise gave him an idea. Not a comfortable one, but one that he would be fool to discard. Getting out the window was the easy part. Climbing down the wall under a small waterfall from the roof was something else. He had never climbed under such conditions and did not find it enjoyable. Holding the slippery surfaces was far less of a problem than actually seeing them, and breathing was more difficult still. When he reached the ground, he collapsed into a frothing pool and gasped for air until he had recovered. Even if there had been a light outside, the rain was so thick that it would have sheltered him completely, so he ran around the building to the stables, nearly tripping over the low rim of the well and ending his plans with a long, dark fall. As he covered the last few yards before the stables, he was surprised by a faint yellow glow emerging through the rain. He guessed, too late, that Captain Sembert had probably mounted a guard. Unable to stop in time, he skidded under the eaves and looked up to see a soldier at the far corner of the building holding a lamp. Who walks there? Aidan hopped over to the low door of the nearest stall. It was dark, but he sensed movement near him. Without waiting to discover what it was, he darted to the partition between the stalls, sprang over it, and dropped into the straw on the other side. The light grew brighter, and then filled the stall he had just left. A door creaked open, 
heavy steps advanced. A sharp thud was followed by a grunt of pain and something collapsed onto the ground. This was proving to be a lot more activity than he had hoped to find down here. He started planning a retreat when he heard a girl's voice. Aiden? It was Liru. He rose and looked across the dividing wall to see her poised over the fallen soldier, shovel held like an axe. What are you doing down here? he asked. I do not trust a door lock when there are drunk soldiers around, especially soldiers like these. I hoped the captain would stop them drinking, but he drank more than any of them, getting them to huddle around while he told jokes that made them laugh the way vile men laugh at vile jokes. I came here to sleep. I did not think they would set a guard. I have been standing behind the door in case I had to defend myself. I almost crushed your head when you jumped in. What are you doing here? I don't know if I should tell you. Why not? You might try to stop me. She looked at him without expression for a moment. I think I spoke from bitterness earlier, she said. Tell me what you have planned, and I will hear you. If I do not agree, I promise not to stand in your way. Aidan climbed the wall back into the first stall, checked that the soldier was asleep, and tied him up properly. Then he moved to a stall further away, where they would not be overheard, though the heavy rain really made the precaution unnecessary. Aidan told the whole story, from the overheard conversation under the academy to his encounter with Malik. He then explained what Osric had planned and how they needed to slow the progress. With embarrassment, he recalled how he'd forgotten the frogweed under his bed. Do you think Malik really has that much influence? And that much hate? Liru asked. Influence? I think he might have managed to get Culver not to teach us, but I don't think he arranged for me to be here. I was going already. I'm not sure about you, either. Maybe he was just trying to claim those as his own victories. I don't think he knows about the plot, either. Why would he bother about making us fail if he knew we'd be murdered? As to hate, he's a lying, insulting, self-absorbed snob who can mock others, but if you joke with him, it's a mortal offence. And he hates deeper than most people love. In spite of that, I don't think he's a murderer. But... Remember that Arunian proverb, Karun nos darum brak. This year a cub, next year a tiger, Liru translated. Hadley once called him a rat. I thought that was a good description back then. But I'm beginning to think he could turn out more dangerous. To me, he's still a rat, no matter how big he gets. But there is something else I must ask you. General Osric, I know him only by name. Everyone does, even in Mardreel. Will he extend his protection to me and my family when we get back? All the rumors of him reveal a very frightening man. Osric is just as frightening as his reputation says, Aiden replied with a hint of a smile. I think he even dwarfs his reputation. He is a fierce man, but never cruel. If anything, it's cruel people that need to fear him. The one thing that really brings out the line in him is injustice. He'll take care of you, trust me. Liru nodded. I will trust you. Then Aidan explained what Fergal had said, 
and Lero immediately translated the word and guessed the meaning. So, he doesn't want us to look like we are suspicious or making plans, she said. I suppose so. But we need to be concerned. We covered a great distance today, a very great distance for these conditions. That's why I'm here, said Aiden. It's time to steal some horses. Liru nodded. The rain will cover sounds and tracks. Where do you plan to take them? On the way here, I saw a wood to the south. If we tie them up there, they won't be found quickly. The whole party would have to search for them before going on. It should win us a day or two. The only problem will be finding the way. It's no fun getting lost on a night like this. I'll join you. Are you sure? I am always sure, even when I am wrong. Madre Heritage. Now let's go. Two horses each. The rain blanketed the sounds of hooves when they left the stables and walked slowly down the road, feeling rather than seeing the way. After they had gone what felt like a mile, Aidan turned up the bank and faced south as he remembered it. He felt the wind hard on his right side. That would help. If he kept it there, he might be able to stay on a southerly course. They travelled a long way through the grass. He was growing certain that they were off target when the wind began to dip and the whistling of branches grew ahead of them. The weather was robbed of its fierceness by the trees, but this sheltering created a different problem, for the gloomy hint of light was reduced to nothing. They had to walk with an arm outstretched and ears alert, tugging the unwilling horses behind them. It made for very slow progress. After a few hundred paces, Aidan decided it was far enough. He was starting to worry about getting back before morning. If their rooms were found empty, there would be trouble. The return trip was aided by a few lights that glimmered through sheets of rain from time to time. It was on the way back that things went wrong. Morin was one of the least fortified towns. Aidan had not expected there to be a watchman who patrolled at night. He and Liru were sloshing their way up the road when the downpour thinned, exposing the buildings and a sentry. The man's slouching posture went rigid. He peered under a raised hand and shouted a challenge. Aidan grabbed Liru's arm and ran up the road past the inn. Intruders! They heard, intruders! The sentry was keeping up, hollering like a madman. They slipped behind an empty wagon on the side of the road. Aidan felt around for a stone. He found one just in time, aimed up the road, and threw. The sentry approached the wagon, but when he heard the splash, he raced on, continuing his pursuit. Aidan tried to draw Lero in the other direction, but she was kneeling and apparently plucking weeds. Strong-smelling ones, too. Liru, he hissed. What are you doing? We must go now. She pocketed what she had dug up, and they ran back to the inn, but now lights were appearing in some of the windows. They darted around to the side, narrowly missing the yellow glare that spilled out as the front door opened. We mustn't be seen coming in, Aiden whispered. Can you climb? My room is on the third floor, the one with the open window. Lero answered by gripping the beams and pulling herself up. With her dark hair and dark coat, she was nearly invisible, 
a patch of shadow edging its way up. The drenched surfaces made for slow going, but the beams were rough-hewn and still provided reasonable perches. Aidan stood below. Catching her from a third-story fall would injure them both, but might save her life, so he waited until she was in. He sprang off the ground and clambered with lizard-like haste. Voices were growing louder. Someone with a lantern was approaching from around the corner, betrayed by the swinging shadow of the wall and the swelling brightness. Aidan clapped his arms over the sill and almost fell as his foot popped off a smooth beam. He felt hands under his shoulders, and it was enough to help him, none too elegantly, through the window. Close it, he gasped, hitting the floor in a panting heap. Liru grabbed the shutter and swung it closed as boots splashed around the corner below them. You stay here, Aiden said. I'll take your room. That way, if anyone tries to bother you, I'll know first, and I'll make a noise. They were awoken early. Horse thieves had visited them during the night. Senbert was livid. He ate his breakfast with a frown while giving orders to find the missing horses quickly. Aidan and Lyra were instructed to accompany two of the soldiers and search the northern farmsteads. Aidan breathed a sigh of relief. A scattered hunt like the one being organized would mean that the day would be lost, even if one of the search parties found the horses early. It had worked and he and Liru had not been discovered. During the night, he had squeezed every last drop of water from his clothes before hanging them just inside the window. Then he had gone for an early walk with Liru in the drizzle. Soldiers had seen them at the well. Anyone noticing the dampness of their clothes would have no suspicions. They had considered everything. A voice interrupted his thoughts. Where did you get that red mud on your boots? I don't remember seeing red mud hereabouts. Aidan gulped under Senbert's inspection. Must have been from one of the stops yesterday. It looks fresh. Aidan wasn't sure what to say. Senbert narrowed his eyes and was about to speak again when a young farmer galloped up and hailed them. You men lost some horses? he asked. What do you know of it? asked the captain, transferring his suspicious look to the farmer. I went to check on my snares this morning, heard a horse in the woods, and discovered four of them tied to trees less than a half mile in. I'll show you the way if you can leave now. Within an hour, the horses were recovered, and the party was on its way again. The captain set a pace that did not accord with a long journey. Aidan's fears were growing into certainty. Travelling like this, they would be leaving the outlying hamlets by the end of the fourth day, and if that happened, he doubted he would see the fifth. Osric would arrive in time to avenge him, but that was no comfort. Liru had a fixed calmness about her, but it was not like her earlier resignation. He wondered if she had some plan. That day, Aiden was sure they must have covered more than fifty miles. By the time it grew dark, there was only a small homestead in sight. The farmer, more likely out of fear than generosity, offered his hay barn for lodging. Aiden and Lyra were watched closely this time. When they tried to step away from the barn to talk, Sandbert called them back. It was hopeless. 
The following day they moved out early, the horses striding as swiftly as before and eating up the miles at a frightening rate. Aidan was beginning to realize he would not get another convenient opportunity. The next attempt to slow the pace would have to happen soon, no matter how big the risk.